2003, Fountains of Wayne, Stacy's Mom. If that sounds a little bit familiar for those of you who like 1980s and 1970s music, it actually kind of is. This was paying homage to the Cars, and specifically the song Just What I Needed. And in fact, if you watch the music video, the very inappropriate music video, which ends with a 13-year-old boy jerking off in the bathroom and being caught by his 13-year-old girlfriend. I'm not even kidding, that's part of the video. Uh, but if you look that up, you'll see at the very beginning of the video, there's a license plate that says, I love Rick, and that's in reference to Rick Ocasek of the Cars. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is the Druff and Friends show. 
I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas. This is being recorded and broadcast live on March 21st, 2018 at 8.57 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. As always, we have a free roll tonight, and it's a large free roll again, thanks to the usual suspect these days for making large free rolls. I'm sure you can guess who it is. It's not C-Money, though he's very generous, too, and I appreciate C-Money's generosity. But recently, the majority of the money has been coming from Eric Benzamokin, who was a former sponsor and uh, current listener to every episode. And uh, tonight it is going to be a current sponsor, too. I'm going to play his ad tonight. And uh, for those of you that don't like the people's court backgrounded ad, tough luck. But anyway, we're going to play his ad tonight and... $200 has been given to this free roll. $200, $100 for the main prize pool, just like last week. But unlike last week, there's an additional $100 to bust Traderuski. Here's what Eric Benzamokin wrote to me. And this free roll starting in uh, two minutes, but don't panic because you have 25 more minutes after that till 925 Pacific to get into the free roll with a full stack if, with late registration. But this is what was texted to me by Eric Benzamokin. I got this tonight, and I hadn't posted anything about the show or the free roll yet when he sent this to me. He said, I'm going to send $300 in. And then he goes on to talk about the first 200 of the 300. $100 to the main free roll pot. So it's a $100 free roll. $100 to whoever knocks out Bicharuski, <laughs> provided he's knocked out within the first 20 knockouts. If nobody can knock him out within the first 20 knockouts, then the 100 will go to next week's free roll. So that's one important detail I did not mention in the thread, but uh, I'm going to make this a requirement because this is what he wants. I've, somehow I, when I wrote the thread, I forgot to mention this. But uh, basically, however many people enter... The first 20 people to go out, one of them has to be Traderuski for that $100 bounty to exist. So, for example, if there's uh, 61 people entering, then he'd have to be out between 42nd and 61st place. Otherwise, knocking him out in 40th or above uh, wouldn't get the bounty. So you just have to look how many registrants there are, uh, especially once the registration closes at 925 and then figure out if you're going to get the bounty or not. And uh, if you knock him out before the registration period is over, then it's pretty certain you've got it because it's, uh, well, you can tell if there's 20 people busted, then you can see whether you got it or not. So those are the rules this week. But don't worry if the $100 doesn't get given away this week because he lasts past the bottom 20, then we'll, we'll just uh, roll it to next week. So don't worry about it. But uh, 200 is up for grabs tonight. 100 is going to be paid for sure. Other 100, depending on how Trader Ruski is going to do. He is going to be on the show tonight. Uh, someone who probably won't be on tonight, and we haven't had much of him recently. This has been my fault. When Calwatt, uh, I, I just, as I've mentioned before, I've got to text him earlier. Because if I don't text him earlier, then he doesn't, uh, he doesn't know when we're starting, and he kind of just falls asleep. Uh, if, if he has the motivation to know we're starting in such and such time, then then he can hold himself up, and once we get him on the show, then he tends to last for several hours. But tonight, uh, he did not respond to my text because uh, I sent it to him at 11.30 his time. So, uh, needless to say, I'm sure he was uh, catching Z's at that point and is sleeping as we speak. 
So unless he wakes up because his dog does something to jar him out of sleep, no Calwat this week, which is too bad because there's some subjects I wanted to hear his opinion on, and we're not going to get that this week. Maybe Brandon will join us if he has some time, maybe not, but we're definitely going to have Trader Ruski. I'm going to try to find him right now, and uh, then we will get going with our usual intro and give the agenda, and then get on with our content. This week, I'm going to try to do something that a lot of people have suggested, and I've been resisting simply because it's a pain in the ass. That's the only reason I've been resisting this. Trader Risky, hello. What's happening, Drop? So are you, you driving? Just, just walking the dog. Oh, walking the I'll dog. Okay, okay. So if, if you could please, uh, there's a little background noise from the outside. If you could mute it, please. That would be, while I give this uh, little speech, that'd be great. Yeah, I was muted at that. Okay, it, okay. It was muted just then, right? Yeah, but, yeah, just before, yeah. Okay. So anyway, here's what I'm going to do tonight that I've never done before. I'm actually going to note for myself when each main schedule topic starts and then list it in the show description. One complaint I've gotten about this show, and I understand the complaint. Like I, I can believe it because there are some people who don't have six hours or seven hours, whatever we take to finish the show, to dedicate to listening to the entire program. But then they'll go through the agenda and go, oh, you know, like I, I like three of these topics, but the rest of them I don't really want to hear about. So they, some people wish that they could just jump to the portions of the show which they're most interested in and listen there and then not listen to the rest unless they have more time. And I'd like to facilitate that. I'm not trying to make everybody listen to the entire show. And I've said before, well, I usually list in order of the topics we cover, so just jump around, you can find it. And and that's what I do. When I have to go back to an old show to hear an old clip, that's exactly what I do. And it, it doesn't take me that long to find the beginning of a segment. It takes a, you know, a few tries, but it, it's not that hard to do, but I can understand why you just like to have a point you can jump to and start listening to that topic. So I'm going to try to note these things down, and then I will put them in the description, and hopefully this won't be too much of a burden on me, and hopefully I'll remember to do it, because it's a new thing. So maybe that will improve the listenership to this show if people feel that they can just get to the topics they want not have to worry about the topics they don't want. But I, I prefer you guys listen to the whole thing. But I can understand why you don't, because it's a long show. The phone number to call is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston in Las Vegas. There's snow there right now. And it forwards to me wherever I go. That number is 702 702- 430-1808-702-430-1808, the Mount Charleston line, which sits in a cabin in Las Vegas. or Sorry, Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas, not in Las Vegas. I actually haven't figured out if Mount Charleston is Las Vegas. I, I've seen conflicting information on that. I've seen it where it actually is considered Las Vegas, even though it's quite far from there. It's 45 minutes away by car. I've also seen where it's uh, just considered a separate community. I know it's not an incorporated city, but I had always thought it was an incorporated or an unincorporated community of Clark County. But uh, 
some are saying it's considered Las Vegas. I know it's not Las Vegas City, but uh, but that it's considered like it's Las Vegas, which is kind of weird to me. Whatever it's considered, there's a, an old 70s rotary phone up there. If you want to text the show, it's the same number as the main phone number, 775-372-8355. You can text me anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and I will respond to you. And I may read your text on the air, unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to do so. 775-372-8355 is that number. The Call to Listen line is a lovely invention which allows you to listen to this show on a phone line. It does not require a computer. It does not require a smartphone. You don't, you don't need the internet. You don't need a data plan. If you have a data plan, it's not going to cost you any data. And if you have a bad cell phone signal, no problem. You can still listen to the show, and it will absolutely, positively, never, never, never buffer. No buffering. Unlike other internet streaming experiences, which are full of buffering, this never buffers because I hate buffering. And when I designed the call to listen line, I said, this will not buffer or it will not exist. It has been up now for two and a half years and has never once buffered. 712-775-8162 is that number. It's located in a shack in the small town of Carroll, Iowa. 712-775-8162 is the call to listen line. It's very simple. You call it and you listen. If we're not on the air live, you can also use the call to listen line to hear our streaming reruns. It just picks a show at random that we've done in the past and runs it in full, and then when it's over, it picks another one at random over and over and over again. You'll join a show in in progress, and it'll feel like you're listening live. It's weird when I call it, because I I hear my own voice talking back to me on the phone. It's very odd. You can also listen to that same content on the Poker for Alert radio tab near the top of the screen at PokerForAlert.com. You can also hear the streaming reruns on the TuneIn app. Speaking of which, we have archives, also known as the archives, where you can hear past shows. We archive every show except one recently where there was a little error but uh, we try to archive every show and it almost always works uh, you can find this in many places in iTunes Stitcher the aforementioned TuneIn app you can play it on Alexa if you have an Alexa device from Amazon there's two things you can do if you want to hear the current running show either the live show or the streaming reruns just say Alexa play Poker Fraud Alert Radio and it will play the show that's running either live or the streaming rerun. But if you want to hear the last episode that was archived, just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. So you say the same thing, but add podcast at the end, and it plays the last episode. And if you want to go to the second to last episode, you say, Alexa, next, and it'll jump to the second to last, Alexa, next, third to the last, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to go back forward, you say, Alexa, previous. It's kind of backwards, but that's the way they made it. So we're on Alexa, too. And we also have Google Play. It's another option to listen to the show. Many ways to listen to this show. Many, many ways. If there's something else that you want as far as uh, a listening option, let me know. Maybe I can provide it to you. I always want to expand that way. In fact, I've mentioned before, there are various opportunistic sites that have uh, basically stolen Poker Fraud Alert Radio. They've, they've downloaded the show. They offer it for downloading off their site. And I've given permission to none of them to do this, but several of them do. And then they have various ads to click on the side and affiliate signups, blah, blah, blah. Well, 
I don't encourage you click on any of their ads or affiliate signups because they don't deserve it. They're stealing my content. But I'm not even doing anything about it because I, I so much want this show to be available to as many listeners as possible that I know these sites do have some reach. So at this point, I said, okay, fine. Uh, I didn't give them permission. I don't like that they're making money off my content, but all right. If, if they're bringing in some listeners, I'm at least not actively going to do anything about it. I'm just going to leave it alone for now. This is not me giving permission to do it. This is something which I can revoke any time and say, I don't like it, stop it. But at the moment, I'm choosing not to do anything about it because I, I want more listeners that, that much. It, it makes me happier when we get new listeners to the show. And uh, the more ways to find it, the better. I sometimes feel like if we just had ways for more people to know this show existed, it would be a lot bigger. Because, there's, yes, there's a, a certain group of people who will listen to the show and decide it's not for them, or ones who kind of like it but don't really have, feel the push to go listen again. But there's the, a certain percentage of people that will hear it and say, oh, wow, this is a show I really like. Like Eric Benzamokin, for example. He didn't know we existed until a few months ago. And thanks to Adam Schwartz mentioning the show on the 2 Plus 2 PokerCast, which uh, Eric listens to, he, he tried this show, and he loved it. So if, if Adam hadn't said that, Eric would not be here listening to the show. Someone who really likes the show, really appreciates the show, just would not know about it. So I always wonder how many other people in poker uh, would be frequent, avid listeners, big fans of the show, if they knew about it. And that's that's something that uh, you know I've tried in recent times to find ways to get the word out because I think that's the most important. If you listen to the show and you hate it and don't come back, okay, fine. Then I failed you. Then I I just don't appeal to you, and that's fine. But if you if you just if you would love the show and you just don't know about it, that's what kind of makes me sad. The free rail started 11 minutes ago. You can chat in the chat room during the live program. You need a flash-enabled device, and you need a form account which is valid and in good standing. If you have not signed up for the forum yet, you really should. Even if you don't intend to post, you should sign up for the forum. Go to PokerFrawler.com. It'll take you right to the forum. Just register. It'll take sometimes a few days to get validated. And once you're validated, you'll be in good standing until unless you do something bad. So uh, Some contests are related to the date you registered and when you're in good standing and all that stuff. So, you really should register, and I encourage you to post. Even if you don't want to post in the Flying Stupidity segment, because it can be kind of rough, uh, post in the other forums, Scam Scandals and Shadiness and Poker Community Discussion, Casinos in Las Vegas. Those parts of the forum, I make sure there's no trolling, and I make sure that it's a, a place where everybody can participate without uh, feeling bad. I, I want it open to everybody, even ones who are not used to forum trolling. So those those I keep uh, pretty strictly moderated. Of trolling, that is. I, I, I will always let you state your opinion. I'm not going to censor any opinions or or bad things said out there about uh, poker sites or other people in poker have screwed you or, or casinos. I mean, you can speak your mind to your heart's content. I'm just talking about trolling. Those areas I don't allow trolling. So I want to get to the agenda here. Uh, again, thank you to Eric Bensamokin for the money you sent for this week's free roll. And uh, Trader Ruski, uh, you please let me know if you notice that uh, registration is closed 
and you've survived uh, 20 bust-outs. So if the, if the bottom 20 are already out, please let me know so everybody knows that uh, the ability to knock you out and get money has gone away. I sure will. I'm getting it right now. Okay. So we have a, a number of topics this week, but one of them we're going to talk about has only a little bit to do with poker. Some people may think it has nothing to do with poker, but that's incorrect. It has something to do with poker, but that's not the main reason we're talking about it. That's going to be the Facebook topic. I'm sure you've all heard about Facebook in the news recently. But I have some very strong opinions about this. I have a a lot of history with Facebook, and I have mixed feelings about Facebook, which I'll tell you when we get to that segment. But I think it's a very, very interesting situation. and In fact, it's something I've talked about for years, but people have dismissed me and said... Eh, I don't know, you may be right, but no big deal. But it's becoming a big deal now. So here's our agenda tonight. The owners of the Diamond Spade Club, Elaine Vogel and Carl Pion, I think is how you pronounce his name, I don't know. Uh, They've come forward. They've fired back. They've both communicated with me privately. And they have both provided me with statements to make to the Poker Fraud Alert listeners and readers of the forum. So I'm going to read them out here. And they also are accusing last week's whistleblower, Johnny Ferrari, who we had on the show, of harassment and stalking. As I've said before, this show is neutral. This really is one of the few forms of unbiased poker media you're going to find anywhere in the world. Because you'll see, you know, what ads do we run? Yeah, we'll run Eric Benzamokin's ads sometimes. Really, what, what ads do we run here? What, what bias would I have? None. I, I really just want the truth in all these situations. Whether it's a truth that uh, I like or dislike. Whether the truth ends up being equivalent to my first assumption or if I end up being wrong. I want the truth to be out there. So I always say, if you're accused of something... On this show, please come to me and clarify if you've been falsely accused. And I will give you equal time. In fact, you don't even have to come on personally. I will read your statements out here. And that's what I'm going to do. So that we're gonna, that'll be our first topic. Second topic, uh, another revisited topic about the ARIA private games. That controversy is heating up on Twitter. And many well-known pros are now raising issue, including Doug Polk. A lot of people are very angry at the ARIA and the way the games are run, and I'm thinking that perhaps some changes might be coming soon. Hopefully this doesn't die. Hopefully it keeps being pressed, and I will help press it, because I think this is something pretty bad. Even though it doesn't affect most people, I think this is something that is wrong. PayPal is another company I have mixed feelings about, mostly bad, to be honest. They're making various obnoxious changes in April of 2018. I'll tell you what those are and how it will affect this show might also affect you. Facebook. We're going to talk about Facebook and their data breach and their handling of private information and that whole controversy that's going on. Is it as bad as it appears? Is it being overblown or it might even be worse than it appears? I will tell you my take on it. I I consider myself somewhat of a Facebook expert because I've been very interested in 
how the site operates and, and the whole privacy aspect. Because as you guys know, I always talk about being in a secret location. I actually am a private person. I put out public stories about myself. You know, I'll be public as far as my name, my picture, my poker results, my uh, yeah, yeah. You'll even know where you can find me sometimes. Um, yeah, things like that. I, I'm not hiding from everybody, but at the same time, there's a, a lot of private information that I'd like to keep private. And this is just from my history of being part of this uh, computer world dating all the way back to the 1980s when I was part of the phone and computer hacker community when I was a teenager. And that's when I learned about the importance of keeping personal information private and what can be done with it, how harmful it can be when used against you. I knew this decades before most others knew it just because I experienced it in the 80s. And now, of course, it's much, much more relevant than back in the 80s. But uh, I've always felt that Facebook was a huge privacy violator. And now it's uh, the chickens are coming home to roost with that one. So we're going to talk all about the Facebook issue. Daniel Negreanu having another slap fight on social media, this time with Matt Savage, who is uh, at least used to be a friend of his. This is regarding the big blind anti issue. And I'm going to give you my opinion on the big blind anti issue. And I'll tell you whose side I'm on. And in case this sounds boring... It's actually, I think it's kind of interesting. Even if you don't play tournament poker, even if this is something that you think you probably won't ever have to deal with, which you might if you play any tournaments, because this seems to be like the the wave of the future, at least of the near future, that a lot of tournaments are going this way. So I think it's important you hear about it if you play any tournaments. But even if you don't, I think the issue is interesting. And I'll try not to let it drag on too long. WSOP.com Nevada sent me an ominous warning, an automated one. It wasn't sent to me by anyone personally, but uh, they're going to be charging me $4.99 a month to be on their site after a year passes that I have been inactive. I have not used my account in nine months. And if three more months pass and I don't use my account on WSOP.com Nevada, they're going to start deducting $4.99 a month out of my balance until it goes to zero. I will tell you... uh, How I feel about that, I think you can already guess, and uh, why I feel this should be illegal. High Stakes Pro Ali Fazelli, or actually, sorry, Ali Ali Fazelli, yeah, Fazelli, I I thought it was Fazil for a second, accused of wire fraud. He's accused of wire fraud in a, what's apparently a $6 million ticket resale scheme. I actually dabbled in the area of ticket reselling. Not a $6 million area of ticket reselling, but uh, I did dabble in that. Kind of decided it was a pain in the ass and didn't want to continue. But uh, poker pros are not known for their shrewd investment. They're not, you know, they get pitched investment opportunities and uh, by, by someone who's a slick talker. And a plan that sounds good on the surface, and then they just hand money without it really thinking about it too much or researching it too much. That's what apparently happened. And I'll tell you what happened to the money that was handed to Ali Fazeli, allegedly. Usually I agree with things that Doug Polk posts. Uh, you know, as far as Doug Polk himself, I have a mostly positive opinion. Uh, I do sometimes think he's, he has a little bit growing up to do still. Uh, I sometimes think that uh, he creates 
needless drama at times or overblows drama. And this is from someone who has a poker radio show that is mostly drama. But for the most part, I I think pretty highly of him. And uh, I do find that when he raises an issue on his YouTube channel or in his posts, that he's correct. There's, there's not many times they say, hey, Doug is completely wrong here. There's a, usually I agree or mostly agree with him. But he did something odd. He started a strange poll asking who is the worst high-stakes tournament player. It seems kind of inappropriate to me. So we'll uh, talk about that. Station Casinos, they have ended their special Bad Beat Jackpot promotion that uh, basically is a cooperative between their various casinos. It seems like they did this out of bitterness after losing that Nevada gaming ruling about a Bad Beat Jackpot that they tried to cheat people out of. So we'll talk about the ongoing Station Casinos Bad Beat Jackpot uh, saga and what really is a case of cutting off your nose to spite your face. I've never understood why they fought this so hard. I've never seen a casino fight something so hard, have so much bad PR over something so meaningless to them, to the people who were on the other side. It was actually very meaningful, but to them, so meaningless, and they uh, they just dug their heels in. Very strange. I bet you have not heard of crypto poker site Coin Poker. I'm not talking about Bitcoin. I'm not talking about the seals of clubs. I'm talking about Coin Poker. You heard of it? Probably not, but Coin Poker does exist. And it has been exposed to have bots there that are playing all day and all night. And I will tell you the reason those bots are there and why it is so bad. This was uh, outed by uh, a poker journalist and – who is it? Uh, I think it was Alex Weldon who did this. Interesting story, though. So even though you probably don't know much or care much about coin poker itself, it's an interesting saga – and I will tell you all about it. A Donald Trump assistant was fired over an online gambling problem. I'll tell you about that and why Trump fired him, why the online gambling was a problem to Trump. And, you know, does this mean that he's going to be going against online gambling? I'll let you know that. Finally, West Virginia has legalized sports betting. Sort of. It's legal, but it's actually, at the moment, illegal. I'll explain that when we get to our final segment of the night. That is our agenda on this fine evening. This is the first day of spring, to my knowledge. Someone was saying it was yesterday. I think it's today. Let's see. Was it yesterday or today? It was yesterday. Okay. I never knew that spring could begin on March 20th. You thought it was the 21st, no? Yeah, that's what I thought. It said, no, it says uh, March 20th. See, uh, okay, I see. Let's see. People Magazine, actually, of all things, has an online article about this. I was so surprised. People were saying something about, you know, first day of spring. Yesterday, I'm hearing this. I'm going, no, it's not. I go, Do I have the date wrong? No, no, it's March 20th. Then the, I'm like, no, no, it's got to be tomorrow, March 21st. But no, it was March 20th. So here's what it says. It may not feel like it in many parts of the country, but the first day of spring is finally here. The official start of the season, also known as the spring equinox or vernal equinox, is Tuesday, March 20th at 12.15 p.m. The event, which always falls on either March 20th or 21st, marks one of the, the two days each year that night and day are almost exactly equal in length. Uh, of course, the other one being uh, the autumnal equinox on September 22nd. So, I guess this doesn't really explain why it's early, though. It's just saying it's always one of two days. 
I don't know. I'm, I don't want to read this whole thing right now. But apparently spring was yesterday. I never do that. My whole life I thought it was March 21st. So it's the second day of spring. Los Angeles is actually getting a lot of rain in the month of March, including uh, earlier today, after a, a really, really, really dry, almost full year that passed. Where uh, from March 1st last year to pretty much the end of February of this year, there was almost no rain falling in L.A. I mean, almost not. I think like less than an inch total. I'm sorry, it was wasn't less. It was like less than three inches total. But for an entire year, that's, that's pretty bad. So uh, now there's a ton of rain in in February of 2017, in March 2017. But March just or sorry, January 2017. March just just about nothing last year, and uh, this year the traditionally wet months in Los Angeles: November, December, January, February, just about nothing. Then March gets the rain, so it's good. LA needs it, and when LA gets rain, then it, not just like a little shower, but like when they get uh, several storms in a short period of time, then for a, a brief moment, the city gets to look green. You see what LA could look like if it rained year-round, which it doesn't. Uh, LA has no rain for about six months, usually per year, sometimes more. Usually between April and October, mid-April to mid-October, there's no rain at all, not even one drop. So, and when I say usually, I mean you may have little little bits here and there, but really no appreciable rain, and sometimes no rain at all in those six months. So everything gets very, very dry, very, very brown. And some people who don't know L.A. don't know that. Even Las Vegas gets more rain in that period than L.A. does. L.A. just does not get rain from mid-spring to mid-fall. So... Uh, when there is rain in the winter, usually, then things get green. And all of a sudden, some of these very ugly-looking brown hills start to look like you're in Ireland, especially if it's a heavy rain year, by L.A. standards. So this happened last year, and I flew my drone out and took footage of it. But this year, nothing. This year is uh, so little rain that it, it kind of still looks like summer. But I, I see the green starting to come out. So, so maybe for a short time, the, the hills can look beautiful around here. So, okay, let's let's get going. Free roll, too late if you're not in. If you're not registered, it's all done. 9.27 right now is the time. So I want to give an update on the Diamond Spade Club situation. We did a big segment about this last week. I threw it together at the last minute because someone named Johnny Ferrari went on the Real Grinders group. This is the Facebook group that is run by Raymond Davis. It's very popular. He went on there and said that he thinks this is a scam and said, stated why. And we had Johnny Ferrari on our show. We had some issues reaching him. In fact, I'm going to confess something now. I'm going to confess something now. If you heard the show in the archives last week, if you did not hear it live and you listened to the archives, there are parts of the show that were broadcast live that are not in the show that's in the archives intentionally and there were parts of the show that seemed to be recorded live but were actually recorded after the fact after the whole show was already over it was one of my few edited shows i rarely edit poker fraud alert radio i rarely go back and edit it as soon as it's done i usually go and just post it up there as is fail and all 
We always have some fail. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, but whatever it is, we just throw it up there. Last week, I thought it was so frustrating for the listener, all the phone problems we had. And I, it wasn't our phone problems. It was trying to reach Johnny Ferrari at the various numbers he gave and the bad reception he had. And At first, it was kind of funny. Then it got annoying. So I edited a large part of that out. We didn't lose any like real content. Believe me, the stuff I edited out, you didn't want to hear. It was just like frustration trying to call phones and getting bad reception and trying again. It, it didn't even make entertaining radio after the first like two minutes. So I left a little of the fail in just to keep the flavor there and then edited the rest of the fail out, which wasn't easy because a lot of it was kind of interspersed within the segment. But the problem with editing like that is sometimes you end up having to, by editing like that, what's still there doesn't make any sense. There's no context for it or something was said beforehand that's being responded to that wasn't there anymore. So I had to actually go re-record a few small snippets that were like a minute long, 30 seconds long, and place them in there, but pretend like I was talking at the time, even though I had done this like five hours prior. So I'm like, Trader Ruski, I even talked to you on delay. I was asking you questions or making statements to you that you were answering five hours after the fact. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, I did that. And I'm actually pretty good at that. I'm actually pretty good at the sound editing. So when I do that, it, it's actually quite hard to tell what was edited and what wasn't. And then before I posted the show, I said, you know what? I remember a few other things in the show that I didn't like the way they came out. Like the, the very, very beginning when I came out of the song, I didn't think sounded good. I, I kind of stumbled. I, it's, uh, I got confused about something. And again, not in an entertaining way. So I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to re-record that too. So I re-recorded the opening song and coming out of it and uh, kind of linked it up with what I said after that. And if you listened, you wouldn't be able to tell. In fact, there is what appears to be an edit, but it's actually not. There's a point where it seems like kind of a hesitation. It's kind of a a jump right at the beginning, but it wasn't. That was actually a live thing. Uh, the the edit, you couldn't even tell. The part where I, I plugged it in there, it looks like it, it's, it's seamless. It sounds like it was all done at the same time. Then I edited uh, a few minutes of another segment there. Okay, now, none of this was edited for content. I didn't remove something that embarrassed me or people weren't supposed to hear. It was all to make the show sound better. I guarantee you. So... In fact, if I did it to hide something, I wouldn't be telling you. And most of you probably wouldn't know, because you either listen live and probably didn't go back to listen again, or you listen in the archives and it didn't sound like it was edited, so you didn't know. But I just want to be honest here. I I edited the last show. Uh, I ended up cutting about half an hour and adding about five minutes back. So it ended up like 25 minutes shorter than it was live, and... Five new minutes, 30 minutes cut out. So the reason I'm mentioning this now is because Johnny Ferrari, he was kind of the catalyst of the whole thing. It was his phone. It wasn't his fault. What happened was uh, he was on like a Wi-Fi phone, and the hotel he was at had poor Wi-Fi, so it was very, very choppy. And look, I'm a, a listener to the radio, too. And I know I hate when the sound quality is poor, when you can't understand people, when there's a cell phone caller who's cutting in and out. It's very tilting to listen to. So I don't want to subject the listeners to things I don't like. And that's why uh, we finally had to give up on talking to him. But he got out most of what he wanted to say. Anyway, 
to recap, though, the, the situation with Diamond Spade Club, and we're not going to have a whole discussion again about what it is and the, the criticisms of it, because that was if you want to hear that, go listen to last week's show. But I want to summarize it in case you forgot or need a refresher. So this is what Johnny Ferrari posted exactly a week ago on March 14, 2018 on Facebook on the Real Grinders group. He said, true scammers caught red-handed, Diamond Spade Club, Elaine Vogel, Carl Peon. Okay, guys, I know everyone's aware of the poker criminal Carl Peon who ripped off many poker players, a ten who, over 10 who reached out to me. But don't forget the rat-faced scum that keeps saying... Uh, DM me of problem with Carl, Elaine Vogel, and his scam company, Diamond Spade. It's going to fall anyway. It's going to fail anyway. Common Sense 101, if Elaine Vogel was successful or legitimate in any way, he would not have been having con men seek investors for a concept that everyone is to prepay $10,000 for a fake membership for fake events that will never happen. Even with misusing the images of two pros on his scam page... He has a mere 44 likes. No one here is stupid enough to fall for his nor Carl Peon's scams farther. But if anyone asks about Diamond Spade scams, send them to me and I'll turn the 12 to 14 victims already out of pocket. He tried to talk shit about me today to Gavin Smith, and Gavin told him point blank that his business model is retarded. RIP con men schemes. That's what Johnny Ferrari wrote. So we had him on the show to talk about this. And I, I looked up Diamond Spade Club, and it appeared to be some kind of company that wasn't really fully formed yet, but it seemed to be something that was intending to be a VIP club for rich poker players that would have events and stuff like that. It did have the images of Patrick Antonius and Daniel Cates on their page, uh, listed as ambassadors. So... It's not clear whether or not those two really are ambassadors, but they were listed there that way. So I I could kind of see the potential scamminess of this. I didn't have any proof there was a scam, but I I could see where this could definitely be going that way. So we talked about it last week, and we had Johnny Ferrari on. Now, of course, the first question I was going to ask Johnny Ferrari is, what about that name? Is your name really Johnny Ferrari? Because that's, uh, that's kind of an unusual name. It sounds like an alias. It sounds like uh, a screen name, Johnny Ferrari. So he said very clearly on the show a few times that his real name is Jonathan Ferrari. And he told us the reason they started calling him Johnny, which isn't really important. But he, he was insisting John, Jonathan or Johnny Ferrari, that's his real legal name. So I said, okay, sometimes that happens. Like, you know, who would believe that Chris Moneymaker's name is that? when he was a moneymaker in poker who kicked off the whole boom. I mean, that totally sounds like a fake name, but it was real. His real name was Chris Moneymaker. He was born with that name, and uh, it actually wasn't for the reason you would think. The name Moneymaker wasn't about actually making money as in earning it. It was about physically making money because his ancestors were uh, – that, that was their profession when they came to the United States from Europe, and the, a lot of people would take on last names that had to do with their profession. So I don't know if they were goldsmiths or whatever, but but uh, that, that's where the moneymaker name came from. But uh, when I first ha- heard that name, I said, come on, the, the high-profile first uh, televised uh, with whole cards main event winner is, is Chris Moneymaker? Come on, that couldn't be real. But it was. So anyway, I, I, for that reason, I, I kind of believe that Johnny Ferrari was his real name, but now I believe that is not his real name, and there have come out some things about Johnny Ferrari 
that are not very flattering either. Not really about scamming, but about, uh, number one, that's not his name, and number two, he got himself in some hot water, apparently, in Cambodia, which he talked about on the show. He, he didn't talk about a problem in Cambodia, but he talked about how he was there. So he definitely was in Cambodia. But uh, So I, in the interest of giving equal time to those being accused of scamming, here are the statements from Elaine Vogel, and then I'll, I'll give the statement from Carl Pion, and I'll give you my responses and reactions to these statements. And then we'll talk about Johnny Ferrari and some questionable things about him. Here's what Elaine Vogel said. And th- by the way, this is something he sent to me to be publicly posted. I'm not. Uh, we, we had a private conversation. And when I have private conversations with people, uh, yeah, it would be entertaining if I posted their entire conversation with me, but that's that's not trustworthy to do. If if I have a private conversation with someone, um, I'm not going to post it, except in a few circumstances where I feel it's warranted, such as if the person was completely dishonest with me or, uh, yeah, other stuff like that. So, like, like, I did post a while later a correspondence I had with uh, Eric Lynch from Lock Poker, but I did this because uh, he only contacted me in the first place because he was afraid that uh, someone was pretty good at running a bluff that it was about to like all come down on anyone associated with it. So then that scared all the lock poker conspirators out of the woodwork. And they all came out trying to act like they wanted to cooperate. And then once they realized that uh, the person was exaggerating, that everyone's going to get in trouble, then they all slinked back away. So that's what Eric Lynch did, and I didn't appreciate that. And I felt he was very complicit in the whole scam, so I, I ended up posting his email. But that's unusual. I usually, if people contact me and we talk back and forth, I will hold back whatever they say to me and only post publicly what they say I can post because I, I want people to feel com- comfortable contacting me. Now, if you want to contact me in live, don't do it because if that is the only thing that, that may bring me out to post your, your private statements publicly. If you contact me in lie, and I know you're lying. But if you want to contact me and tell the truth, uh, even if I disagree with you or I don't like you, I still, if I, if you, we have a private conversation, I'll keep it private. But this is a public statement that Elaine Vogel wanted me to post, and I did. Over the past week or so, my company, Carl Pion, and myself, Elaine Vogel, CEO of Diamond Spade Club, have been the targets of a very serious and malicious social media attack initiated by Mark McClay, a.k.a. Johnny Ferrari. Now, I have to say that Mark McClay does not sound very much like Johnny Ferrari. <laughs> That's, that's not a very similar name. I don't know how you leap from one to the other. So uh, he goes on to write: We are very, we extremely, we are extremely dumbfounded as to what set off such an attack that was hate-filled and full of unsubstantiated, slanderous, defamatory, and completely unfounded statements that included constant harassment of poker professionals. That included Gavin Smith, Antonio Esfandiari, and Phil Locke. Now let me stop there. That's interesting because they're both they're both uh, name dropping Gavin Smith. Which is kind of funny. First, Johnny Ferrari claims that uh, Elaine was trying to talk trash to him, to Gavin Smith, and Gavin Smith wasn't having it. And now Elaine is claiming that uh, Gavin Smith was uh, actually being harassed by Johnny. I don't know which is true. I can't really ask Gavin because Gavin doesn't like me. We, we don't have a, uh, a cordial relationship, so to speak. It is apparent that Mark McClay's claims were intended to severely damage the reputations of myself, Carl, and our Diamond Spade brand. But unfortunately, those claims have been fully refuted. 
by Gavin and Antonio. I don't know why he's in for- I, That's why I paused. Unfortunately, these claims have been refuted. Would, would he be happy they were refuted? I, I think he meant fortunately. Uh, by Gavin and Antonio, giving us full comfort and satisfaction that we have acted professionally and cordially at, to- at all times. What I can say is this. Due to the incredulous actions taken by Mark McClay, which included the posting of Carl's home address, and more importantly, the constant utterings of death threats sent to me personally by Mark by, by way of numerous audio files, we were forced to take appropriate action involving law enforcement, who have now made official contact with Mark regarding this matter. In final, I would like to clarify, which can be easily verified via a background check, that neither Carl nor myself have a criminal record, and that the business model of Diamond Spade Club is founded on transparency and trust, so much that our model is structured where all membership fees and or player funds are placed directly with a third-party legally registered fiduciary. We recognize that the personal attack has possibly caused tremendous damage to our reputations and our brand, and that, and that we will have some work ahead of us to repair the damage as we get set to launch our, gl- our brand globally. But rest assured that we will continue to vigorously defend our reputations and our brand against any and all unsubstantiated, slanderous, defamatory, and unfounded claims in the future. Thank you for your support. Now, some people read this as like maybe some kind of threat to me on Poker Fraud Alert for, for covering this, but it wasn't. The, the uh, I talked with Elaine, and that was never part of it. This, this is all aimed at uh, Johnny Ferrari, whose name might be and probably is really Mark McClay. So first of all, I'm a little bit annoyed that Johnny Ferrari didn't just say, no, that's not my real name. I would have been okay if he said, this is not my real name, but I don't want to give it. I, I would have been okay with that. I would have been okay if he said, look, I'm exposing a scam. Uh, you know, I, you know, People might harass me. I don't want that out there. Fine, but just be honest about it. Now, it's possible maybe he changed his name legally to Johnny Ferrari, but he he was really saying that his the way it really sounded. And Trader Risky, you were on the on the call too. It really sounded like he was just born Johnny Ferrari and that or Jonathan Ferrari and just changed it to Johnny. Isn't that what you got from it? Definitely. So when we start out and with by a, the way, FN Donkey got the bounty. Oh, you, you're out in the top twenty. Okay, FN Donkey, yeah. congratulations. I I know FN Donkey. I haven't seen him in a while, but uh, I've met him before, and uh, he's a nice guy. I, I've, I've met with him in Vegas. He, I think he's from the Oklahoma area, but uh, very nice guy. Glad, glad he won. So congratulations, F and Donkey. So when you start out with a lie that already kind of hurts your credibility, even if it's kind of a dumb lie, I don't think his name here is that important. But when you start out not being honest about it, that that does take away the trustworthiness of your claims. So that's why that's why when you make claims you've always got to be careful to tell the truth. Because once even one lie is found and proven, then you're gonna have a hard time making people believe the rest of your story, even if it's true. Uh I, I once dealt with this on, on uh two plus two. There was a woman who came on and talked about how full tilt accused her unjustly of botting and also accused her boyfriend unjustly of botting and confiscated all of their money, like 80K worth. And it came out very quickly that people had long suspected that her boyfriend was really her, that uh, she was just using his account and that uh, she was multi-accounting to get action from people heads up that would not play her anymore. So people were very pissed about this. Now, instead of, of just owning up to it, or at least uh, trying to uh, avoid mentioning it, she, she was denying it. Denying that uh, she was using the boyfriend's account. Well, she clearly was. 
And the problem was uh, everyone turned on her at that point. But prior to that, everyone was was on her side because Full Tilt was trying to respond and looking very bad. They were. It, it looked like that that crazy Mike of all people. He re, he reported to Full Tilt that she was a bot, and they just believed him. He, he was always uh, accusing accounts of being bots. Sometimes he was right, and sometimes he he had uh, false positives. I think this one was a false positive, but they were believing him. They gave him some kind of credibility for really no good reason, and they banned her account. And in the process of investigating, found that she had a second account that she was using, and they banned that too. So she, uh, I believe she was innocent of the botting violation. I do think she was multi-accounting. She, was, she never had them both at the table at the same time, uh, or, nor was she playing tournaments with them at the same time, but uh, she was like a heads-up cash player. But she was multi-accounting. So instead of just saying, okay, I multi-accounted, or, or at least you know, not directly saying it to hurt her case at full tilt, but uh, making it clear that's the case, uh, she tried to deny that too, and enough very credible people came out and insisted that this really was the same person. And uh, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to not have realized that. So the entire thread turned on her. Everybody in the thread turned on her, and uh, I, I actually tried to convince people, hey, let, let's put the, yes, she lied and that's crappy, but I, I actually believe the rest of her story. Let, let's look at how Full Tilt's been responding to this so far. Uh, I really think this is a ban for botting that wasn't good, and we got to be concer- concerned that this is happening. So let's focus on that. But no one wanted to listen at that point. Everybody tuned her out because she lied about the multi-accounting. And I, I actually later met with her in person, and I told her that. I said, you made a mistake. So I think kind of the same thing happened here with Johnny Ferrari, a.k.a. Mark McClay. I think uh, for whatever reason, he didn't want to tell the truth about his real name, and uh, and now this already takes away some credibility. However, just like the case with the multi-accounting I just explained, I will not completely discount his claims for a few reasons. Number one, others came forward and claimed that they had been victimized by Carl Pian. Number two, uh, his claim seemed kind of, uh, it seems to make sense. This thing did kind of have a scammy look to it on the surface. So I said, okay, uh, Johnny Ferrari may not be as honest as I first thought, but let's still look into his claims. Sometimes people who tell lies can also tell the truth. So this is what I said back to Elaine Vogel. I wanted to give him a chance, though. Elaine Vogel, I'm the owner of Poker Fraud Alert, the site that had the write-up of both Johnny Ferrari's claims as well as the uh, as well as the radio show in which he appeared last night. Please understand, I do not know you, I do not know Carl, I do not know Johnny. In fact, I did not know any of you existed until 30 hours ago. My site exists to exp- uh, expose the truth about scams, shady companies, shady individuals, and fraudulent schemes. However, at the same time, I believe in equal time and believe in giving everyone the right to defend themselves. You are welcome to appear on our radio show next week, meaning this show, to give your side of the story. I have already posted your your above statement on our site. In the meantime, I would like to ask you the following questions. Number one, do you believe that Carl Peon has scammed anyone in the past 10 years? If you don't, how do you explain the the multiple accusations uh, that are on the Real Grinders group? Number two. Diamond Spade Club has its office listed in the 1221 Brickell Avenue building of downtown Miami. I, I, th- I think I'm mispronouncing that, too. I think someone corrected me. It's not Brickell, but I'm just going to call it Brickell anyway. Uh, however, it appears to simply be a virtual office and mail stop. Does Diamond Spade Club have an actual office to itself in Miami or anywhere else? Number three, does Diamond Spade Club have any paying clients yet? If so, how many? Number four, would you be willing to prove Diamond Spade Club's liquidity to an independent auditor or a third party? Number five, have you, solicited, invested, have you solicited investors to Diamond Spade Club yet? 
If so, would you be willing to share the sales pitch you have used to get these investors? And number six, are there any events planned for Diamond Spade Club which can be independently verified with the venues? We've dealt with that before with, with scams where they would uh, be talking about some tournament or some party that was taking place in the future and would name some hotel, but then when you'd call the hotel, they would know nothing about it. So that's where I was going with that last question. So here's what Elaine said in regards to whether he believes that Carl Piana scammed anyone in the past 10 years. He says, I can't confirm or refute those accusations as I have no, no evidence about it. But I've talked to Andy, one of the people who accused him, uh, he called last week on the show, and a few others who had the same story about a high-risk financial business that went bad. Most of them told me the exact same thing. They do not care about having lost some money, but are angry because of Carl's lack of transparency and not showing his good faith. Carl also gave me his side of the story that makes sense, and I, I proposed to the ex-partners to discuss it with Carl and straighten things up as much as I could as I'm neutral in this story. Now, let me stop right here. That, you're not neutral in this story. I, I don't like that answer because when you're in business with him saying, hey, join my Diamond Spade Club or invest in my Diamond Spade Club, if Carl is part of it, they have to trust Carl as much as you. So once you're in business with him, then it is your business. Then, then you do have to clear this up. You're no longer neutral at that point. At that point, you've really got to get to the bottom of it. And if it turns out Carl was a scammer, you've got to get rid of him. So at that point, you're kind of forcing, you kind of married yourself to him. Number two, Diamond Spade Club has uh, the thing about the office. I'm not going to read my question again. Uh, He says, true. I'm not a resident of the U.S. And as most businesses do, I have an address in the U.S. as stated by law. So he's admitting it's a fake office. Okay. (laughs) Mystery solved. Uh, regarding do they have any paying clients yet? He says, no, we're launching the company and it seems our business model wasn't f- fully adopt- adapted. Uh, we are not willing to go on market until we are clear about how we run our business. So it's, it seems like uh, he's saying here that uh, they're still kind of figuring some things out. So they don't have any clients yet. They've decided not to take any clients until they know what they're fully doing with this. Number four, will you be willing to prove about the liquidity? He says, any time if needed, all financial side of Diamond Spade is handled by a business lawyer in Europe. I would like to add up that we are not handling any reservation fee buy-in or else. We rely on a third party for that. So he's saying that they're going to have a third party holding any funds, which if there are funds to be held, I would check on that third party. Anyone can say, oh, a third party, a responsible third party is holding it. It may not be true. Or the person holding it or the entity holding it may not be trustworthy itself. So you should always check on whatever's holding it and make sure the money's really there. And there's a way for you to verify it. Number five, about investors. Have they solicited any investors? He said, we've discussed it with a few people, but we are not looking for investors at this moment. If an opportunity arises, I will certainly look into it, but I'm not in a hurry. So he, he's refuting what Johnny Ferrari claims. He claims he's not looking for investors at all. Uh, as far as events being planned, he said, I've suspended our scheduled events. It doesn't make sense to go on the market if we're not ready. And then I, I threw in a, another question after that. Number seven, would you please let us know why Johnny Ferrari is saying these things about you and Carl and your company? He said, Johnny had an argument with Carl. It seems like Carl asked him to leave his place. It seems like Johnny was disrespecting Carl, his wife and family using street language. Street language. After that, I made my investigation about Carl and also Johnny. I'm not a jury, and I, and I wanted to know all sides of the story. As I didn't comply on Johnny's request to fire Carl, he started to harass me with long WhatsApp. That's a an app like a social media app uh, a long whatsapp conversation and directly threatened me of death and kidnapping by sending me audio files by the way he, this is english is not his first language that's why some of this sounds awkward 
All the discussion and audio are available on request, but I think to make it public isn't the way to go. So I, I did get some things, uh, but I, I can't play them. So Anyway, th- those are his answers. So what do I think here? Well, first of all, it's, if this is true, it's good that he has not taken any money from anyone or uh, solicited any money. If this is true, if he hasn't asked for investors, if he has uh, not taken any money from any clients, if they're still kind of figuring out what they're going to do with it, okay, then at least no scam has occurred yet. Because if, if no money has changed hands, there's no scam. Uh, I would still be interested to see under what circumstances they take money and what's planned to do with it and, and all that, but Elaine claims that it has not happened yet. So if there's no money that has changed hands, and no one has come forward and said that they paid for this or invested in this, so it is very possible he's telling the truth. However, as far as Carl Peon goes, it's not quite as clear. And by the way, I also did not get any information from anyone that Elaine Vogel scammed anyone personally. And in fact, even Johnny Ferrari didn't say that, that uh, Elaine has ever scammed anyone. So I'm thinking Elaine Vogel is pretty clean. I I don't know him. I can't say for sure. Uh, But he does not have the real profile of a scammer. He does kind of have the profile of a huckster, someone that wants to pitch crazy business ideas and hope you go along with it, but I wasn't really getting the scammer from him, and there's there's not one person that's come forward that claims that he's scammed them. So he probably hasn't. I think this is more about Carl at this point, and whether you know what Elaine is doing about it. A poker player named Matt Grisham claimed on Real Grinders that Carl Peon scammed him out of two thousand dollars. He said Carl is a fraud, plain and simple. He robbed me of two thousand dollars. He knows it. Carl Peon is a piece of shit. And so are you for being associated with him. That's Elaine, he's writing this. I've blasted him publicly plenty of times. He's a scared little bitch. So a number of other people have come out against Carl. Now, I'm going to give you Carl's statement, and then I'll tell you what people have said in response to this. Because, again, Carl, he sent me a lot of things to look at, and I said, well, what can I post publicly? So he gave me this statement to post publicly. And then I'm going to tell you what people have already said in response to me both publicly and privately about Carl's statement and that's kind of where we are right now he wrote as a former business owner of two successful uniform companies in Ontario where we manufactured and delivered apparel to the majority of law enforcement security, fire, and paramedic and transit services across the country, I like millions of others became infatuated by the game of poker being a member of the poker community since 2004, I, as an entrepreneur, naturally wanted to seek out opportunities that would or could be beneficial or of value to the community at large. Over the past 10 years, I have mo- most certainly presented ideas and concepts to many players in the industry, including those of high profile. Other than Global Poker Link, which I founded and exited in 2015, was renamed Stake Kings with a new ownership, I've never at any time gotten to a point where a concept is close to launching as Diamond Spade Club. By the way, Global Poker Link has nothing to do with Global Poker or the Global Poker League or Index. It's a different company. And let it be known that the Diamond Spade Club concept, which is majority owned by the founder, Elaine Vogel, will soon establish its official business and operating model, and it may or may not uh, be one that's suitable or to or accepted by all. There's been a lot of garbage being tossed out by Mark McClay, a.k.a. Johnny Ferrari, that we, t- that we intend to steal or scam membership fees from those w- wishing to join our club. Well, because Elaine and I believe so deeply in transparency, our model is founded on the principle that all funds get placed into escrow via a fully registered fiduciary service. 
What this means is that no time any of our games are officially over will we share will we see our share of the gross profits. All balances and winnings will be directed from the fiduciary to the players first. The only problem here is that who controls this? If they can just withdraw from it at any time, that doesn't really help very much. He didn't really give those details. In final, I have provided Todd Wittellis with a plethora of factual evidence that will undoubtedly vindicate me and any thoughts of me being a scammer or con man, which in all honesty has been the furthest from the truth. I will end this by saying that I was once in a far better situation financially, but my wealth is nowhere near as important to me as my family and their well-being, and protecting them from harm is my number one priority. So he's admitting he's, he's pretty much broke here. He didn't say it, but that's pretty much what it sounds like. And to you, Mark McClay, a.k.a. Johnny Ferrari, I, as well as my partner Elaine and my spouse, are at a complete loss as to what has set you off in your most vicious and heinous attack on our reputations in business. But regardless of what it is, you will not escape without facing the consequences. You are, an extremely, you are extremely unstable. You are fraudulently posting comments here using aliases, using the names of legitim- other legitimate people, and you are uttering a bevy of falsehoods and death threats. You have been asked by the region of Peel Police to stop, yet you continue to ignore their advice. We will not stand for this any longer, and we will do whatever is necessary to ensure that you are charged whenever possible and pay for your actions. Hmm. Well, that's a lot to say there. Uh, he, he said he sent me some information. He did. He sent me a lot of information. He sent me a bunch of statements of, of the trading he did, about the money he received, that he, that he went and deposited the money he received uh, into trading accounts, etc., etc. So it all looked pretty legitimate. I mean, it could have been Photoshop, but it all looked pretty legitimate. And I was kind of at a loss at the moment of, like, okay, all these people are saying he's a scammer, but he just sent me a bunch of stuff that seemed to be on the surface indicating that he really received money from these people and then loaded it into some kind of trading account and, and, and traded it and just lost. That uh, He even told me privately, I'm, I'm willing to accept the title of bad trader, but not a scammer. And I said, yeah, well, if, look, if, if you really traded it and uh, as you were supposed to and you just weren't good at it and lost the money, then that's part of the risk these people took. So in that case, you would not be a scammer if that is really what happened. So I, I put out some feelers to others to respond to me, and I was a little bit slower in doing it than Carl would have liked, so Carl got angry <laughs> Wrote me a, an angry Facebook message about, oh, I knew you were, I knew you weren't serious. I knew you were a fraud yourself. Like he was very bitter that I wasn't like jumping on this immediately. He, he felt since I jumped on the Johnny thing immediately, I should have jumped on this immediately. To be honest, I jumped on the Johnny thing immediately because it was the day of the show, so I wanted to get it done in time for the show. Uh, but then some things came up. I didn't have the time to keep investigating this. You know, no one's paying me to do this. So, but anyway, I, I then put out some feelers about uh, asking the, the supposed victims of Carl. Okay, here's what Carl said. We're, What's the truth? Were you really scammed? Did, did he really trade with the money you sent him? If he did and lost it, then how was he a scammer? So what I've been told, and people claim they're going to give me more details tomorrow, they claim that Carl did not trade as he promised. That uh, he... Uh, he went and traded in a manner that uh, wasn't according to what they agreed with. And then claims he lost the money within 48 hours, or half the money within 48 hours. Then he lost contact with everybody and didn't report back to anybody. And then they said that uh, he claimed that he was going to give the money all back because he screwed up, 
and they never did. This, this is from Paul Houston. I don't even know who he is, but he this is what he wrote. Uh, he didn't he didn't trade according to a trading plan. Lost over fifty percent of the account in forty eight hours and hid it from us for weeks. Blamed his bad trading on the fact that people were asking him for updates. Took responsibility for not trading to plan and agreed to repay us, but never gave a dime back. So, if that's true, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> if if they had a trading plan and he deviated from it and chunked off the money and then kind of disappeared on them and then eventually said, "Oh, sorry, sorry, you know, I'll pay you guys all back," and then never paid back, yeah, yeah, that I, I would classify that as a scam. And someone else wrote to me. The records that he sent to several people looked fake as hell and depo- as as in deposits and withdrawals. And then the thing about also about losing contact. He said uh, also basically if he, even if he lost all our money legally he cannot trade for us out of Canada. Hmm. I don't really care about that too much. If you know even if he was technically trading from the wrong place and can't legally do it. I, that's kind of unimportant here. What's, what's important here is, did he keep to the plan when he collected their money? Did he keep to the plan as to why they were sending him the money? Or did he go off the rails and do something else? And if he did something else, why did he do something else? And why would he tell them that they can get their money back because he messed up and then not pay them and then claim innocence later? So I'm still looking into this, but and didn't the second guy come on drop after Johnny Ferrari? Yes, yeah, so that was one of them. That's the Andy guy came on and said he's one of the people. Like, there's a group of people who were they're all together claiming they got scammed. Uh, like that uh, Andy Ansicar, uh, Matt Grisham, uh, Paul Houston, who I just read his messages, uh, Chris Christopher Womack, and uh, Chris Triba, who's actually a pretty well known player. They, they all definitely did invest money with you know through Carl Pion. The question is, what happened after that? Did Carl Pion steal it and, and, and fake statements? Did he just trade in a different way than was agreed upon and, and chunk off the money? Uh, is it possible that that he did steal the money and these trades were actually unrelated to all this? These were his own trades, and then the um, you know is it possible that happened? Is it possible that he never planned to trade the way they had agreed upon? I, I don't know. The, I'm going to need clear answers from Carl that that satisfies me here. And to be honest, I find it very, very, very rare in poker where several people accuse a person of scamming and it turns out not to be true. I don't mean someone just hears a rumor about someone. I mean, when when several people come forward and say, such and such person scammed me and this person and this person and this person and a bunch of others come out and say, yep, me too, yep, me too, yep, me too. How many times do you ever see that when the whole thing said and done, all those people were lying? I don't know if I've ever seen it once. So, is it possible this could happen? Yes, but how often does that ever really happen in poker, where someone is accused of scamming, and multiple people accuse him of the same thing, including people who've been around for a while and aren't known for throwing false accusations at others? And then it turns out the person accused was innocent the whole way. When does that ever happen? I've never seen it. I can't think of a single time I've seen it. So, yes, it's the first time for everything, but if someone told me, hey, uh, you need to bet one side or the other. Was, was Carl Pian a scammer or was uh, he being falsely accused here? While I'm still looking into this and I, I want to hear Carl's response, and I, you know, I've, I probably will never know for sure. I'll probably have to make a judgment call, but... 
right now I'm still leaning on that. Uh, yeah, Carl did some things wrong there. Carl uh, may very well have scammed them, and if he didn't, he, he definitely acted unethically from what I can see so far. But I still want to give him the chance to respond to these claims. It's just for the number of people who are accusing him of this. And none of these people have I ever seen accuse anyone else of scamming them. So that also gives credibility here. It's not like we have a, a boy who cried wolf type here who just thinks everyone's a scammer. These are several people who have no history of causing such drama. So, I mean, just, you know, Ocam's razor and all that. So... I'll get more information about that in the uh, coming week. And uh, unfortunately, you won't hear about it for two weeks because uh, it's time for a little announcement that Poker Fraud Alert Radio will not be on next week. I will be unable to make it on any day next week. So uh, I mentioned earlier in the month that this might happen. For that reason, there will be no show next week. Maybe Brandon will feel like doing a show or something. He is welcome to. But there will be no show that I am part of next week. The next Poker Fraud Alert radio show will be on April 4th. Wednesday, April 4th will be our next show. So the call to listen line will be playing. You can you can just turn on the show and listen to an old show and just pretend it's live. But it will not be me live on the air. And hey, you got to give me credit here. I've I've made uh, just about every show now. Those who downloaded from the archives also missed the January thirty first show because they didn't record. But uh, you know what can I do? It happened. So I'm not going to bore you anymore about Diamond Spade. That's what we've got at the moment, and uh, I'll give you an update next week. And drop you asked them to come on the show and they declined. Is that uh, what they heard earlier? Not directly. I didn't. I should have. I, I posted publicly that they can come on any time. I never directly said, "Hey, do you want to come on?" But uh, they they don't want to face the tough questions. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, they made their statement. I have to say, Elaine has been. Pre- he's been pretty straightforward. I, I, if someone told me to guess at this right now, I would say Elaine started this. He didn't really realize Carl's history at the time. He kind of married himself to him starting the business, and then it's kind of harder to back out of it and say, hey, by the way, you know, we're dropping Carl now because we, I think he's a scammer. Like it's, it's kind of a bad way to start your business. So I, I think that's the position he's in. Uh, I think he's kind of just more someone who just came up with an idea and said, hey, you know, maybe this will make money. Let's, let's start this. And so I don't think he's really that questionable. I, th- I think it's Carl that we really have to look at and see, you know, does he have this recent history? And if he does, then obviously you can't trust any business he's part of. Uh, my only real criticism of Elaine here is that he's acting too dismissive of the concerns about Carl. That, like it or not, he's your partner in this now, and whatever Carl has done will reflect upon your business. So. You can't just say I'm neutral. I'm trying to, I'm trying to settle it between the two parties. Well, y- you can try to do that, but you can't say you're neutral. Now you've been dragged into it. Neutral is like what I am here. I'm neutral because it doesn't affect me either way how this ends up going. But when your partner is accused of stuff, then you're not neutral. Okay, uh, moving along, and I see I already screwed this up. I already screwed this up. I said I would start. I'd put the start times for the segments. Uh, I I didn't even note it down to the first one. 
I'm going to note it down right now, the time of starting this second segment. And I'll have to go back myself and find the start of the first one. What a pain in the ass. This, this is the problem. I thought TMLK offered to do it. That's it right. It was a big idea, wasn't it? That's uh, right. It should have been TMLK. See, I need him. He, he wanted to produce it, and I said, okay, you can be the producer, but not the way you think. You can, you can be uh, the, the behind-the-scenes producer who uh, ultimately has no say, though, if, in, in forcing me to do things. You, you just bring things to me and do the research. That's, that's not the glamorous part here. That's not the fun part. The, the fun part is actually coming on the show. The boring part is, is researching it all and, and uh, coming up with the right information and doing work behind the scenes. And that, that's, that's the boring stuff. That's the tedious stuff. Okay, so we're going to go to the Aria topic here because more has happened with that. And, and I like what's happening with it. It's actually gaining momentum. And I think I've figured out the identity behind the Twitter account, the Aria Private Games account. Uh, so, if you want to catch up on this, if you go to twitter.com slash uh, aria private game, that's uh, twitter.com slash aria private game, all one word, it's a gimmick account that pretends to be running uh, the private games at the aria poker room, which by law can't exist. And that's the whole point that the person running this account, they, they're pretending like this is the account that's in charge of the illegal private games that run in the in the poker room. Why are they illegal? Well, because uh, you're not allowed to run a private game in a Nevada card room. So they all have to be open to the public and if they're not, then the law is being broken. So this, this account was made to mock and to bring attention to the situation at the Aria and to some degree the Bellagio where it occurs as well. Both of these are MGM properties. Now, I actually think that the person behind this account, I don't know this for sure, but I think the person behind this account might actually be Stealth Monk. <laughs> That's why I, I think it might be. Uh, if so, good job. Stealth Monk, he, uh, seriously serious once called him the Debbie Downer of poker. And he really is. He, he's, he's a very depressing guy to follow. He's always pissed off. He's always complaining. He's, he's, he's just someone who's never pleasant. The one time he was on this show, he called in to yell at me because I didn't agree with him. So if he really ran this account, that's like really the first humor I've seen from him. This account is run in like a clever fashion where they it really keeps in character as if it runs the private game. It even, even jokingly called out Poker Fraud Alert because I wrote that they're pseudo-private games at Aria. And then the account tweeted... Hey, tell that guy who runs Poker Fraud Alert that if he calls our game a pseudo-private game again, I'm going to kick him in his pseudo-balls. <laughs> that, and it wasn't a real threat. You know, he was just... Uh, the, the joke there was that it's a, it's a fully private game and not a pseudo-private game. So if this is really Stealth Monk, then good job. But who, whoever's running it, good job. But Stealth Monk has been speaking out on this under his own account, too. So he's not hiding. He's... Uh, He's someone who's vocal about this. And there's been various others in poker, some of whom are, are big names, that have come forward to complain about the way these ARIA games are run. And the poker room uh, manager of the ARIA has come forward and responded. 
but we're not getting that much response anymore about it. We, we, we got some response for a short time. So this is really picking up steam. Uh, Doug Polk on March 17th, who uh, tweeted to uh, the guy who runs the Aria Poker Room, who tweets as the poker boss. His, his name is Sean McCormack. This is what Doug Polk tweeted to him four days ago on March 17th. He said, Sean, I think you and Paul do an awesome job and run a great room. But if you think some games that happen in Ivy's, Ivy's meaning the the, the high stakes, the nosebleed room there, Ivy's room, uh, are running legally, you're crazy. I've had times where I show up, get on a list and can't get in, but then a rec, meaning a recreational player, shows up and they add a seat. How is this a public game? That's one of the accusations there that's going on, that uh, they add and remove seats in the games depending upon who wants to play next. And I read you guys the list of things that they've been accused of doing there at the ARIA in these pseudo-private games. I'm going to keep calling it that. I don't care what the, <laughs> the Twitter account thinks. I'm going to keep calling it a pseudo-private game because it's a public game, but it's run like a private game illegally, allegedly, which I believe to be true. So there's been a lot of ways that have been alleged that they are accomplishing this, such as uh, putting fake chip stacks in empty seats that they want to hold for preferred players. So they'll just put chip stacks there, make it look like the seats are full. As soon as a preferred player shows up, whether it's a recreational player or someone who is uh, tight with pros there that uh, they are okay with having in the game, Suddenly those chip stacks will be moved away and the person can sit down. But if anybody else wants to sit down, like Doug Polk, then they're told the game is full and there there are the fake chip stacks sitting right there and they don't even belong to anybody. They either belong to the house. So, Drop, when you're saying they, is this like a a small community of players that are running the game? Yes, yes. I mean, because why would the Aria care? Well, that's what people are wondering. That's what people are wondering. So the the long assumption about this and, and Bobby's room at uh, at Bellagio was that the floor men were on the take, that they, there were people who were tipping them very well to run the games in this fashion. That's a given. Yeah, well, but so, so that's that's what's... Now, this was actually addressed, which I'll read out here by, by Sean McCormack and his uh, whole thread about that, but uh, he's denying that. And uh, and some believe, though, that, that even if uh, the floor men are on the take, that, that it's actually Bobby Baldwin who is uh, directing that the rooms run this way and that, that he's okay with it. and that, uh, that I he, can't he, imagine that. So the, the, uh, I've heard a number of people say this. So the, the truth is, this has been going on for years. This didn't just start last month. This has been going on for years. I've heard about this going a long time back. So there's no way that Bobby Baldwin doesn't at least know what's going on. Like I, I don't believe nobody there is aware of what's happening. I, th- I think management is very, very aware at um, of these poker rooms, the management of the MGM, the, the, the deals of the poker room. I think they're all aware this is happening. Now, whether they're directing it or whether they're just kind of okay with it, that's the question. But but I'm sure they're aware of it. These, these complaints have been going on for a long time. I think Greg Merson years ago complained about this, that they were shutting him out of games. And just now it's finally starting to hit social media 
and they don't really know what to do. Before, it was one of these things where you'd have an individual complaining. You say, oh, how come I'm always fifth up? How come I can never get in? Like, you know, you have people complaining like that, but uh, it was individuals complaining and grumbling, and they didn't really hit the social media where they have to really answer to it. So now it's finally hitting social media. And I was told, I was told this is the reason why this is all blowing up now as opposed to years ago, okay? Is that, uh, this is what someone said to me privately. I'm not going to say who it is. This is what someone said to me privately. And and the someone, by the way, is a real person who I know. Uh, I'm not going to give too much information to have that person deduce, but it's, it's someone who I know, a real person, a respected name in poker, I don't believe they're lying, and uh, they just, for reasons I won't get into, didn't want to put their name to this publicly. But they said, uh, just to get you up to speed, that uh, many have seen list manipulations and all that other stuff for the last three or four years, uh, uh, but uh, we're not sure if Sean McCormack, the director of the ARIA Poker Room, is an idiot or in on it himself, but it's clearly one of the two. The big elephant in the room which no Las Vegas pros want to address is Bobby Baldwin. We all fear calling him out. Uh, and and uh, this person's telling me that uh, John Robert Balland is actually kind of the one in charge of running these big private games. And that John Robert, who, by his own admission, is very poor at bankroll management, is frequently broke and backed. That, uh, you know, he basically, the, the allegation is that he owes kind of a debt to uh, Bobby Baldwin. I don't know if it's a monetary debt or but you know basically John Robert is is going to uh be the face of all this if the shit ever hits the fan not uh anyone higher up and 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 John Robert is not a uh an employee of MGM to my knowledge so they're saying that John Robert runs it and, and he'll basically say this is him doing the whole thing if 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 the shit ever hits the fan with this that's what this person is alleging he's it seems obvious that the local it seems obviously the local pros that the the reason the Aria decided to let people lock up seats and start their own private games is so uh, Bobby can have his game with his big-time friends. Uh, the things like the fake stacks are the norm to keep people out that they don't want. Uh, we've really only started complaining since a trickle-down effect has begun and other smaller private games have appeared. And there's one that's known as the Keating game. This is run by, by, by a guy named Alan Keating. That's what they've been referring to recently. This, this is the Keating game is the reason this has all hit the fan. So the person who was messaging me here was basically saying that oh, Bobby's been doing this for at least four years, and you know he, the, the, everyone's kind of dealt with it and accepted it, and, and everybody's afraid of him, and nobody wants to call him out. Remember, I told you this segment's going to piss people off, and it will. People are going to hear about the segment and get mad. So I, and I've thought of this too because I'm a player too. I, I play in these rooms. Now, I'm never going to play those big games. But this actually has a chance to affect me when I play at Bellagio or anywhere else. Like I, I could just be hit with a ban one day, and I, it'd be nothing I could do about it. So I, I really am taking a chance calling this out. But I feel I should. And 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 the wheels are already turning here. So, um, you know, I I think that they're kind of in damage control mode rather than to make this worse. So that's another reason I don't think that. Uh, I'm going to suffer consequence for it, but it, it's always a chance. So, uh, this Keating game, that's the one people have been referring to, and that's thats what has made this whole thing happen, because people just kind of said, all right, fine, you know, Bobby Baldwin, you know, he wants to run his 
these private games there through John Robert Balland, and they want to only have preferred players. It sucks. We don't like it. But uh, most people aren't affected by this. Most people can't afford to play those games, myself included. So they uh, people say this kind of sucks, and there are some who do want to play and can't get in, but everyone just kind of quietly grumbles, and that's it. But this, the problem is now it's starting to become more the norm, and they're saying there's this Alan Keating game that runs and others – and this person said, these, are the game, these games are the stakes we do play, and they poach whoever they can from our games and lock us out. Poaching meaning that they take the fish out. They say, hey, we're going to start a game. It's some kind of similar limit. And uh, they start another game and then can't get in there with the same type of tactics. So that, that's where these people are getting pissed. These are n- the person who's messaging me this is not a nosebleed player. This is someone who's going to step below that. And now is seeing games that are also private at that level. This Alan Keating game specifically. And some others. So they said, this is where we've noticed so much shadiness as no one has really ever gotten the game and they, that they don't want in it. Uh, and he said, that's people better than them, that they're not being let in there. So basically, they're, 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 they're poaching fish from the existing game, starting a new game, maybe at you know, slightly different limits. And then not letting anybody in who wants to move over there. Basically, they look at who's there and they say, okay, if this guy's better than me, this guy's better than me, this guy's better than me, okay, they're not getting in. <laughs> and let me tell you, I've said this before on this show. When everybody at the table is worse than you, you have a very big edge, even if they're not bad. If you're just better than everybody at the table by you know, some a little bit, but, but some by a lot, You'll kill in the game. Where you start to have trouble is when you have people on the game who are about as good as you or better than you. That's You put me in a game where everybody at the table is worse than me, I'm going to crush it unless I run really bad. I'm not being arrogant here. It's the truth. I think of the great poker sessions I've had in my life, and almost all of them have been games which have an absence of very good pros. The games I have crushed have been ones that are a mixture of kind of like okay, sort of solid, tight players that are kind of easy to deal with, and fish. It's kind of a mixture of that. I don't like all fish. All fish is kind of hard to run. The, it's kind of difficult to uh, run the action of the game, so to speak, because there's just too many people in each hand. But uh, you have a mixture of fish and kind of uh, tight, straightforward players. That's where I've dominated. But the you put even one other good player in there, it gets a lot tougher for me. You put two or three other good players in there, it gets a lot tougher for me. So I can tell you from my own experience that this is very, very valuable to not only get the fish, but to lock out anyone who's better than you or the same as you. So he says, I know everyone in the game, and it's basically our old game of Bellagio, moved over to Aria, and one guy decides who gets in because he runs the game. The guy's name, he's not being named here, by the way. You may wonder, who is that guy? I, I don't know. So he says, the guy who runs it takes huge pieces of nearly anyone he lets in the game and who he thinks will be a winner in the game. So even those that, uh, you know, he's willing to let in there, but he thinks will, will win. Like someone who's worse than him, but be, but still he thinks can win the game overall. Uh, then he'll take huge pieces of them Thus making, uh, either just to make himself more money, 
I'm sure that's part of the reason. To make himself more money or also maybe to enable these people to play. Maybe if they, get, they don't have the bankroll. So That's why everybody's frustrated. That's why everyone's making a big deal about this. Because now this is affecting the Vegas grinders. The kind of higher but not nosebleed stakes Vegas grinders are very mad about this. Because they are seeing this game. They're seeing these private games at their own level now. And they said enough is enough. That's what's happening here. I kind of wondered, like, why now? I wondered this last week. Why now? Why was that ARIA private game account created in February 2018 when this has been going on for years? Now we have our answer because now it's starting to affect other games. Somehow someone got the idea, hey, this doesn't just have to happen in Ivy's room or Bobby's room. Hey, why don't we just start it here? Let's start a private game not in, in, in <laughs> Ivy's room. So... That is what is alleged to be happening. To be clear, I do not have any proof of this. I have not witnessed it myself. I was reading just now the claims of someone that uh, they made to me privately. And they said they don't want to put their name to it for certain reasons I won't get into. But if asked, do I believe it? Yes, I think most of this is probably true, what was said there. Why do I think that? Just just common sense and from things I've heard. Would I be willing to uh, bet my entire bankroll that this is true? Um, well, I guess it depends on the odds. But <laughs> um, What I'm saying is I'm not 100% sure, but and I can't be. I haven't witnessed it myself. And uh, the person who contacted me is not a close friend of mine. But I do know them. So I, I think it's really happening. And um, it's it's unfortunate. And it needs to stop. It's against the law. Even if you feel, okay, you know, this should be allowed. Even if you feel morally it should be allowed, it's against the law. And it shouldn't be allowed morally. I don't, I don't agree with that either. But even if you feel it should be allowed morally, it is against the law in Nevada. It should not be happening. Why are they not just going to gaming? Well, they are. They actually started a, uh, an investigation. There's an agent now who uh, is investigating this. Let's see if I can find it. I think Stealth Monk may have tr- uh, tweeted it, but I don't think I can find it anymore. Uh, Do they have anything like the home, you know, that uh, commerce, I don't know if they still have it, where you can take your home game to commerce? Yeah, that's... That would be like a similar thing if there was like, you know, where they're basically putting a separate private game inside a casino. That's a good question. That is a good question. And I'm wondering if like that got taken away because they discovered that it was really against... That, it's probably different in Vegas and maybe, California too. Maybe, but. maybe, yeah, that's a good point. I, I I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. Good question. Why couldn't you get on the list for one of those like commerce home games? Right, and I don't know if they have anything like that in Nevada. Yeah, maybe that would be you know they should have at least tried to do that first. So I think it's got you know it's got to be something shady. Yeah. Oh, this. Uh, yeah, and this this thing with uh, so I'm trying to find it, but some. There is some gaming investigator. You can just call Nevada Gaming, by the way. If this happens to you at any game you're in there, definitely go to Nevada Gaming. Just call them up. 
you can get the phone number from online or anywhere and call them up and just say you, you want to complain about the ARIA and the private game situation in the poker room and that there's already an agent assigned to it. Can they please look up who it is and have them call you? Uh, I'm trying to find who he is. Let's see if the chat room can find it. Because uh, this was it was up there and I, I now I can't find it. I think it was Stealth Monk who retweeted it or something. I think someone made a, a gimmick account to send out this information. And by the way, um, there's a number of gimmick accounts associated with calling this out because people are that afraid. Because Here's the problem, okay? A lot of these people make their living this way. They don't play online. They're not tournament grinders. Even if they play some tournaments, they're not tournament grinders. They are living in Las Vegas. Some of them have moved to Las Vegas from other cities to play live poker full-time. And there are plenty of Las Vegas poker grinders who show up and play like a, an eight-hour day every day on a schedule, and you know they, they they really take it seriously. And this is how they make their living. And if they were to get kicked out of the room for any reason, for some flimsy reason, because they're calling out someone with power, then uh, this could be very bad for them. It's a, t- a tough thing to fight. So some of them are are now calling this out under fake accounts. The only reason I suggested that Stealth Monk might be behind the Aria private game, and I don't know this, that's just uh, kind of a feeling I'm getting, is that Stealth Monk has been public about this himself. He's been calling this out under his own account, too. So, clearly, he's not hiding his name. But some people are hiding because they're afraid. I don't blame them so much. If this is your only source of income and you're afraid that they can take some sort of shady action to ban you from the room because you complained about this, yeah, I can see why you're calling it out uh, quietly. Now, fortunately, I don't play that much. I, I play some there you know, when I'm in Vegas, but uh, not at the Aria, at the Bellagio. But, so if I get banned, I'll be crappy, but uh, you know, it won't be the end of my life. So it, it's just important. Now, let me get to the thing about uh, Sean McCormick, because this is... Uh, he actually commented on this for a while and then kind of stopped. Again, he's he's the poker boss on Twitter. Well, never mind. <laughs> what do you think happened, Trader Risky? What do you think just happened? I think he deleted his post. You are correct. He deleted his post. Yep. It's gone. The whole thread discussing it's gone. Why don't I save these things? When I was reading, I'm like, oh, this is going to go away. I'll tell you the truth. I was in bed reading this when it was going down earlier in the week. I was in bed reading it, and I was thinking, I wonder if they're going to leave this up. I better go save this. I'm like, oh, what a pain in the ass. I have to go get my computer, and I have to go uh, start capturing things. I go, no. I mean, this this guy is – he knows he's responding he like I, I talked myself into believing that this isn't just some like emotional person responding to something in their personal life that they may not want to later. I, this is someone who's the head of the Bellagio, or of the Aria poker room, and that he must have gotten clearance to respond to this out there, and it'll look terrible if he deletes things. So I figured whatever he's going to say is going to stay up there. Nope, it's gone. So that's suspicious in itself. If they have nothing to hide, why are they deleting it? So, what, what, in fact, I think I knew this already. I think I, I forgot that I had read that it was deleted. They're probably worried. That is there like a Wayback Machine for Twitter and that type of thing? No, unfortunately there isn't. People have tried to make them, and then Twitter has sent cease and desist notices that they're going to be sued if they don't stop it. 
So people back really? off. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, – this is probably being done because they're afraid that Sean said some things that would be incriminating. So that – let me go see – you know what I can go see though is my comments I made about it. I made comments under my own account answering Sean. And those can't be gone. So I'm going to go back to my own Twitter and see what I was saying and remind myself what was... Unfortunately, I don't tweet that much so I can probably find it pretty easily. Uh, so I asked him on uh, March 18th Simple questions here. Why is there no list for games over twenty-five fifty? Which I'll get to in a second. I knew I forgot to bring that up. And, and and two, what could possibly be the reason for this aside from unethical or illegal shenanigans? And number two, why is there a special guest seat? Why not just run a first come first served like all other games in rooms? So you may be wondering, what am I talking about? A special guest seat? Well, Sean McCormack actually tweeted out that the games there are eight-handed with a permanently empty ninth seat that is reserved for special guests that are invited by the house as per house rules. So he just said that as if it's normal. But I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound legal to me that they can reserve a special guest seat that they can pick who gets it. That to me sounds like a private game. Or at least semi-private. So I said, why is there a special guest seat? Why not just run it first come first serve like all the other games? And, uh, so I, I'm wondering if they deleted the... This, this is his words about the special guest seat, not mine. I wonder if they deleted it because uh, of the gaming investigation that's been started. I said, also, Sean, were you aware of the fake stacks problem prior to Justin mentioning it yesterday? That was uh, Justin meets Stealth Monk. If you were aware, has anyone been terminated for breaking the law and doing this? If you weren't aware, do you think perhaps you don't know what's going on in your own poker room? It's got to be one of those two, right? Or sorry, it wasn't. It wasn't. Just, it was Justin Young, not not Stealth Monk, who mentioned it. Doesn't doesn't really matter. Stealth Monk's been mentioning it too. So, I mean, that's. <laughs> it's got to be one of those two things, because he was saying, "Oh, you know, as far as the fake stacks, let me know. I'll look into it." That's what he was tweeting to people there. You have my word. I'm going to look into it. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean? It's possible this has been going on and you don't know about it as the director of the room? And wouldn't that indicate that you're clueless and and are not running the room very well? But if you do know about it, then why has no one been terminated for doing this? Why hasn't it stopped? So either way, it doesn't look good. So those are some things I tweeted. Did not get a response from him. As I mean, and it's definitely losing the room money. Yeah, but, you know... Right? Uh, yes, but, well... It, I mean, not a ton, but still, it's like... I don't think they care much about the... That's the thing. The rake is not that high there to where that's not that important. It's more about the prestige of having these games. And especially if Bobby Baldwin himself wants the games to run in this way, that's the most important to them. But uh, a lot of this is the prestige. It's, it's kind of like on, on Full Tilt when they used to have those nosebleed games running there. It was never about the little rake they're getting there. It was about the, you know, watch the pros play there for massive stakes. So uh, the thing about the no list for games over 2550, that was a complaint put out there that 
they were told that there's no list for games that are twenty five fifty that they're above twenty five fifty. So why why would this be? So I was thinking to myself, what would even their excuse be? We know why it is, but what would the excuse be why there's no list for games over twenty five fifty? And we're talking about uh, no limit or pot limit, not limit hold'em. But like, uh, you know, once you're over twenty five fifty, pot limit or no limit is a pretty big game. So someone went there and tried to get on a list, and they were told there's no list. So no list meaning that we don't maintain one. So how can the game start? Well, that, that's the whole point. Is they, I think the excuse they give is that these games don't go often enough, and they don't want like days old names on the list. They don't want someone getting on the list on Wednesday and then being first up on Friday. They didn't say this, but this is my assumption of how they justify it. So how does the game ever get going? Well, people just show up and, and uh, you know a number of them come together and say, hey, we all want to play, and they start the game. Well, the problem is that already starts to look like a private game. When a bunch of people agree to show up together and they start a game, uh, first of all, if they can just always sit nine people together at that game, then that will always shut people out, except for those nine. And, and number two... Even if it's fewer than nine, then they can pull these other shenanigans like the fake stacks to keep others out of there. And that's what's been happening, is that the games just come together because there's the, the certain pros who are allowed to play in them, and then they they call the, the fish they like to have in there, and they agree with the fish, we're going to meet at such and such time, on such and such day. They all show up at that time, they all start the game then, so there's never a list. Once the game's going, then they'll start a list, but at that point nobody gets in. So he was asking, like, why is there no list initially for these games? Why can't I get on the interest list for, for 5,100 PLO? Nope, can't do it. Well, how do I get on? You just have to wait till the game's going. Well, how does the game go without a list? Well, it'll just start. But then once it starts, I can't get in. Oh, well, that's what happens. Like that's, that's what they're running into there. So definitely, definitely call gaming if you see this. Especially if it affects you. It may not affect you if uh, it's too big for you, but it's very possible the games that are a step below that, like this Keating game, if it's one you want to get into, if they just grab people from your table and, and, and move them over to some other table, even a slightly different limit, and then you can't get in there, complain. The poaching, you know, this kind of reminds me of and this wasn't done intentionally. It was done actually at the request of the fi- of a fish, and I was involved. Many years ago, there was a mega, mega, mega limit hold'em fish. I mean, the guy was so bad he didn't even understand how two pair can be counterfeited. If like if he has ace six and the board is ace eight eight six, he still thinks he has the ace six two pair would beat like ace king. Like he really thought that. <laughs> so it was a mega fish who played almost every hand and was kind of just loose passive. So I showed up and we were all playing 8160 and obviously I was very happy to have him in the game. Uh, I actually kept the guy in the game. I was I, He liked me the best of anybody there. I was very friendly with him. I was very, very nice to him and uh, really kept that game uh, going and keeping him interested. He, he was tired. He'd been up a long time, as had I, but uh, I kept it going. The game actually lasted 24 hours. Uh, at one point the game changed to 15300 and this was at the fish's request 
because this guy was like a big sports batter. He didn't the eighty one sixty limit hold him still wasn't big enough for him. So he asked, "Can we bump this up to uh, one fifty three hundred?" So I said, "Sure, let's bump to one fifty three hundred." And some people in the game actually were uncomfortable with that limit and left. A lot of these were like the eighty one sixty grinders there that just didn't want the variance of it, so they left and started their own eighty one sixty game, which was crappy. It was like it was like the pros. The pro grinders there, a lot of them got up and left to start their own 8160 to play with each other and left this great game with this mega, mega, mega fish. So uh, this is kind of the reverse of that with them leaving. But they, some of them were unhappy and believed that we were poaching the fish. And I, I was saying, no, we're not because – and, I, well, of course, I didn't have this conversation at the table. But later on, you know, we weren't poaching anything. The fish wanted to play higher, and anybody was welcome to stay and play higher. And 150-300, it's less than double of 8160, so it's not like we moved it up by five times where there's no way you could afford it. So this is just the fish wanted to play bigger, and we said yes. So, And everybody was welcome to stay. You just chose not to. But this is different. This is where they'll – you know, in the equivalent example here, they'd be someone would come to the fish and say, "Hey, do you want to start a one fifty three hundred game at the other table?" The fish says, "Yes." They move into the other table. You go, "Yeah, I'd like to move over there too." No, 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 you can't get in; it's full. Like that's what that's what was happening. So, uh, a number of pros that have been affected by this and complained. Yes, Stealth Monk complained. Uh, Jeremy Osmus complained. Uh, Doug Polk complained. A number of others I saw publicly complaining out there. Justin Young. This is all currently. This is, I'm not talking back in the Greg Merson complaining days. There are a lot of... I'm forgetting the rest of the names there. But I, I saw a lot of them in this public thread complaining. A lot of people came out and uh, told their stories that they're just always finding themselves fifth up. They could just never get in. Sean McCormack, I remember in the responses he gave... Well, he, you know what? I see a few things here. Um, no, never mind. This is that something else. Yeah, it looks like he deleted all those tweets related to that situation. But he was saying that he would never do this, that he's not taking bribes from anyone, he's not taking tips from anyone on this, and that his reputation is the most important, and that he would never allow something like this to happen because uh, his integrity and reputation are so important. This is Sean McCormack, but it's just hard to believe because, again, why are all these people saying this, all these credible people saying this? Why did Stealth Monk say it? Why did uh, Jeremy Osmond say it? Why did Doug Polk say it? Why did Justin Young say it? Like, these aren't nobodies. These aren't people with a a history of making up stories. Why do you have these other people who who are messaging me who are credible people saying this? Like you know, it, it, it. How could this not be happening? Seven seven five fraud fifty five. Seven seven five three seven two eight three five five is the number to this show. If you want to call in, Trader Risky, you have any uh, additional thoughts on this one? Now that's you know, I just don't know. How much they're going to care until they really start losing business or other rooms take it, which I think has been going on for a while. And I don't know that anybody's really taken business away from 
I guess the big three, yeah. right? Right, but it, but also if gaming comes down on them, they may have to care. That's what I yeah, think. Yeah, but is gaming going to get that involved in something like this? If enough people complain, if enough people complain, they might. They, someone showed with this gimmick account. I forgot what his name was on Twitter. Someone made a gimmick account that they posted a copy of an email sent to them about uh, from the gaming agent who's investigating it, who works like at night. The guy works like from eight p.m. to seven a.m. Some, some weird hours like that, but. He he had his phone number in there and said, you know, please call me, and uh, I have some questions for you about the situation. And then the person posted that and said, anyone call this number if you have a problem. So, uh, from eight p.m. to seven a.m. whatever whatever the hours were. So th- there is some investigation about this now. Maybe the gaming guy is not going to do a very thorough investigation if absence of proof that he's not going to do anything. Or but maybe he will. Maybe he'll warn them that they're going to get in big trouble and get big fines and. Uh, Maybe uh, lose their their license to operate poker if they don't change this. It, it depends, you know, what the agent does, what his findings are, and how much he wants to investigate. I, it's kind of hard to predict. By the way, I just saw something. I just saw something which is hopeful. I just saw someone log into Poker Fraud Alert. The person who logged into Poker Fraud Alert was Calwatt. Is he coming on the show? At- 1.45 a.m. Eastern Time? Or is he just... Did, did he not realize that I saw him walk in? <laughs> I'm gonna, he blew up his spot. He I'm, was trying to learn. I'm going to mention him. I see you logging in. Maybe one of these things where he like went to go to the bathroom and was like, I wonder what's going on in Poker Fraudler right now. He's like, oh, crap, I logged in. They're going to make, make me come on the show. I texted him. I've even done this before. I like I've had times where I'm lurking on my own site. I don't want to log in because I don't want like people who want to want me to answer something or deal with something I don't want to deal with at the moment. I like I don't want to log into my own site and show I'm there. So okay. So far, no response from him though. So anyway, uh, we're going to get going with the next topic here. He's not in the chat room, though. No no chatting from Calwatt. I guess it's possible his computer could have just logged in. Like, it, it could have been just some... It logged out an auto-login situation, so... And write the time down, Jeff. Yeah, I'm... I'm thank you. I, I actually did remember, but I appreciate that you're reminding me, because I, I easily could have forgotten. We're talking about PayPal. PayPal has announced some changes and you may have ignored it you, know, you you may have gotten an email about it I know I got emails about it but you get this crap all the time from them PayPal is changing their terms of service and you go on and it's like some super minor change that's never going to affect you and you, you, you kind of get numb to this and you stop looking that's how a lot of these companies get away with sneaking major changes by is they send you so much junk that when it actually becomes something that's of note you, you've dismissed it by that point so They sent out this notice, and you you can find I'm not gonna, I can't give you the whole link on the radio. It's a long thing, but if you if you go to the on the Flying Stupidity forum, there's a thread called PayPal making various obnoxious changes in two thousand in April two thousand eighteen, and then there's the link right there in my first post there. But here are the three biggest changes, and they they claimed that it's going to be happening on April eighteenth two thousand eighteen, but uh, Simp Dog is claiming he's already seeing one of these changes. So I don't know what to say. Maybe. 
some of them already taking place. First of all, business accounts will now be paying 1% to transfer PayPal funds, that is funds you're holding in PayPal, to a debit card. If you don't have a business account, that won't affect you, but uh, I don't know what the rate before was, but it's gone up. So businesses like this because they had a debit card and you could transfer pretty quickly to the debit card, it's like a PayPal debit card. And uh, now the fee to do so is 1%. So not a huge fee, but it's something. But here are the bigger two things, and both of them affect me, unfortunately. You used to be able to send money that's in your PayPal balance to other countries, as if someone has a PayPal account in other countries besides the U.S., for a very reasonable fee. It'd be a small percentage of the transaction, something like 1%. I don't think it was exactly one, but kind of in that neighborhood. So, for example, we have people that play the free roll and they get their money on PayPal. And I have been paying these fees. I haven't been deducting it or anything. I've been eating it. The Jew wallet has opened up and paid the fees. But it's easy for the Jew wallet to open up and pay the fees because they're very low. Or they were very low. So, for example, there's a guy from Germany who won the free roll sometimes, uh, Daniel72. And let's say it was $50 I owe him. I... I'd have to pay about 50 cents in a fee. So, okay. I don't love paying 50 cents to PayPal, but okay, fine. To send $50 to another country, 50 cents, cool. I'd, I'll do that. Well, they've changed it. Now it's going to be a flat fee of two ninety nine or four ninety nine. Someone asked, how can it be a flat fee if it's, if it's variable? That's a good question. Apparently, it depends upon which country it's going to. They didn't really specify that criteria, but it'll be two ninety nine or four ninety nine. And and Simdog is now saying that this is already happening, even though the effective date is listed as April nineteenth. So I don't know. That's so weird. But it says that uh, if it's either from your PayPal balance or your bank account, not from your credit card. Credit card is different. PayPal balance or bank account. That it will be a flat fee of two ninety nine or four ninety nine per transaction, depending upon the recipient's country. So, how does this affect me? Well, Daniel seventy two. I don't know if it'll be three dollars for him or five dollars for him, but I just I was mentioning last week when the Bitcoin fees got high that I, I stopped wanting to send people Bitcoin for those high fees because it just even if they were willing to take it, it just felt like a waste of the free roll money. I didn't want someone winning $30 in the free roll and, and only getting 15 because the fee was 15 That was just insane. So I just said, I'm not going to do it. Find another way for me to pay you. Well, this isn't quite that bad, but at the same time, if the fee is $5 and, and the person just won you know, 30 it's still crappy. I'll pay a $5 fee to send someone 500 bucks, but to send someone 30 and pay 5 is crappy, again, even if they're willing to eat it. Unfortunately, whereas people in the U.S., I can just say, hey, get another way for me to pay you. In other countries, it's not so easy. That, that was the beauty here is I could send them the money from the U.S. to their country and, and pay very little to do so. So I don't know what the solution is here. Um, I, I don't want to eat this every time either. I'm, I'm too cheap of a Jew for that. So I I can't see myself being willing that every time someone from another country besides the U.S. wins a little money in the free roll. Like, can you imagine if someone wins, like, like 
seven dollars and I got to pay five dollars to send them seven dollars. It's insane. But even if it's more than seven dollars, it just it seems like a very high fee. Now, maybe if I only have to pay the $3 fee, if, if it's one of those countries, depending on how much they've won, maybe I'll do it. But what I'm thinking I might want to do is uh, kind of like what I'm doing with the checks, that they have to accumulate money, at, and then once it gets over maybe $100, then, then I'll send it to them. And I, I hate to have to do that, but it just it bothers me to have to give so much money to PayPal in fees for our free roll. It's obnoxious. It bothers me. It's something that I don't feel good about. And there's a side of me that hates that. I think you might know which side. So is it wrong for me to just want you guys to have the free roll money that is donated by our generous listeners? That I want you to really have that money and not have to go to the coffers of PayPal who doesn't need it? PayPal who makes so much money anyway? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want PayPal enriching themselves through this free roll. They don't deserve it. So even if you're willing to take the hit, I don't want to do it. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when I... I and this doesn't happen often, but... If I'm out with other people, meaning someone other than Benjamin's mom, or other than my own family... And we're at a restaurant, and there's a very bad service issue. I don't mean the food's a little bit slow or or everything's not perfect. I, I mean like a major terrible service issue where it was an awful experience to where I don't want to leave a tip. Which, again, I want to clarify, hardly ever happens. Like, it'll be several years usually between these incidents, but there have been some. But if I'm with somebody else at the table... And they acknowledge the service is horrible If they're just as pissed as I am If they agree it was just as terrible as I think And then when it comes time to pay the bill They want to leave a tip And I say, why, why do you want to leave a tip? They, the service was horrendous We had to complain to the manager it was, you know, uh, the, the waiter was rude about it you know, whatever, whatever it was And they say, well, I just always leave a tip So At that point, I don't think that I have The Moral authority over them to tell them Whether they can tip or not So I say to them okay well I still don't agree But you can leave a tip you know, If you want to leave a tip on your meal Then go ahead and do so you know. And So the problem has come before I think this happened once I should say This is not a common occurrence but It happened once where despite completely agreeing with me About everything and in fact complaining Probably even more than I did among ourselves uh, These were just people who just couldn't bring themselves Not to leave a tip so I said, all right, well, fine, leave your tip on your part, and I'll not leave my tip on my part. They go, well, no, that's the problem. Uh, you know, we're all together, so if if, if uh, we only leave a tip on our part, you don't leave a tip, it'll look like we still kind of stiff them. They'll end up getting a low tip. So I go, no, it's, this is where the problem is. Like, I, by me not tipping, I don't want to transfer the burden over to you, and that's what I'll be doing. If I don't tip and then you tip the amount that, that would have been tipped normally had I been willing to tip, then you're just – you're getting punished. Not not the server. And I don't want that. And it took a few times for them to understand. But they go, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Okay, I understand. And I said, look, you know, I totally can understand if you want to leave on your part. And if, or if you had intended to leave, like, a, a huge tip anyway, and this is half of your huge tip, fine. But don't cover my tip that I don't want to leave. Because just as you have the right to tip, I won't have a right to not tip. And what you're doing is you're making me tip. 
but but you're you're taking it out of your pocket. So I I want to send the message at least on my side that I'm not tipping. And I, I said I'll even put you know I'll even write on here you know you know these are tips these are not tips so they don't under, they they can even understand that's just me. But the, the, the person came around to my way of thinking and said okay fine we won't tip. Because they agreed this, it was terrible, and the, the waitress was super rude about it and all that. So th- this is a similar concept of I, I don't want PayPal getting the money that you win in the free roll, even if you're okay with it. Fifty cents, sure, but but not uh, not a large percentage of what you've won. So that's crappy, and watch out for that. Don't just click through the pay any fee. Now, if you're if it's a large transaction, this may actually help you, but. They know that most transactions are not huge. They know most transactions are under $100 on there. So that's why they've instituted it. Uh, Another thing. You will now need to verify your identity with PayPal before either purchasing anything or sending money to others. So what if you have not identified yourself? What if you have not verified your identity? Then you are allowed to withdraw your funds, but you cannot... Send it to anyone. You cannot send funds to others or buy anything with the money. All you can do is withdraw it if you have not verified. How do you verify? I'm not sure. I, I've actually never gone through a verification process with them. But starting April 19th, you are going to have to verify your identity. And let me tell you what the problem is here. Uh, it's not that I want to hide and not be myself on there. The thing that's bothering me here is that PayPal, they have this bot that goes around and disables accounts, and there's no way to appeal it. There really is no way to appeal it. Once the bot has gone and disabled your account, then your money's locked up for six months, and all you can do is either refund it to people who've paid you or sent you money or wait. And after six months, if uh, nothing further has happened, then they let you withdraw it. And there's no appealing this decision. Once you have been suspended, even if you're 100% in the right, there is no one to complain to. If you call the customer service number, they'll say, look, we understand, but there is no department you can complain to. The decision is final. So the way to get around this, at least up through these changes which are about to occur, was that you could just create a new account. Believe it or not, this was actually suggested to me by a PayPal employee who said that this is kind of a loophole, that they don't have rules against multi-accounting there. And that when there's a suspension on PayPal by this bot, all that's getting suspended is the account, not you, which is kind of dumb. But I said, are you sure? Is it 100% sure? You're suspending the account, not you. So you can create another one, and that's that's the only way you can get around it. So, that's what people have been doing. Just every time they get banned by uh, the PayPal bot, they just go make another account. Now, that doesn't mean you can go cheat people on there or scam people. Then they may ban you and ban all your accounts. But if it's one of these things just uh, where you get banned for some kind of minor violation in, in the bot's opinion, but you're not scamming people, then uh, you can create basically unlimited accounts there without consequence. Well... I am concerned now that having to verify your identity may be the end of that. If you have to actually verify your identity, it may say something like, sorry, this account already exists on here. You can't make another one. Like You you may only be able to have one verified account, is my concern. And they may not even be doing this just to, you know, to prevent multi-accounting. This just may be a, a side effect. I, I haven't 
found information that this is going to occur, but it kind of makes sense to me that it will. So hopefully this will not be the end of the days of being able to make additional PayPal accounts when you get banned. Otherwise, uh, some of us are probably not going to be on PayPal anymore. So that really sucks. Um, The Verify Identity, why are they doing it? Well, they don't state that, but I believe this is just kind of the typical know-your-customer routine that companies like this are required to do for a few reasons. First of all, uh, habitual scammers are easier to keep off the system. Uh, This way they know that the people on the system are really from the country they claim they are. Uh, This way, if there's any accusations of money laundering or other issues like that, that they have better records of who's doing the money movement and can turn that over to authorities and show that they've been diligent with knowing their customer. If, If a a company like this, if a payment processor like PayPal is lax with know-your-customer procedures, which, by the way, they have been, then they actually can get in trouble. So it may be about that. It probably is not about preventing multi-accounting, but that may be an unfortunate side effect. So those are some obnoxious changes coming from PayPal. So keep that in mind. So, Eric Benzamokin, as I've mentioned before, is a sponsor of this radio show. And, or should I say he was a sponsor for a few months. Then um, he decided not to be a sponsor anymore. But uh, not from any issue he had with the show. He loved the show still, and uh, you know, we became friends, and there was nothing about that. He just uh, ceased his sponsorship. But then he was donating a lot of money anyway to the free rolls, including tonight, which I really appreciate. So one day after the sponsorship had already ended last month, out of appreciation for all the money he'd been donating to the free roll after the sponsorship was over, I decided that I'm going to play his ad anyway. And Calwatt was on here, and Trey Daruski was on here. And I said, I'm going to play his ad anyway. His ad is about two and a half minutes. I made it. It's uh, an ad describing his law practice with the people's court music in the background. The first time I played the ad, people said, oh, that's a, that's a decent ad. Like people, it's not, not a really entertaining ad, but it's, uh, it's an informative ad. You, you get to understand everything, and uh, I tried to you know, put the music in the background to not make it completely bland. But people started hearing this every week. And people like, oh, a two-and-a-half-minute ad every week. Like they, they got tired of it just because they're so used to it week after week after week. So among the people who got uh, a little irritated to have to hear this again, which is so st- – like, I, I don't think that's right to get irritated because this show otherwise runs ad-free. How many other shows do you listen to with, like, no ads or one ad? It wasn't that it was irritating. It was just such a horrible <laughs> It's not a horrible ad. I disagree with it. Service. No, it, it, it is. It is. And, and plus, you'd lead up telling. Then you'd lead up to about the ad. You talk about the service, which is a great service, and then you'd play the ad, which was basically you explaining in a two and a half minutes what you just said in a minute. Okay, <laughs> I, I, okay. I will. I will admit guilt on that one. I will. I will concede that point. Okay, because I. I've, I. Not only did others tell me that, I noticed. I kind of noticed it myself. Like, why? Why am I? 
basically saying the ad in, in spoken word format and then playing the ad. Like, so, so I actually stopped that. Like, like after about two weeks of doing that, I said, you know, that's that's kind of dumb. I'm just going to play the ad and let it speak for itself. So. I actually just got a message from someone on Twitter, and I'm not making this up, a, a, a live listener to the show. He said, I thought the ad was pretty good. I, I actually – there's nothing wrong with the ad. It, it's long, but it's, it's informative, and it's just uh, – it's, it's a straightforward, informative ad about everything that's done there. And I, I think if over 30 seconds, probably uh, people wouldn't have any objection. It's just the ad was long. Now, I was just about to make like a, a more condensed version of it, and then uh, the sponsorship ended. So I said, okay, well, that's – no point to do that now. So anyway, uh, and I, by the way, I think it would be maybe Eric could do like a mediation between this Ferrari and uh, Peon guy. <laughs> <laughs> then we can incorporate that into a new ad. I see some promise with that. I see. Well, yeah, if you guys want the new ad, I was actually gonna, I was going to shorten this ad, and I was also considering just making an entirely new one that's a little bit shorter because once the the audience has been introduced to it, then they don't need as much information every week. But despite that. Despite that, I am going to play this ad anyway. But uh, so if you if you have to go to the bathroom, uh, my suggestion is don't listen to this entire ad and go to the bathroom during the segment. Actually, if you're listening in the archives, you can go to the bathroom and take this in the bathroom with you. In fact, even if you're listening live, you can take it to the bathroom with you. You can just take this. You can take this ad in the bathroom. I don't have a problem with that. But uh, th- this is uh, something that uh, I also want to say before playing this ad here that this is not a normal week of playing this ad. This is kind of a special week where I'm playing this ad. And uh, this week, Eric Benzamokin is not only a free world donor, but he's also a sponsor of the show. This one I'm not just giving his charity. He actually is sponsoring the show this week. But I have been told that in order to uh, qualify for the sponsorship this week, I, I have a requirement here. And I, I have to agree with this requirement, too, especially with what you just said to me here. Uh, this ad is formally, formally dedicated to Bitcherewski. It really is. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on this site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, 
Eric at eblawfirm.us. That's Eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Here we go. Trader Ruski. So how do you feel about this being dedicated to a uh, bitch Does that make you feel good? You know, whatever, whatever makes the sponsor happy, <laughs> but you know, I don't want him to take it as a personal insult. I was able to get through the second half of the Godfather while that was playing, but <laughs> by the way, I, I have to thank him in two ways, not only for sponsoring this week of the show and, and well, three ways, sponsoring this week of the show, sponsoring the free roll. And I had to piss really badly right now. So I, otherwise I, I would have had to just, uh, either hold it, which I've done sometimes. I, I've really held it for a long time. I'm really gonna get bladder cancer. Thanks to this show, but I, I've either held it or I have, uh, when really necessary, demanded the co-host just kind of talk about nothing and carry the show until I run back in. This is the problem with these live shows that are super long. There's there's the bathroom problem, and the bathroom problem comes up because I drink water during the show. You can't you can't talk all this without having to drink water. But then when you drink water and you're not sweating any of it out, you have to go to the bathroom. So you think about all these shows where I go like seven or eight hours without pissing despite drinking like three bottles of water. It's tough. So... I even have a friend who's a urologist who told me this is not good for me. So look at the sacrifices that I endure just to uh, do the show. Also, he said that that uh, if Brandon plays next week, which which is kind of iffy, but if he does play next week and and, uh, and knocks you out, then he'll send in an extra hundred. <laughs> Oh, by the way, we do have. Oh, by the way, the one when I got second, I think three weeks ago, when I had the first uh, thing against me. Yeah, I, th- I forgot to PM you to throw my second um, place into the tournament. So, can we roll it for next week, or do I'm going to send you an official message? Yeah, send me an official message. I might forget. All right, you got it. Yeah, I'm getting, getting old here. I can't remember all these things. All right, so let's uh, move on here. I'll, I'll put up a new. Uh, Note here, the new time we're starting for this topic, which is Facebook. I wish Trader Ruski was here for this. And Trader Ruski, if, if, you're, if you're hiding, if you're pretending to be sleeping. I am here. Did I say Trader? I meant Calwatt. I'm sorry. I meant uh, Calwatt. I, I know, I know. Calwatt, if you're hiding and pretending to be sleeping, please come out because... This is a topic, when I wrote up this agenda, I thought, I really want to hear what Calwatt has to say about this. And the reason, what I, the reason I really want to hear from Calwatt, not only is he just a smart guy who has good takes on things like this, but this is someone who works with uh, computers for a living. This is someone who runs websites for a living. He has, uh, 
he'd have a lot of insight into this. He he knows a whole lot about uh, the e-commerce business, and um, this is something where I think he would have a lot of things to say. So I really wanted to hear what he would have to say about it. In fact, I haven't even discussed this with him privately. So some of these topics, sometimes I'll have talked about it beforehand with him, not even though he's just in preparation for the show, but sometimes we'll just be talking. But the, uh, this one I have not discussed with him, and I really am curious as to what he thinks, though I would like to hear, of course, what Traderuski thinks. Uh, the Facebook thing, I'll, I'll show you guys toward the end of the segment what it has to do with poker. It doesn't have a, a major implication on poker, but it does have some. But the main reason we're doing this segment is because I think it's important, I think it's interesting, and I think it affects most of you because Facebook is uh, the biggest social media site in the world. And it's been around for over a decade. Now, I have mixed feelings about Facebook. I have always felt that they are very intrusive into people's privacy. That they, uh, they treat the user as the product, not the customer. And that's important to know. And that for that reason, since you're the product, they don't have very much respect for you. They have respect for their advertisers. In fact, I remember we talked about a tow truck company on here, a shady tow truck company, and we actually found a website where that company had a slogan that the people we tow are the product. You are our customer. You, the business owner, are our customer. And that was true. That's why tow truck companies treat those who are towed like crap because they're not the customer. It's the person ordering the tow is the customer. So similar situation right here that you are the customer you're not the customer of facebook the ones who bring them direct revenue are the customers so for that reason they have not treated their user base very well they have been very disrespectful of the privacy of their user base time and time again they have been very flippant in their responses to concerns by privacy advocates And I've just always been bothered to watch year after year after year where they either dismiss any legitimate concern or they pretend to solve the problem without really solving it. So I feel they've been irresponsible and dismissive and deceptive with the way they've been behaving. But I said mixed feelings, not all negative. So why mixed? Well, like like many of you, I joined the first real social media site, MySpace. MySpace was a complete disaster. Trader Risky, did you have a MySpace account? I may have had an account, but really didn't mess around with it too much okay. back then. Yeah, I, see, I, wasn't, I wasn't like a MySpace fanatic, but I did have an account that I actively used. And... I'm telling you, MySpace, it got so frustrating to navigate that site because they would allow people to customize their page with music, with with graphics, with videos. And it got to the point where you'd go to someone's page and it would be filled with so much music and and graphics and GIFs. And, like, it, it would – and videos, it would all try to load that at the same time, even on a relatively fast connection for the day. Uh, and, a, and a new computer, it would it would be – 
impossibly slow, and then it would bog down your computer so much you'd have to like cl- close the browser to get out of it because it would just freeze up. Uh, if you wanted to see the profile, you'd not only have to wait for all that to load, but then you'd have to find a way to stop all these autoplay music and videos that are playing there, which a lot of times it wasn't obvious how to stop them all. And they were often playing from like four different places on the page. It was a mess. And it was inundated with spam. You constantly got spam messages there. The whole place was a mess. And eventually that was its undoing. Facebook was the opposite. Facebook was very clean. Facebook was very controlling as to uh, you know how you could customize your page. Even that little banner you see on the back of Facebook pages now you, you, you didn't exist initially. So there was, there was very little that you could do to make your page look different aesthetically from anybody else. You couldn't embed music, you couldn't embed videos or GIFs or nothing like that. Very clean, easy to use, straightforward interface. Uh, and they did a very good job with preventing spam. You'd hardly get any spam messages. Even as they grew huge, you just didn't get much spam there which by itself was a pretty incredible feat. But the real reason I have mixed feelings about Facebook is it's a personal reason. It's a personal reason I have positive feelings about it, the positive side of the mixed feelings. And that is because I signed up there in July of 2009. In July of 2009, I was single. I was recently out of relationship, but I was single in July 2009. I did not join it to meet women or anything. I just happened to join it at that time. I remember not feeling like going through the effort of filling out a whole profile the night I decided to join Facebook. So I just put my name in and my email address, which was a newer email address, so I wasn't even an email address it um, would have recognized. And um, that was it. I said, I'll fill out the rest later. Knew nothing about me besides my email, my full name, and my IP address, of course. So I put it down and went somewhere for the night. The next morning, I logged into Facebook to complete my profile. And I found something really, really, really surprising. It said to me, people you may know, and it suggested that I add friends. It told me, we see you don't have any friends yet. Uh, Here's some people you may know. And it listed for me a girl that I knew from back in college that I hadn't talked to in years. Now, she didn't friend request me. It knew that I knew her when all I had entered was my name and my email address. And I said, how the hell does this know this? That's a little bit creepy. That's a little bit intrusive. How how does it know? I didn't browse her profile, nothing. I I came on there, entered my name, entered my email address. That was it. Well, I found out from her later that Facebook asked her to upload her email contacts list, and they framed it in a very harmless way. You may have friends on Facebook and don't know it yet. Connect with them by uploading your email list. So... She uploaded her email list. She didn't realize they're harvesting this data. But that's what they did. And even though I think the email address that she had wasn't the same one I signed up on Facebook, 
there's only one Todd Wittellis in the world. And Facebook noticed that. Facebook noticed that uh, Todd Wittellis signed up, and lo and behold, they did have a Todd Wittellis attached to the email list that this girl had uploaded sometime in the past. So it suggested her as a friend. It suggested some other people I didn't know, but uh, it suggested her as a friend. So they had an, a very creepy algorithm that used a lot of data that no one, no one's ever fully understood how it works, but they use a lot of data to establish that you might know someone and try to encourage you to add them as a friend. So, okay, I did. I mean, I knew her. It was someone I was on good terms with. It was no one I ever dated or wanted to date. Uh, as far as I know, she never had an interest in me. It was always just a friendship. But, uh, you know, we were friends back in college, and, and I liked her, you know, in, in a friend sort of way. And I, I, we kept in contact every few years. So and I said, yeah, sure. And I added her as my first Facebook friend. Well, two weeks later, after I had gotten a number of other friend suggestions – some of you know at, at this point I had filled out my profile so it started request it started like asking me to add everybody who I had gone to school with because we I entered what what high school I'd gone to so then I got all those suggestions that was pretty obvious but I got another kind of weird one but 2 weeks later it suggested that I add a girl there's a second girl that I knew in college that was a mutual friend of mine and the girl that uh, I had just added 2 weeks ago now, this second girl I had not spoken to in 15 and a half years. Not from any kind of falling out, but just we lost contact. We kept in contact for about six months after I graduated, and then just somehow we stopped talking. That was that. Uh, this second girl I actually really liked back then. This second girl I actually was very close to asking out, but the time was up. The school year was over, and I was graduating, and that was that. I actually knew her before that. I won't go into the whole story, but uh, um, really I, it took a while to get actually close to her, The kind of the final few months I was at the school, and, and then I was graduating by the time I would have possibly asked her out, so I said, screw it. So I, I kind of wondered over the years what would have happened if I had actually asked her out back then. Because I, I kind of had a feeling that it, it seemed like things could kind of work between us. It just I just kind of had that feeling. And I I'd wondered, what if I had done that? Well, there she was. So I added her. I sent her a message and asked if she remembered me, and she remembered me very well. And after some messages back and forth, she sent me her phone number, and I called her up, and we had a three-hour phone conversation, and then we had a three-hour phone conversation the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day for three weeks. And by the end of those three weeks, she had plans to fly to Vegas to see me for the first time in 16 and a half years. So, that is Benjamin's mom. Benjamin would not exist if it were not for Facebook. I told him that today, in fact, because he heard me talking with his mom about the controversy with Facebook, and I said to Benjamin, you know that uh, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Facebook, and he actually already knew that. He told me, yes, I know that, and I said, why? And he told me why. He, he remembered the story. But, yes, for sure, if there was no Facebook, then there would be no Benjamin. So how can I hate Facebook that much? When it facilitated this. But even though this is a sweet story, it's still a little bit creepy how the whole thing came to be, if you think about it. 
And I always kind of wondered, you know, like right from that start, right at the beginning here when I'm getting these friend suggestions that it's uh, either tricking people into uploading their email list. Because it didn't say upload your email list and we're going to monitor our system and the second someone signs up, we're going to let them know that they probably know you and add you as a friend. People would be creeped out by that. They'd just say, hey, upload your email list. If they're already on Facebook, then uh, you know, we'll let them know and we'll connect you together. Yeah, that sounds harmless, right? The whole point of Facebook is to connect with people you know. It starts to get more iffy when there's people that are not on there yet and then may sign up later and are going to get these suggestions. So right then I thought, ah, this is already a little bit creepy, this company. But I said, all right, fine. I see what they're trying to do. And it's not forcing me to add these people. It's just saying I may know them. The thing that I guess bothered me the most was that they weren't totally straightforward and honest about why that girl should upload her email list. And and she was really the typical Facebook user. She was not tech savvy. She was not privacy savvy. She, she, you know, she wasn't a dumb person, but she's someone who is kind of just your average computer user who doesn't think about these things. As long as something seems harmless on the surface, they do it. She wasn't the type who'd fall for a Nigerian email scam or anything like that, but she also is not someone who's going to sit there and think about what is their motivation? Why do they want my email contact? She's not going to think of that either, and most people don't. So I do, but most people don't. You, the listener, you you may do it too, but trust me, most people don't. Anyway. Over the years, I started to notice that Facebook was really collecting a lot of information about people just in the nature of how it operates because you have a friends list of all the people that you know, you know your relatives your friends your coworkers your former classmates uh other people you know through third parties anyone who's like kind of connected to you in your life that has an account is probably going to be on your friends list so that's a lot of information to have about you right there um a very effective threat against scammers when someone rips you off is, hey, I'm going to call, I'm going to contact everybody on your friends list and then let them know what you've been doing. And that will scare scammers sometimes because they want to, uh, scammers often want to maintain an air of legitimacy with those that they care about in their real life, in their regular life. So scammers hate that threat. But, uh, as you can imagine, having a list of every single person that someone knows, not every single one, but a, a large percentage of them, can be uh, utilized in various ways that that person may not like. So there was that. They have, the, they have your, all your friends. They, they, they know your interests. You know, you start joining Facebook groups. You start liking certain pages of things that are of interest to you. Uh, then there's your posts. There's your posts that uh, express your political views in addition to whatever groups you're a part of. Uh, the, so much information gets sucked up by Facebook on, you know, for each actively or semi-actively used account that really if someone were to look at your profile, they could write a very, very accurate description of you without even ever having met you or spoken to you. Even worse, it would not even require a someone to do it. It could be a computer. I could write a computer program to go through Facebook profiles and write an eerily 
accurate portrait, written portrait of anyone on Facebook that uh, used it actively, just simply based upon the things they posted about, the groups they were in, the things they liked, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Their, um, their, their friends that they have on there. There's really a lot about you is right there, and you may not realize it. Now, of course, if something that's violating your privacy is wrapped up in a harmless-looking package, then you continue letting it violate and your guard is down. Something that looks scary or ominous, you're going to be very careful. If Let's say you get an anonymous email saying, uh, Hey, I want to get to know you. you know, tell me about all the different people in your life. Tell me the names of your, all your relatives and your friends. You, 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 you wouldn't respond to it. You'd say, this is someone trying to dig for info. I don't know what they're up to, but I'm not responding. But when Facebook, you, you just add a friends list. You, you, add, you, know, you, you uh, add all your interests. You, you post all your reviews and where you've been, and you check into places you've been. I mean, you're, you're handing it everything all in the name of being social. And I thought, as I watched all this unfold, and I've said it before on this show, I wish I could find the episodes, but it was kind of more just like when we were making banter with each other. I thought to myself, this is bad news. This is bad news. And it was so funny because I remember all the panic about the NSA and the monitoring of phone calls and how can we trust the government to monitor our phone calls of you know trying to search for terrorists when this could be abused and they can end up... Uh, using it for purposes we didn't want them to, blah, blah, blah. And uh, as I heard these arguments, I thought, what about Facebook? <laughs> what about Facebook and these, and these uh, analytics companies that, that uh, get information? It's, it's not even Facebook. What about the Internet? The, the Internet, too, yeah. They're, they're, right. There's so many things that if, if, a, if information about you and your life wanted to be found between the Internet and Facebook – and uh, and even your purchasing habits and things like that that uh, the company share with each other. Uh, profiles can easily be put together to market to you perfectly or do worse based upon this information. Uh, you shouldn't be worried about your phone calls being monitored in mass, you know, to, to where it's very unlikely a human being is ever going to hear any of these conversations. Here, so much more is right there, and you're voluntarily providing it and don't realize it. And that's what I told people. that Don't fear the government and the, the NSA. Fear commerce, not the casino, but fear Internet commerce. Fear the big sites that are collecting data. Fear the fact that you are the product for Internet marketing. And they're collecting every bit you put out there or even that gets put out there about you. I saw this coming. I saw that it was going to be Well, a big- yeah, and, and it's just like – sorry to cut you off, Jeff. But it's just like everything for free. Like people don't remember the days where you paid $1,100 for a spreadsheet program or whatever it is. You know, it's like now you're getting to use this software for free. But it's not free. They got to make their money back in other ways, right? And people didn't didn't, th- didn't really think of that either. Facebook became huge. It became one of the most valuable com- companies in the world, and people didn't bother to stop and think. Most people did not stop and think. Wait a minute, what have I ever paid Facebook? Zero. How is Facebook so valuable? How is it making so much money? Uh, how can this be making Mark Zuckerberg the fifth? 
wealthiest man in the world if the amount that I've paid to them, if the amount that everybody I know has paid to them is... Zero point zero. That's what it is. So people don't actively think of that. So you raise a good point that you, you get this tool for free. You get to connect with all these people that you knew from the past, sometimes even establish uh, romantic relationships, as I did with it, even not intending to. Uh, you get to keep up with people that are in your life, uh, friends that may have otherwise drifted away. Like, uh, there's friends I, I interact with on Facebook that I really, you know, prior to us connecting on Facebook, we talk once every four years. Now I, I'm seeing everything going on in their life every day, and we'll talk in messages when, when we're both on. And there's a lot that is appealing about it, especially for uh, people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who have uh, kind of a lot of years have now gone between when they were in high school and college, and often they are physically separated from the friends they had back then. And it's a way for everybody to reconnect. In fact, people hardly go to college reunions anymore because Facebook has rendered all that obsolete for the most part. And, uh, yeah, and it's not just Facebook. I mean, it's LinkedIn and Truff. Let me tell you, I had the weirdest thing happen at Facebook a year or two ago where, like, my neighbor – I live, like, in a townhouse where there's, like, 14 units. It recommended her as a friend – but we had no connection. Right, right. And I, I'll, I'll get to that soon. That's actually part of the segment. That, that's, that's very creepy, and I had something even weirder than that, but along the same lines. But what's, what's also kind of weird is that at a time when normally uh, Calwatt goes to sleep, he is joining the show. I was fucking asleep. <laughs> now, what's we, up, Calwatt? We saw you log in about uh, 45 minutes ago. And yeah, I, and no, I, I got up to take a piss. That's what I thought. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll just go back to my old ways and listen to the show while I'm going to sleep. And did you hear us talking about how you were hiding? <laughs> yeah, I heard some of that. And then you started talking about this Facebook stuff. And I'm like, God damn it. I got to I got to get done. I was, ho- I was hoping it would draw you in because I, I knew that you'd want to comment about it. And I wanted to hear your comments on it. So I was uh, I was hoping uh, that this is fucking brutal. If I, if I was just talking about uh, lock poker or something, then you could just sleep. But uh, I knew this was going to draw you in just, just like the Vegas topics draw Brandon. in. As soon as those begin, we often get the call from him. Now, believe me, if I didn't have to take a piss, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> well, yeah, you wouldn't know what was going on. To be fair, you wouldn't know what was happening. You would just be uh, you'd be in dreamland. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, it's. It's so just. Uh, it, it was well, Druff. Well, let me. I, I I missed probably the last five minutes of whatever you said because I was coming down here. But like my my father is one of these people that you know he's he's older and he's really paranoid about his privacy. Like he he refuses, <laughs> and he's always refused to sign up on Facebook. And whenever he fills out anything, he always does it in his dog's name, <laughs> you know, and like he, he does all this shit. But I mean, here's here's the God's honest truth. Like as of today, as of 2018, like your privacy is just gone. Like it literally it does not exist. No matter you, you can take as many precautions as you like, but you would be shocked at how many data points that are have already been gathered on you. Yes. You know, no no matter what you have or have not done, not not to mention, 
you know, every time we hear about these data breaches with all this shit that's getting uh, getting leaked out onto the internet, even if you never signed up for any social media anywhere, you know, your your bank has probably had a data breach, or your insurance company, or any number of these other uh, places that you worked with, um, and there are other kind of things that people don't even think about. So, whenever you sign up for like a, a shoppers club card. Or, you know, uh, your local grocery has a car that you get discounts every now and again. I mean, what they're doing is they're profiling you, right? It's linked to your name, uh, your age, and all that kind of info. And they know your buying patterns. And they're they're profiling you actively when they're doing that. There's a funny story that uh, some supermarket, I forget which one it was, uh, actually was profiling from purchases which women were likely to be pregnant and uh, it, yeah. it erroneously thought that a woman was pregnant who wasn't. And uh, so it started offering her these coupons, those coupons that print when you're at the register, uh, things like uh, baby formula, any, things like related to, that pregnant women would be interested in buying. And she was wondering, what's this about? And she got it a few times. And then she went back and looked at the things she's been buying and realized that she bought a number of things that pregnant women are known to get just like foods they tend to crave or whatever. So it actually figured out that, that it thought she was pregnant when it was, a, it was a coincidence. She had happened to just buy things that uh, pregnant women buy too, but she's like, wow, this is creepy. I can't believe this. Yeah. So every now and again, you just got to go buy a whole bunch of weird shit and throw them off, you know, <laughs> but I, I, I work with a number of digital marketers in, in a number of different, um, uh, different spheres. And I mean, the, the shit that you can do, is really pretty outstanding. I mean, it's scary. Um, you know, one of a common tactic for advertising on Facebook is, let's say you've got a bunch of email addresses of people that are your customers. You take all those and you upload them to Facebook. And what Facebook does is in its massive database of, you know, 2 billion people or however, however fucking many people it is, it can create lookalike uh, audiences. In other words... Not not just profiling the people that you happen to have the email addresses of, but based on their database of those people and everyone else, they can come up oh. with a list. And, and, and the, <laughs> the limit is how much you're willing to pay for in terms of how many of these people you want to reach. But they will profile it based on that. I yeah. mean, it's just insane. Yeah, I just started doing that. And I've been kind of doing that hands-on to my marketing person. It's a whole other story. It's amazing what you can do. Yeah, and now you can target people, and I can upload a list of a hundred thousand people, yeah. and then I can get people that have similar backgrounds, and I oh, can yeah. expand it as much as I want. Like you said, Kawat, as much as I want to pay. Yeah, so. yeah, and you can target the fuck out of this, and this is what you know the uh, the Russian bots or the agencies or whatever you want to call them. Um, this is what they were doing. Yes, and and, and so what was <laughs> what was happening over the years with Facebook, and and I saw it happening. And was that privacy advocates were noticing this was going on and they were not happy and they would put pressure on Facebook to make changes to assist users in keeping private. But the problem was Facebook didn't want that because this was interfering with their business model to allow users to make themselves private. The whole point is for users on Facebook to make themselves public and to give as much information as possible and for that information to be passed on to those who actually uh, will pay Facebook. So Yeah, and, and like you said earlier, with Facebook, you are the product and you have been stripped naked 
you have been poked, prodded, inspected, and then shrink wrapped. Yeah, and th- then you're just served up to whoever they want to market. And, and the to. problem is, you you're not allowed <laughs> to know this. So the problem is that Facebook had this issue where they couldn't admit that you were just the product, and that they actually need to violate your privacy to achieve maximum sales. So they have to keep the harmless looking package. Uh, intact for you to want to continue using it in the fashion you were. So they have to keep misleading you and lying to you. And uh, so their their way of doing it was to, number one, just kind of hide from the problem and just uh, pretend it doesn't exist, even though they know it does, but to pretend it doesn't ignore those who are saying it does exist. Uh, make themselves know as little as possible about certain things that they don't want to know, so this way they can legitimately claim ignorance later. And uh, and then if pressured enough to make changes, make token changes that don't really do very much, but trumpet it as a big change they've made to assist you with your privacy. Here is something that a lot of people don't realize that at one point, I don't know what year this changed, but at one point some years ago, if you got an invite for Farmville or one of these apps that were very popular back in those days, and you click through to play them, these apps would get all the information on your profile. They'd get your friends list, your email address, your phone number, uh, your full name, uh, your picture. They, they, they could access everything. The only thing they couldn't access was your private messages and your password. They couldn't get those, but they could get anything public you've posted and uh, any personal information you've given Facebook, even if you haven't made that available to other users. They, they could get all of that if they wanted, and they did. And... Uh, Zynga, the company behind Farmville and, and all those uh, other popular games in the late 2000s, early 2010s on Facebook, they were actually responsible for 19% of uh, Facebook's revenue, I believe, in the year 2011. 19%! So, yeah, I believe it. So you, you can see who Facebook wants to keep happy. And if Facebook says... Yeah, while, while you were busy farming on Farmville, they're busy farming your ass. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's what's going on. Yeah, so, and if you think that they want to tell Zynga and other companies that are much uh, more sinister than Zynga, Zynga, hey, uh, we care about our users' privacy, so no, you can't have this data anymore. No, then they're going to lose. The the reason these companies are creating these apps is typically not for fun. They're doing it for some sort of business purpose, and often the business purpose involves harvesting data. They want data. So uh, you... By restricting that data, they're disincentivizing companies from these apps, from eventually running ads on Facebook and other revenue sources. So they want to keep the real customers happy, not the users who are the product happy. But Facebook couldn't be honest about that. So, Well, yeah, I mean, Druff, a, a rule of thumb is if there's any product or service that you're using that you're not paying for, you are the product. Yeah. I mean, whether it's a, a free game um, and it's a platform for online advertising or for harvesting your information or whatever. I mean, it's just <laughs> any any of these things that you're doing for quote unquote for free. You're the product. Now, what did we say yeah. about about this show? Then is this show who's the product of this show? This show is free. Huh. Well, that, that's a whole other story. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. I mean, all, all of this uh, these revelations about Facebook don't they make you think that? Uh, they probably really make you want to log in to be able to view the uh, log in via Facebook to view the WSOP. Oh yeah. Pass, right? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right? that's right. We talked about this a while ago. With what the, a fucking joke. So anyway, 
what they would do would be they 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 introduced some sort of token way that they claim you can protect your privacy, but it, it was never anything very useful. But one thing they did change that was significant, and it was just several years ago, may have even been before this whole uh, recent controversy started back in 2013, which we're just hearing about now. I, it was, I think it was kind of around then when they changed. It may have been before that. I forget the timeline. But uh, at some point, people were pissed off enough that these apps were just stealing everyone's data without their knowledge. That you just click through, hey, I want to play Farmville. Up, oh, Farmville's got all my info. Like, like uh, the average user didn't know this, but privacy advocates did and started making a stink about it. So finally, Facebook changed it to where when you try to click through to an app, and you may have seen this before if you've used Facebook, it then says, uh, warning, this app will, you know, Facebook will be giving the following information to this app. I don't even think it said it in those terms. Like, the, the, the app will be able to access the following on your profile, and it'll say your name, your email, and it would be different. Each app would make its own requests, and then Facebook would disclose this to you before you'd click, uh, you know, I agree, continue, or whatever. So it wasn't even I agree. It was something like uh, continue or whatever. You, you at least had a way to get out of it before the, the app would get your stuff. That was only because they were really, really given a hard time by privacy advocates, and Facebook felt that they had to do something here before this became basically today's scandal that could have happened many years ago if they didn't make this change. So they made this change. The problem was the average person is still going to click through. The average person is going to see an app they want to run, whether it's a game or one of those stupid little surveys where it, it, it tells you what kind of animal you'd be or whatever dumb things that you see these uh, typically like middle-aged women posting on Facebook. Uh, but no, I, I don't want to say just middle-aged women. Like, that, I, the, the, like what animal would you be is like what middle-aged women do. The, there's a lot of different things that everyone does there, not just not just women. You know, pretty, pretty much everybody has apps they find on there that would be interesting to run. A lot of them turn out to be crap, but at least they on the surface seem interesting. So when I would click through to these, whenever I'd see anything that it would get of mine in that warning, I would click cancel. But the average user would say, eh, okay, so it wants to know my email address and, uh, and my friends list and, and my name. Well, okay, I'm not thrilled about that, but what's the worst that can happen? So they click through. You know, I, I really want to see what animal I would be if I was born an animal. Really? You want to know what animal you'd be, Druff? I actually... <laughs> well, I actually kind of do, but that's... Wait, wait, which animal were you, Druff? No, but I, I hit cancel. I never got to find out. But I, I, the reason I got to that point is because I did want to find out what kind of animal I'd be. I just, I, it wasn't worth giving up my info, so I, I hit cancel. But most people would click through, and that is what happened with this current controversy where I think 270,000 people click through one of these apps that was, uh, I think, some sort of personality test or something that was packaged as something harmless, which, uh, in reality, the whole reason it existed was to harvest data and and to use it for for elections or, or basically anything else they could sell it to. But they did something beyond that. And that was with a friends list. And this is where it gets really offensive. The... Remember, you would give it permission to look at your profile. In fact, this, this particular app would harvest a ton of stuff in your profile. So people would click through. You know, 270,000 people agreed. Click through. But once it got to your profile, one of the things it would get was your friends list. And from your friends list, they were able to then see whatever you could see of your friends. This was a horrible feature that Facebook included that no one knew about. That... 
even people like me who said, oh, no, I'm never going to click through an app that is ever going to see yep. my information, that if my friends click through to that app, then the app can see anything they can see on my profile. It's it's almost like a virus. It is. You know, <laughs> it's a good description. It, it, yes. You, you just, you, you know, whatever your friends catch, you know, you, yes. you can get it too. <laughs> or like an STD, I guess, in a way too. Yeah. Well, you got to go a little out of your way to get the STD generally. <laughs> so you don't, you don't just slip and your dick, you know, falls in someone. That's true. Uh, usually it doesn't happen that way. So, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, that's the most offensive part is that you could be doing everything possible to not give these apps your information and then your friends would expose you anyway unknowingly they would just think that the friends list would be seen they didn't realize that from there they could actually see info about you know basically anything you could see on your friend's profile now the app could also see so now as you can imagine this gave them a much much wider net to cast for information and about 50 million profiles were harvested that way. And boy, would they have a massive pool of information. Because remember, people love to post about politics. People people would uh, join groups. People would... Uh, th- there are so many different data points they could use, as Cal White was mentioning before. Mm-hmm. And even weird things which you wouldn't normally associate. Like uh, there was an example given. I don't know if this is really true. But there was an example given in an article I read about it that they found a weird correlation that uh, people who were anti-Israel also tended to like Kit Kat bars. Like there was, a, there was some kind of weird connection that Kit Kat was liked uh, disproportionately by people who also hate Israel. So oddly enough, like if you put – that's the way they could use this. Where if they saw like anti-Israeli sentiment or groups that you're part of on your page, then uh, – you know, if Kit Kat was man, one of I'm going to show up at some of those rallies with boxes of Kit Kats. <laughs> they, 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 if, they, you know? if they saw that that was stuff on your profile, then if Kit Kat was one of the sponsors, that they would advertise Kit Kat bars to you, and they would actually work. Like, there well, that's, be- the, that's the important thing to note, Druff, and you know, them uncovering this is an example of that. Your data doesn't just sit there. They have machine learning that's going on that is – Figuring out incredible connections between all of this stuff. Yes, and with, I mean absolutely insane. Yeah, and with so many data points, with Facebook being so huge, with with this absolute gigantic user base they have, uh, these machines have so much data to use where they can discover these weird things, like like the Kit Kat bar being anti-Israel, with uh, which they would have otherwise never figured out. But just because they have so much data, they can actually figure out. Well, okay, this this. <clears throat> This is too much to just be a random anomaly. It really has to be some kind of correlation, even if it's some kind of just weird. Computers long ago beat the best grandmasters at chess. They're they're crushing high-stakes poker players. And that is a tiny drop in the bucket compared to the, um, the, the CPU power that's being dropped on the machine learning for lucrative stuff. (laughs) <laughs> like advertising and profiling people. Yeah, and I, I mean, well, right, and they weren't really applying AI and machine learning mm. really until recently to a lot of this stuff. And that whole area is just exploding. Because yep. now when you take the data analytics and the, and the business intelligence stuff and wrap AI around it, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And there's a lot of benefits for the user. 
you know, I mean, as far as stores, you know, Amazon's opening kind of like these, you know, since they bought Whole Foods and then they have some of these like cheap, not, I want to say cheaper Whole Foods, but they know like everybody within a five mile radius what they buy. And then right. they just have the stores and put that stuff in the stores. And I mean, it's really pretty incredible what they're doing. Well, and uh, draw Facebook with the, you know, the massive amounts of money that they're making, and and understand that if they're making all this money, and they're again, they're not charging you anything for uh, being a part of it. Obviously, you're the product, right? Um, but part of what they've used this money for is they they've since 2005 they've had 67 major acquisitions of other companies. Yeah. If you want to get away from Facebook. I mean, first of all, you can go ahead and you can delete your profile from Facebook, but your data is still there, and I hate to break it to you, but you clicked a button that said that they could keep it, right? So it doesn't matter. Go ahead and delete your fucking account. They don't care. They still have your data. It's all right. Um, but then you also have to not use uh, the the Messenger app, right? You also have to not use Instagram because Facebook owns Instagram now. Yeah, and WhatsApp, uh, too. And and exactly, and Facebook also uh, owns WhatsApp, and it's like, you know, I mean, what the fuck? It, it's it's kind of it's kind of like the, all the consolidation in Vegas with the casinos. You could say, oh, I hate Caesars, I hate MGM. You know, I, I don't want to play at those properties. Okay, well then you don't have very much left anymore to play in Vegas. Yeah. But it's even worse. Well, the whole 1984 uh, George Orwell uh, scenario happened, but it wasn't government. That did it. It yes. was private companies, right. like That's what social I was media, and and we gave it away because we're like, sure, I want to see pictures of cats doing dumb shit. That, that, <laughs> that's know? that's what I was noticing during the whole panic about the NSA monitoring phone calls. That you guys are looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> I kept saying that. People thought I was crazy, but uh, now it's it's it doesn't look so crazy anymore. And what's I, I got one one tangential funny thing that I want to. Uh, <laughs> that I want to mention. So, um, Facebook uh, owning Instagram. One of their competitors is Snapchat, right? You probably heard of Snapchat. It was infamous for you know people sending dick pics and other pictures that would expire that they didn't want anyone to see, right? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. Um, so I thought this was really funny, and it's kind of connected to this. Um, let me just pull up the quote here. So face uh, Snapchat, it's totally tangential, but it's still funny. So Facebook did a, uh, I'm sorry, Snapchat did a redesign in uh, late 2017. They like redesigned the whole UX and all that kind of stuff. In February 2018, Kylie Jenner sent out a tweet criticizing the redesign of Snapchat. Yeah, I know about this. <laughs> Go ahead and tell the story. The tweet reportedly caused Snap Inc. to lose more than $1.3 billion in market revenue. Yep, that's amazing. 1.3 billion from fucking Kylie Jenner saying she didn't like the UX. You know, who knows? Maybe she woke up and she had uh, she ate something she didn't like and she decided to just tweet that. But also <clears throat> keep in mind that this is 100% the case that anyone with a reasonably high profile social media account, they rent it out. There are, you know, I've talked yeah, about yeah. this before. There are underground 
uh, marketplaces where you can buy and sell different people's Twitters and or you know whatever Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and you know they're not gonna they're not gonna be blatant about it. And I don't want to be conspiracy theory about it, but who the fuck knows? Maybe Facebook toss some money Kylie Jenner's way and say, yeah. you know, say that Snapchat sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah, be surprised because uh, uh, Facebook bought Instagram in part as a, a plan to just crush Snapchat. I mean, that's why they bought it. Won't this be sad? And like, yeah, or and or they probably maybe saw that and then didn't Rihanna just do a similar thing and it tanked even more? Yeah, but at least at least hers was more. Rihanna's complaint was that they had some third-party company was running ads on there, and one of them was making a, a, like a little game about uh, you know slapping her, or slapping Chris Brown, and then she she heard oh, about this and she was pissed. So, right. so she gave oh. them. So at least, oh, at, yeah. At least they're oh. like it, I know it wasn't them doing it, but they'd allow that ad to run without anyone checking it, and uh, so at least there she had. A legitimate gripe. Uh, the funny thing is just, I, I thought the funniest part was with Kylie Jenner that she just says, ah, I don't like the interface now and it loses so much money. I mean, can you imagine like maybe in 10 years, Kylie Jenner will have the power to make one negative comment and, and cost the company $100 billion. <laughs> well, this is the crazy thing though. I mean, right there where you can see that there's one tweet from Kylie Jenner Costs them over a billion dollars. I mean, that tells you how valuable those social media accounts are. Oh yeah. So if you if you ever had any doubts about the stuff that I've mentioned about the fact that these are rented out and sold and all that kind of stuff, just erase them from your mind. I mean, that will show you how incredibly fucking valuable these things. Well, are. that that uh, Firefest disaster only was able to right. occur because they were smart enough to, or I guess I guess they dumb enough to get these uh, Instagram models to promote it and then not be able to even come close to delivering it. So that's why people right. fell for it and, and and created what it did. So yeah, it's it's amazing how powerful some you know, people like Kylie Jenner are that have these gigantic followings that uh, just express but, but if that's how powerful certain individuals on some of these social networks are just imagine how powerful the network itself is yes you know i mean it's it's out of this world oh it i really know is. i know and that's uh, that's become a big concern too and that's it's a whole different topic but about uh about them censoring certain things they don't like and what what influence they can have and it's uh it's starting to put uh, uh there could be too much power in the hands of, of certain private companies that can really influence a lot of things that they shouldn't be able to influence to that degree. So, but but getting back to and that's a whole different topic. But getting back to this uh, this situation here, uh, the problem there, there's a lot of different problems here, all kind of coming together. And I also say this about Facebook: the interface, the normal user interface on Facebook. And when I say this, uh, I don't have the power of Kylie Jenner, but uh, uh, their the normal interface on Facebook is very straightforward, intuitive. You, you don't have to be uh, a computer genius to figure it out. You don't have to be good at navigating user interfaces. Really, anyone can use it. There's even young children who can use it uh, without much trouble. The Even you know, very old people, even young children, you know, they can learn fast. But like, you, can, you, you can have like you know, 90-year-old grandmas that can use it who never right. otherwise use computers because it's that easy. So yeah, I because always... Because they spent an incredible amount of money on UX. Yeah, so, so I was always yeah. marveling at something with such an intuitive 
interface why the privacy settings were so incredibly difficult to use and understand. And they are. They're very, very, very difficult. It's hard to find how to change things. It's hard to understand when you're changing what it really means. Uh, the privacy settings are, are spread out all over the place where you think you've gotten them all, but no, you've got to go here and here and here and here. And there's no way that was an accident. And, and that's th- that, that no. type of thing really bothers me because they come out and they trot it out. And Mark Zuckerberg, who's, who's uh, probably a bigger limousine liberal than Prahlad, I mean, he's a, this is a guy who, who, who loves to brag about how he, he cares about the world and, and all that, you know, kind of in the whole Bill Gates model, except unlike Bill Gates, who, who, who really uh, does care. Zuckerberg, I, I think he likes to believe he does, but he, does, he also likes to ignore the bad that he's doing and that his company's doing. And, uh, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't, compl- you can't claim to care about everybody so much and care about the world so much and then run a company that is uh, – Engaging in these type of, of behaviors, which uh, even if legal, really uh, a lot of them are, are unethical, especially when you you respond to privacy concerns by saying, "Okay, we hear you. We've introduced such and such privacy settings. Uh, you know, now it's all better." And in reality, one, the privacy settings don't make things all that private, and, and number two, they're very hard to use or see where they are. Or even know they exist if you didn't follow the whole privacy uh, discussion, which until Druff, Druff, I think you're being a little little hard on him. Mark Zuckerberg is is going through a difficult time right now, and we should all respect his privacy while he works through this situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, this is this is this is it's it's amazing that that uh, so he so so that's what bothered me the most is, is the times they would make. Concessions for privacy. It was all just a show. It, it wasn't like it's one thing if they refuse and say no. This is the way the network works. It's always going to be very open. Everyone can access everything. If you don't like it, tough luck. Like they could say it in a nice way, but at least be honest. But no, no, no. They're okay. We take your privacy seriously. Here's the settings. Now here's something else. A lot of people still don't know. This is something which has not gotten much play, or I actually haven't seen any play in the media about this. But this is a very important thing to know if you use Facebook. Okay. Let's say you join a group. Uh, called I Love Big Dick Transsexuals. Let's say you join that group, okay? Because you because how did you, how did you know? Oh crap! I, I, there's just a, a, a hypothetical. I'm sorry. All right. So, uh, but let's say you join that group, and of course you don't want all your friends and family. You don't want your 90 year old grandma seeing you join that group and you're posting in it. And you, you don't. Uh, you know. You want you you figure that you're pretty safe there because the only other people who will, be in that group will be others who love big dick transsexuals just like you. So you join the group and after a while you get comfortable and you start uh, posting about it and uh, you think this is kind of your own little safe corner where people can't see what you're doing. And you make sure, you know, since you're pretty computer savvy, you go, you go through and you make sure that your privacy settings are all right and that uh, you know everything looks good and you've done all you can. You really have done all you can to keep it private. And you even check that the group is private and you notice that the group is private. So you're okay, sweet. Nobody can see. Nobody knows. Well, one day the owner of that group, who's just a regular Facebook user like you, the owner group says, "You know what? We're just not getting many members these days. People don't like the whole thing of, uh, you know, ha- having to join and not be able to see any content and wait till I approve them. This all sucks. You know what? We're we're gonna make it a lot easier for people to find and participate in this group. We're just gonna open it public. That person makes that change. All of a sudden." Every single post you have made in that group since you've joined it 
are searchable and easily findable when people search your name on Facebook. They'll search your name, and among your profile and other things that will come up, there will be your posts in that group. And, and that's an important thing to note, Drup, is that <clears throat> anything that you make private on Facebook is private only at Facebook's acquiescence. You know, they they could change the rules when they want to. Yeah. It's just the same way that these group owners can change yes. the rules. And and something else that uh, and and I actually kind of got caught in this recently. It's not a huge deal, but so people post on my Facebook, uh, you know, people my f- Facebook friends. I have some that just sit there all day and all night just bashing Trump and bashing Republicans, blah blah blah. And I, I usually don't get into it with them because it, it's it's pointless. But uh, some of them I especially won't get into it because some of them are so sensitive about politics that they. They can't have uh, an ideological debate without hating you, and and these are people I don't really want to alienate just just because I've known them a long time. Like, wh- why do it over this? Like, I I I I know they can't handle it, so I don't even want to bring it up. But there, there's there's someone who's on my Facebook uh, who who I know can handle it, and and when this person will and this person does make a lot of political posts, and this is one of the few I will bring up a counterpoint. And then this person, you know, their friends are very left wing, so they usually like go off and attack me super super vigorously, but I don't care. I don't know these people or care about them, so I, I'll debate back and forth with them. Uh, anyway, th- the reason I'm bringing this up is that at some point this person changed their Facebook pr- profile, their Facebook settings for their default settings for whenever they make a post, they changed it from friends and friends of friends can see it only to everybody can see it. So for some time now, I don't know how long, anything I've been posting shows up on the feed of all my Facebook friends. So, so like, so these people who I think I'm keeping, I'm, I'm, I'm like not letting them. These people know that I, I'm, I'm right of center. Like, I don't make a secret of that. I, I'm not a phony. But at the same time, like, they, I, I know these people will be bothered to see me making, uh, expressing the views that I express. And, and so I, even though they kind of know what my views are, as long as I'm not expressing them, they're not seeing it. It's not pissing them off actively. But all this time, they've been seeing this. Because every time I post on this other person's page, which has nothing to do with it, like this is a person none of those people know. This is a person I've known from, from like 25 years ago that, that can just, you know, it will not get offended if I bring up a counterpoint. So I've had an audience watching it all this time because if you would, if you're friends with me on Facebook and, you, and, and you're watching your feed, it'll say like, uh, you know, you, you'll see my comment on this person's page. You just click through, you can watch the whole conversation. And most people on Facebook don't realize this. Most people think if you comment on a friend's post, only your friend and their friends are going to see. No. If they have it set to public, which is like a little globe on the top right of their post, there's a little globe there, that means everybody on your Facebook friend list can see it, and any search for your name will come up with those posts. People don't know these things. Same with a, a group that's set to public, as I just said. Anything you post there can be found. The average Facebook user doesn't know this, and even I, who do, I, I have known this for a long time, I don't keep up with every change someone makes in their status. So this person recently changed their status, maybe not that recently, maybe it was a year ago. I, don't, I, I know when I first started doing this, they were keeping their posts to friends and friends of friends. At some point, they changed it. I, I wasn't watching for it. It's not obvious when they change it. You have to kind of look for it. And, and now everybody's been watching what I've been posting on their page. Not, not the end of the world because I wasn't pretending to be something I wasn't, but it was kind of irritating because now, like, you know, some of these people who can't take the opposite political view being expressed, I wonder if they're just, like, watching my, my wall and, and, like, watching what I'm posting and, like, kind of secretly hating me. So uh, I was kind of pissed. And this uh, I kind of discovered this, like, like, a day after this whole thing hit the fan with, with Facebook 
this past week. So a lot of people don't know about the whole public thing. And here's another crappy thing with the public thing. You can lock down your profile as much as possible, aside from deactivating your account, which is CalWatch says they still have your information. But you can lock down your profile to where the least can be seen about you. But guess what will still show up? Every single public group that you're a member of. So again, you can lock it down as much as you want. And anyone who searches for you, you can just scroll down and, and they'll see group membership. I love big dick transsexual. There's no way around it. No way around it if the group is public. So you should look on Facebook, the groups you're part of, if you're not proud of being seen as being part of that group by everyone, I would leave the group if it's public. Even if it's not public, I'd be watching that the group doesn't change to non-public or these things can be seen. And they don't educate their users to know this. They don't want to. They want everyone just to interact freely without a care. They want you to kind of believe that everybody, the only people who will see what you're posting are the ones who you want to see. And uh, this has been intentional. And it bothers me that the privacy settings are not even real privacy settings. All you're really setting is what, uh, when you share information, just on your own, what can be seen by, by the other users on Facebook, but not when you're interacting with others on there, that's always open to everybody to search and find. And uh, um, the average user doesn't know this. They're, they're very, very... And they're, always, they're also always changing settings on there. They're always changing what privacy settings you can do, and a lot of times they default to things you wouldn't want. So there's a lot of issues with Facebook and its privacy. Now let's get to the Mark Zuckerberg statement. He, he was silent for about a week as this was all going on. Hmm. And for those of you that don't know, I'm sure almost all of you know, so we're not going to go into a long explanation, but basically that app I talked about with the 270,000 users where they access all the friends' data uh, and and then got info on 50 million people, uh, this was eventually utilized by on behalf of the Trump campaign to uh, more effectively deliver fake news and other stories that would influence the election. They, you know, they, they pretty much, uh, and, and, and by the way, have you seen the, the channel four? Um, that's a, a, a channel from the BBC did an investigative re- undercover report on these guys. Have you seen those videos? Uh, no, I have not. Holy shit. I, I'm going to send them to you. They are off the fucking charts. They're crazy. They're crazy. In terms of the, the shit these guys were doing, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things where, first of all, you look at you look at it and you're just like, "Holy shit, this is fucking crazy!" And then you're also like, "Oh Christ!" You know, every truther and conspiracy theorist out there is going to be like, "See, <laughs> I fucking told you." Yeah, the, the, um, but true. they they were doing shit, man. They were, you know, creating all sorts of. Um, uh, a fake, not even fake news, but just smear campaigns and spreading it around. They were they were doing things like hiring prostitutes to go uh, seduce politicians and videotape it so they'd have dirt on them. And they were, you know, uh, offering bribes that the, the, the various campaigns just could never res- resist and were videotaping that and then delivering that to their competitors. Uh, the people that were running again. I mean, they were doing just absolute cloak and dagger crazy shit. Yeah. I'll send you those videos. If yeah, you I, haven't I, watched yeah, them, I do want to see totally them. I, do wanna, I definitely want to see them. And, 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 you know, these, now, these dirty election tricks, these have gone back 
a long way, way before we were born. Okay? Yeah, but the scale of what you could do right. is that's different. A, that's what I, mean, I was going to say. Is it much- totally, yeah, totally they've been around for forever, but in the same way that uh, weapons have been around forever, now that we've got nuclear weapons, the scale yes. of what you can do is totally different. Yeah, and and that- the scale of what you can do online with these this shit is it is a nuclear weapon. It really is. And that's why I was and- saying to people, when this when this came out, I said – Okay, this company that did this is obviously very sleazy and, and did a lot of really shady things. But you know what? This 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 is exactly what – these companies are always going to exist. There's always going to be very shady companies out there that, that are going – that their whole business model is to take money from a, you know one politician and smear the other or, or gather information about the other. This is – now they have many more ways to do it. It's a, a much uh, – higher order of magnitude of, of what they can get and what they can do in the past. But the thing is, I, I felt at first, and fortunately it's starting to move away from this and starting the finger's starting to point to Facebook uh, more, which I think is better now. Uh, but before, at first it seemed like the finger was pointing too hard at the company itself, which deserves it, but we know there's companies out there that do things like this. It's interesting to see what they've been doing. It's kind of scary, but but uh, I, I didn't want it just pointed mainly at that company because then you kind of think, okay, well, once we've exposed them, the problem's solved. No, this is uh, the reason the problem got so bad is because Facebook knowingly allowed themselves to be used for this, and and they really did knowingly. And here, here's the most disturbing part: is that they actually caught this as it was happening. They actually figured it out as it was going on. That uh, and this started with uh, you know, an academic uh, at uh, at Cambridge University. His name was uh, Alexander Kogan, and he created a uh, this this you know, know your personality, whatever it's called, this, this this quiz app. And so they noticed that Kogan's app here. This app was created five years ago in 2013. They noticed that uh, in addition to the 270,000 people who installed it, that uh, it was harvesting tens of millions of people's information from the friends list. So Facebook caught it. Facebook noticed the unusual activity from this app and contacted them and said, hey, 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 whoa, 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 what's going on here? What are you guys doing? And they came back with, uh, uh, let's see, uh, oh, 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 um, you know how I'm affiliated with uh, Cambridge University? Well, um, we're, we're doing this. We're collecting all this information, all this user data for academic purposes only. <laughs> and, then, and then Facebook said, oh, oh, it's, it's for academic purposes only? Well, okay. Keep going. No problem. Well, and also, Drop in Kawak, did you guys see, there's a woman named Carolyn Everson who's the... Uh, I think her title's SVP of marketing at Facebook. But she was talking about, like, when they found out about it back then, she said they had an agreement with, I guess, the players involved that they were all going to delete the data. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, you know, it's like, okay, it's deleted. We don't have to do anything now. Right, right. And one other thing. Do you guys watch Homeland and all? No, I don't. Because they they, – Kawat? Yeah, I had been watching it. I haven't. I, I think I, oh God, I think I watched up to like season three, maybe. Yeah. Well, the last episode, though, it's kind of a similar scenario where they're showing the Russians, you know, using, and they basically, if you remember that image, like in war games years ago, 
where they show what would happen with the nuclear bomb, they they kind of show a similar graphic showing just how they kind of created this fake news and how they got it to push out everywhere, and it yeah. looked like a bombing. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's, like that's exactly what it what is, man. you were man. saying, Kawad, exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's digital napalming. Yeah. Hey, the, Drew, do, you, do you have the breaking news sound effect? Uh, well, I can get some here. So the, let me play that sound effect first. So as as we're well, I heard the last two seconds. Um, (laughs) As we're discussing this, I got an email from Facebook. (laughs) From I swear to God, from the Facebook User Experience Research Department. (laughs) Hello, Facebook is holding a series of seventy-five minute remote research sessions starting on March twenty-eighth. We want to learn about how people use Facebook and how we can make it a better experience. As a token of our appreciation, if you participate in the study, you will receive a $100 Amazon gift card. (laughs) That's better than most people Please click here if you would like to to fill out a three-minute survey. (laughs) What fucking timing? Are you sure sure it's real? Are you sure sure it's not uh, phishing? I'm 100% sure it's not phishing. I've looked at the email headers. I've looked at everything. but I mean, here's the other, and I, I, we're going to circle back to Facebook. But the the thing to keep in mind is that Facebook is just one data point out there. I mean, Facebook is huge, yes, but so is Google, right? And in China, so is WeChat, right? And I mean, the the amount of information that all of these companies have collectively is off the fucking charts. I mean, it really is. Yeah, that's it. It really is, and this is hopefully this is going to start waking people up to it, and then maybe there can be some uh, changes well, in yeah, the conversation. You about might it. know what the Druff, maybe maybe you do. I don't know, probably not. But Traderuski might know. Um, Traderuski, do you know what the GDPR is? Um, I don't. I don't either. So, okay. So the this is a a law <clears throat> that was recently passed by the EU. Um, it's the EU General Data Protection Regulation Act, and it is targeted exactly at companies like Facebook and Google and um, all these other ones in terms of people's right to own their own information um, and to be able to have uh, you know some semblance of privacy. Um, so, for instance, it's going to be illegal um, – for companies to do anything with cookies unless someone has clicked and agreed and said, yes, you can do that. Oh, interesting. Right? There had been an optional one. There, there are a whole lot of other um, parts of this, and they're backing it up with some serious fines. Um, yeah, organizations, I see that showing up recently on a lot of pages now. Well, you're going to see it showing up even more. It's about 60 days before the, the GDPR goes into effect. Um, but this is, I mean, these companies have grown so big and so powerful that, and, and I'm not a huge fan necessarily of government regulation, but that's what it's going to take. Um, and that's what the, the EU is doing here. Um, they're saying organizations can be fined up to 4% of annual global turnover for breaching the GDPR. Um, and wow. which is for, I mean, the bigger you are, the harder you fall, you know, from, from this point of view. And it doesn't just affect um, companies that are inside of the EU. Any any 
website, for instance, that EU citizens are visiting are, in theory, covered by this. Um, and, you know, if they have any kind of a presence anywhere in the EU, they're going to exact these fines on them. Um, and they're, they're doing some interesting, I'm not going to go through exactly what the GDPR is doing, but it's a, it's a big thing in my industry because a lot of companies are scrambling to try to become compliant with this because the fines are just so horrendous. Um, but it really is going to take regulations like this because self-regulation honestly has not worked. Yeah, it hasn't. It just hasn't. I'm sorry, but it hasn't. No, it hasn't. I agree. And I, I don't love government regulation either, but I, something does need to be done here. This is, it is getting out of control. Now, listen, listen well, and, to- what, and what people need to be able to do is they need to be able to reclaim their own information. You have been a product for so long. Your information is valuable. You should be able to re, you know, take it back or at the very least, you know, make some money from making that information available. Yes. You know? Well, well, to play devil's advocate, though, I've been using all these tools for free, and I haven't been paying for software, and these are improving my life. Well, yeah, but well, they, and, and I paid for it with giving them my data. Well, as long as you, you as know? long as you, but the thing is, I think I think people need to fully understand uh, what they're giving away. On Facebook, people had no idea and still have no idea. So that's that's the the deception was what bothers me the most about this whole thing is there was a dev- definitely a deliberate de- deception in s- several ways right. that was uh, committed here by Facebook. Now, and I'll, I'll touch on this. We're going to, I'm going to read Mark Zuckerberg's statement. He has been avoiding right. this like the plague. And uh, there's been a lot of calls. Okay. Zuckerberg, you got to say something You're You're the face of the company. People trust you. You, you have to say something. You can't just hide from this. So, so finally he came out today and said something. But I, I don't like what he had to say. He's uh, They're still not quite grasping this. It reminds me of Apple with the whole battery fiasco where they were uh, <laughs> slowing down people's phones. And if, at first they were very arrogant about it. No, we don't slow down people's phones. That's, that's it. We don't do that. And then it, it, like people weren't happy with their response and it, it started to affect them. And then they realized they had to do something more than that. So Facebook is still kind of in the phase of, oh, no, no, we, we've, we've pretty much done everything right. We should make a few small tweaks. That's That's basically what this statement is saying. But I'll read it to you. I want to share an update on the Cambridge Analytica situation. That was a company that uh, grabbed all this data. And, Dref, you have to watch those videos. No, I, I will. I will. I actually have a lot of interest in this story, so I'm definitely going to watch it. And, and yeah. uh, by the way, this uh, one other thing I want to say before I start reading this, Cambridge Analytica actually did – they didn't hack Facebook. There, there's some people who believe they hacked it or stole data that you know it was privileged data. No, they used Facebook's existing rules right. to just collect it all. And Facebook stopped them, said, wait a minute, why are you doing it? Oh, uh, we're, we're doing it for academics. Oh, okay, well, proceed. That's what happened. It was not a hack. Right. That's what's so bad here is that it wasn't even like, a, 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 you know, okay, well, companies get hacked. This happens sometimes. It sucks, but what can we do? Th- th- this was uh, using Facebook's own structure that they intentionally put in place. Some people said, oh, Facebook was just naive. They didn't know it could be used this way. Yes, they did. But anyway, let, let's, uh, let, I'll read well, this And, and Druff, back in the day, like you and I know, because we've kind of been around this for a long time, but back in the day, you know, the, the people that were hacking into various systems, they, they really were just, you know, bored teenagers sitting in their basement, right? Yes. But, but these days, that's not what it is. I mean, there are businesses that... Their sole goal is to be able to hack into various places to um, harvest information. And if Facebook willingly 
gave away this amount of information. Imagine how much has been stolen by these thousands and thousands of hacks that have just ripped everything out. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's incredible. All right, let's hear what fucking Zucker Dick has to say. So he says, uh, uh, I want to share an update on the Cambridge Analytica situation, including the steps we've already taken and our next steps to address the important issue. We have a responsibility to protect your data, and if we can't, then we don't deserve to serve you. I've been working to understand exactly what happened and how to make sure this doesn't happen again. The good news is that the most important actions to prevent this from happening again today, we've already taken a few years ago. Okay, stop right there. That's that's already a big problem. That that's that's unfortunately the theme of this whole statement. He peppers in a few "we're sorry, we failed" comments, just kind of quickly dropped in there. But most of it is letting everybody know, "Don't worry, we took care of this years ago. This is an old story. You're just hearing about it now, but we've taken care of it since then. Everything's fine." Untrue. Which, well, which, and, and again, rough like what you said before. He said in his statement, "We're I'm trying to wrap my head around what happened and how to prevent it." They knew this was fucking going yes. on when it was happening. <laughs> Give me a break. So he Give says, me a break. But we've also made mistakes. There's, there's more to do, and we need to step up and do it. Here's a timeline of events. In 2007, we launched the Facebook platform with a vision that more apps should be social. Your calendar should be able to show your friends' birthdays. Your map should show where your friends live. And your address book should show their, should show their pictures. To do this, we enabled people to log into apps and to share who their friends were and some information about them. Okay, let's stop right there. Doesn't that sound harmless? Doesn't that sound nice that uh, it's a way for you to socialize with friends and you know, give your friends your address and give your friends uh, – you know, share your pictures with your friends and have your friends know your birthday? This is not about any of that stuff. This isn't no. about friends sharing uh, information with each other. This, this, this no. is about them willingly giving access to companies that were making them money. They, they gave app developers access to most of the data on that site, and people had no idea. That, this is mass uh, That's just you being shrink-wrapped. Yes. <laughs> this is not – so this is BS, right? And unfortunately, this is what they've been trotting out as the canned excuse for many years about any kind of privacy concern. It's, it's always this, the same answer. It's basically we're a social media platform. And sharing of information is important. That's a, that's what it is. What do you expect? It's social media. People are supposed to socialize. So we have to share information. I'm sorry. This is not a, a place for privacy. That That's what they've been trotting out there. And then in order to convince you that they're right, they'll trot out an innocuous example like the one I just gave, the one, they, well, the one he gave, uh, where people are willingly just sharing things like their birthday and their location with friends. But that's not at all what's going on here. And, uh, and that's not anyone's problem right now. No one's angry that uh, – their friends got to find out their birthday or got to see pictures of them. So, uh, go, going on. So he says, t- "Well, Joe Seabach might be a little yeah, that's that's true upset about that's something." True. But anyway. to, to be fair to Facebook, that Facebook wasn't involved in that one. So in two that in two thousand thirteen, and I like how they just jumped six years. Like like just those six years are totally inconsequential. Yeah, more like nothing oh, nothing, nothing happened. Yeah, that time. more like over those six years, there was a, a massive growth in the number of apps and data that was harvested by them and facebook totally was okay with that with privacy advocates constantly screaming at them that this is unethical and facebook was dismissing them and ignoring them and occasionally making some small change to privacy settings and claiming the problem was solved Uh, for some reason we skip over that inconsequential stuff and we just jump to 2013 he says in 2013 a Cambridge University researcher named Alexander Kogan created a personality t- a quiz app. It was installed by around 300,000 people who shared their data as well as some of their friends' data. 
Given the way our platform worked at the time, this meant Kogan was able to access tens of millions of their friends' data. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, so there's so much, so so many problems with that. Given the way our platform was working, like like as if that just happened to be the way it was. It just happened to be the way it fell. Not that they intentionally made it work that way, so apps could access a lot more than they should be able to in order to incentivize them for being created. No, it just happened to be the way it was working. Uh, of course, he doesn't mention the fact that apps were once able to just grab information when you clicked on them without ever warning you or giving you a chance to opt out of it. Uh, he skipped that part, of course. Yeah, we, we raped you for the last six years, but uh, we're not doing that anymore, so <laughs> everything's fine. No and, big deal. And, no problem. And, and then the whole thing about harvesting the information from the friends, which is even worse. That was a huge loophole. And, and an intentional loophole, and one which, by the way, still has not fully been closed, which I will get to shortly. So the question you have to ask yourself in response to what Zuckerberg wrote there is why. Why was this allowed? Why were apps initially allowed to grab so much user data without the user's permission or knowledge? I know they finally changed that, but, but why was this even allowed in the first place? What was their thought process there, if, if they ever had your privacy in mind? And then even once they changed that to where you have to give the app permission – why were they allowing the apps in 2013 when they've existed for so many years by that point? Why were they allowing the apps to grab information from someone's friends without the friend's knowledge or consent? This wasn't an accident. Why? What was possibly the reason other than we don't give a shit about your privacy? All we care about is that apps get to harvest your data and we make money. There's no other possible explanation for why they'd made it this way. So it wasn't well, just – Drew, Well, Drew, think about it for a second. Think about – a marketing company has your privacy in mind. Does that even make sense? No. That's antithetical to what a marketing company does. <laughs> you know? Of course they don't give a shit about your privacy. They're in the job of profiling you and selling you shit. Yes. It's and- absurd. Absolutely absurd to think that they have your privacy in mind. And, and when they did these small changes to security settings over the years... All they were doing it for is to check off the we're protecting your privacy box. So uh, this way uh, they could claim they did something. And uh, in fact, it would mislead many users to believe that they had more control over their privacy than they really did. Uh, of course, nobody knew about this thing with the friends except for the app developers. Nobody knew that their, their friends could join apps and then the, your information would be seen the same way your friends would see. Like, people didn't know this. So, so well, the Russians knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so so, it's, it's, so it's hilarious the way they're dismissing this as just given the way our platform worked at the time. More like uh, given the way we wanted our platform to work at the time. and, uh, and app Every brick of that was engineered intentionally. Yes. I mean, give me a break. So then he goes on to jump to 2014. In 2014, to prevent abusive apps, we announced that we were changing the entire platform to dramatically limit the data that apps could access. Okay, that sounds good on the surface. Most importantly, apps like Kogan's could no longer ask for data about a person's friends unless the friends had also authorized the app. By the way, that's not true, but uh, I'll I'll explain shortly. Uh, We also required developers to get approval from us before they could request any sensitive data from people. Notice they don't describe what sensitive data is because they probably don't want to admit how much was accessible (laughs) without that approval. Uh, These actions would prevent any app like Hogan's from being able to access so much data today. So that's another stupid thing here. So first of all, 2014 is seven years after 2007. So after they first started allowing apps on there. So seven years of privacy advocates complaining, that's how long it took them 
being at the time the largest, I think the second largest site on the internet behind Google. Uh, that's how long it took them to make any changes. And then uh, furthermore, uh, as I said before, why were those apps able to access the info in the first place if they, if they cared about this? So really Facebook's view was our users love these apps. And uh, in, in many cases, uh, the app owners were, were paying customers in some way. So the users of the product, not the customer, and, and we have to keep the app developers happy. And if their main motivation is to develop these apps is, is to harvest data, then we don't want to take that motivation away. So the, now the last sentence there is disturbing if you listen to it again. These actions would prevent any app like Kogan's from being able to access so much data today. So much. Hmm. It didn't say these actions that we've taken would prevent him from accessing any of this data. So much of so much data, meaning that even if this exact same thing happened again, they're saying yes, data would be harvested again, just not quite as much. <laughs> so, so then, then he goes on to jump to 2015. In 2015, this, I, this is this is the dumbest part of the whole statement, by the way. In 2015, we learned from journalists at the Guardian that Kogan had shared data from his app with Cambridge Analytica. It is against our policies for developers to share data without people's consent. So we immediately banned Cambridge. Uh, we, so uh, we immediately banned Kogan's app from our platform and demanded that Kogan and Cambridge Analytica formally certify that they had deleted all improperly acquired data. They provided these certifications. And, and Druff, after you see those videos, you'll really laugh. <laughs> at what at, at what the certifications from them means. Okay, so there's so many problems with this. The whole thing is, is laughable, that part of the statement. Uh, as we mentioned before, they, they were aware this data was being harvested and let them do it because of this flimsy, uh, uh, we're doing it for academic research BS, and they didn't bother to look further into that uh, or, or even want to look further into that. But let's talk about this formally certifying that they had deleted all improperly acquired data. They, they asked... Uh, Coke and Cambridge Analytica to agree they had done this. Okay, let's go back to the first sentence of this paragraph. We learned from well, journalists... first of all, wait, Jeff, before you go to that, have you guys ever heard, as long as we've all been in the industry, that I'm formally certifying that somebody's deleting data that, I'm, that they have from me? No. No, it's... Where does it's, that even it, come from? <laughs> no, it, it's... It's ridiculous. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a guy promising a girl he's going to delete the nude pics he's got of her. Like, okay, yeah, good fucking luck with that. So, yeah, so the number one, the number one rule of personal information, and this is what I've known since the 1980s when I was part of that, uh, uh, the phone computer hacker community back then. This is something I learned as a teenager, okay? So somehow I knew this as a teenager, but, but they're pleading ignorance to this at Facebook. Uh, the number one rule of personal information is that you can't put the information genie back in the bottle. Once information's out there, it's out there. Once it's been distributed to even one undesired, undesired party, you've lost control of it. Yeah, so, and Joe Seabach can definitely fucking right, attest to that. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, so It's done. So, so by their own admission that Kogan had shared data from the app with Cambridge Analytica. Okay, so... By the, by this point, even if they get these two to say, "Oh, we deleted it," they, they don't know if that's if, if it's been sent anywhere else, or uh, or what's happened to it since then. This, this would be a, you want to bring up the Joe Seabach thing. It'd be like me certifying that I deleted Joe Seabach's cock off my laptop. This wouldn't mean that his cock was off the internet, even if my laptop was the first one to have it, which it wasn't. But even if it was, if I had already distributed it, 
or sent it to even one person, my certification, even if I was telling the truth, would not matter. Once information has gotten out, unless you are sure you've gotten to the one place it's gotten to and remove it before it could have possibly been shared elsewhere, then uh, and you're 100% sure it's gone, those certifications are meaningless. Now, the reason they did this at this point is because they wanted to cover their asses legally. And, yeah, CYA. Uh, yeah. Cover your ass. If this ever came out, which you know, three years later uh, it did. So that's why they did it. That's why they, they wanted to transfer the problem back to Cambridge Analytica to where they said, well, they certified they deleted it. If it actually was – if it was still there and they were misusing it, well, that, that's on them. No. They should not have gotten it in the first place. And that's a, so so dumb, it, like certified that they deleted it. Yeah. I mean, give me a fucking break. Yeah. The, these guys, I mean, the, the kind of shit that they've done, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they were just like, oh, yeah, we deleted it. They hung up the phones and started fucking laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine they're, they're on the, the, this, this Kogan guy and the rest of them at uh, Cambridge uh, the only The only benefit of this, and you're right, the, and, and there are, again, there are uh, whole marketplaces to that buy and sell this data, both uh, legally and above board and in the gray market and also in the black market. All this information is traded all over the place, bought and sold all over the place. The only small bit of solace is that a lot of the um, consumer profiling data is only really useful if it's relatively up to date. Um, so yes, that information will be out there for forever, but it will become less and less valuable yeah. over the years as people's habits and incomes and locations and that kind of stuff change. Yes, but yeah, I mean it's still it's fucking everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, so I, I can just imagine the conversation here. Uh, um, uh, hey, uh, this is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you guys got this data, and uh, you know I know you told us for academic purposes. We heard it's really not. So, um, can can you certify you're deleting it now? And then uh, Cambridge Analytica is like, Oh yeah, yeah, sure, Mark. Uh, there, okay, I'm deleting it as we speak. Okay, delete, uh, yeah. delete, Mark's delete. Like, uh, you delete. really, you really hit the delete button, right? Yeah, you're, you're hitting delete. Are you, you, you sure? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> I'm deleting it. Look, it's going. Do, do you, you know, confirm delete? Yes, confirm delete. Yes, confirm. It's it's all going, Mark. I'm, you hear me pressing the button? Click, 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 click. Right? And then, oh, okay. Well, it's good enough for me. Uh, can you sign a, a paper saying you certified you did it? Oh, sure, Mark. Okay, uh, goodbye. Okay, good. I think this is solved now. Goodbye. <laughs> So I, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, so for him ridiculous. to make a, for him to make a statement like this, it's really it's insulting the reader's intelligence. This is him not taking it seriously. How can they say? How can he write in a statement of something so major like this? How can he write a statement about this certification nonsense? I mean, come on, this is uh, you shouldn't even put that there. And Ruff, the, the amazing and thing about this too, I think. The, the amazing thing about this speech is that you know he's the head of a multi-billion-dollar company. He and his whole team worked on this for this whole week when he was MIA. Yeah. <laughs> and, th- and this is what they fucking came that, up that's with. That's what I, I thought mean, about. Really? That's what I thought about as I was reading this. I'm like, you know, he didn't hammer this out while he's on the toilet like Trump does with his tweets. This was like. And it wasn't just him either. That's what I'm it saying. It was a fucking team. I guarantee you. That's what I'm saying. They're, they're, that's what amazed me how clueless they are to, to the seriousness of this is that they take the time to come up with this. I thought the same thing. And, and they come up with this nonsense that they really think that they can kind of just talk their way out of this one and, and make it seem like they did nothing wrong and make it seem like that they've, uh, uh, they've already taken care of most of the problem. So they, 
they went on to say something. The first thing in the statement, which sounded like it might be going in the right direction, they said, this was a breach of trust between Kogan, Cambridge Analytica, and Facebook. But it was also and, a breach. And, and everyone, every person that's on Facebook, well, so this, right? So this is the only part of the statement that was good. Says, but it was also a breach of trust between Facebook and the people who share their data with us and expect us to protect yeah, it. Okay, sure. okay, okay, thank you. We need to fix that. I go, oh, okay, finally. Okay, finally. There. It's a, a small, albeit nonspecific, admission of guilt. Okay, fine. We're, we're finally starting to get somewhere past the BS about the certifications and, and, and the we've done so much to protect it already three years ago. But just when we thought that we're going to get the mea culpas and the meaningful changes coming to handling user data, uh, then we go right back to, to backpedaling. So, so it didn't last very long. Uh, he says, uh, uh, in this case, we already took the most important steps a few years ago in 2014 to prevent bad actors from accessing people's information in this way, but there's more we need to do, and I'll outline the steps here. <laughs> so, okay. No, they, they haven't. There's so much left to do. They didn't already <sighs> take the important steps. They're still back to, we've, just, we've done just about everything already, just a few more finishing touches. No! They, they, they're, they're right back to it. So... They're, they're trying to take advantage of the fact that this is a story that took place from 2013 through 15. So they want to try to make it look like, oh, you're hearing about it now, but we took care of this three years ago. It makes people feel better. The problem is they didn't. So, so, he, so here's, what he, here's what they wrote. Here's what he wrote here. First, we will investigate all apps that had access to large amounts of information before we changed our platform to dramatically reduce data access in 2014. And we will conduct a full audit of any app with suspicious activity. We will ban any developer from our platforms that does not agree to a thorough audit. <laughs> you, you know what this is like? This is like after someone breaks into uh, – uh, someone robs a bank and they end up getting every dollar in the bank and they get a huge haul and get away. And the bank says, OK, well, we're banning this person from our bank for the future. They can't come in here anymore. They're banned. <laughs> I mean, it was stolen. What, what, they don't need to come back. It's uh, so. And you say, well, you know, what about CalWatch's point that the data will start getting old and it'll become less useful? Well, okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The, even that's not going to be sufficient. So he says, and if we find developers that misused personally identifiable information, we will ban them and tell everyone affected by those apps. Great. Uh, the, the, that includes people whose data Kogan misused here as well. Uh, so uh, he just says, we'll tell everyone, not necessarily what they're going to tell them. We'll tell them exactly what they got, just that we'll tell them. But, uh, but okay, here comes the next part, which is also stupid. Second, we will restrict developers' data access even further to prevent other kinds of abuse. For example, we will remove developers' access to your data if you haven't used their app in three months. We will so, – okay, well, wait a minute. Three months? How long do they think this takes? The computer needs three months to go through your friends list and, and, and the, info on, the info on your friends. It's a very quick process. If they limited it to three days, it wouldn't help very much. So the, the three months is uh, – now, I know what they're trying to say. Oh, you know, the, if you authorized an app uh, five years ago, that it, it can't just keep pulling data from you. But, but this still isn't very useful because it's uh, – these apps, usually they're, they're, they're there to grab the info at the moment. And uh, – He writes, we will reduce the data you give to an app when you sign in to only your name, profile, photo, and email address. You go, okay, that's that's a good start. 
will require developers to not only get approval, but also sign a contract in order to ask anyone for access to their posts or other private data. <laughs> okay. A contract. So let's talk about the contract. So, um, do you think any of them are going to care if they break the contract? Uh, is Facebook even going to be able to verify that the people signing this contract are real? That these are actually real people signing the country? Could it just be any fake name signing? Uh, easily could. What about uh, other countries? Could it be people in other countries where this, nothing's enforceable? Uh, could this be that they just uh, someone signs the contract who's just uh, an employee who, who's a fall guy if anything goes wrong? You and, set up a proxy company. Yeah. You have you have one of their officers sign the contract. Yeah. You do your shit, and then you don't give a fuck what happens. Exactly. So as th- long as your mission is accomplished. So th- so this is this is useless. And how much you know with all these apps on there? How much time do you think they're going to have to vetting everyone who asks asks for information? And how much vetting can they do? Because you know someone will come up with what sounds like a reasonable plan of why why they need to access it, this information. Something that sounds harmless. Okay, approved. Sign the contract, please. Okay, I signed it. Okay, here you go. Here's all our info again. Like. like that. This is not solving anything. It's just it's adding a few steps, but it's not solving anything. It's just it's just putting a small extra burden on those who want to do the same thing. So then he says, third, we want to make sure that you understand which apps you've allowed to access your data. In the next month, we will show everyone a tool at the top of your news feed with the apps you've used and an easy way to revoke those apps' permission for your data. We already have a tool to do that in your privacy settings, and now we will put this tool at the top of your news feed to make sure everyone sees it. <laughs> uh, really? Really? So a question for you, Zuck, here. Uh, why did it take over 10 years to make people aware of this? Why, why, why weren't they seeing it before? What, was it an accident? It, it, on your very, very intuitive website and app? It, is there some reason that people had such a hard time finding it before? Was this just a, an inadvertent design error? Well, why now? Why, why, why do you want everyone to see it now as opposed to before? Because uh, he doesn't want to get hauled up in front of Congress. <laughs> so, and this whole thing about banning people, let me tell you something. Getting banned from, as an app developer there, it's very easy to sign up a new account under a fake name, under uh, somebody else's name. Uh, under a shell company, there's so many ways. to It's not like you get banned from there and you can never create apps on Facebook ever again. Of course you can. So um, let's say I made an app like this and I got banned. Well, okay, then Benjamin would tell us would sign up. I mean, and then when they come after him, I said, well, Benjamin's seven years old. <laughs> what are you, you going to do to him? Uh, so I, I could sign up my dog. I mean, this is just something that sounds good on the surface, these meaningless bans that make it seem like that they're bringing some consequence down upon these uh, evil app developers that are misusing information. But amazingly, in their own statement, they're admitting they're still going to give apps access to posts and private data. Why not just say, okay, we made a mistake. Apps can't access this anymore. Hey, we've thought about it. And hey, apps should not be able to see your posts. There's really no good reason for that. So we're taking that away. Hey, private data. You know what? Why should apps get so much private data? Uh, we're we're going to take away that ability as well. Uh, things like that. But but uh, they're not saying that. They're, they're, just, uh, they're adding a few meaningless steps. So he goes on to say, beyond the steps we already took in 2014, I believe these are the next steps we must take in order to continue to secure our platform. 
I started Facebook, and at the end of the day, I'm responsible for what happens on our platform. I'm serious about doing what it takes to protect our community. While this specific issue involving Cambridge Analytica should no longer happen with the new apps today, that doesn't change what happened in the past. We will learn from this experience to secure our platform further and make our community safer for everyone going forward. Really? Then, then this happened three years ago. Why, why are you saying we will do it? You, you admitted you found out in 2015 that the data was both stolen and misused. Not stolen, just appropriated because you allowed them to, and then misused, and that The Guardian, a, a publication in the UK, let you know about this. So you found out from The Guardian three years ago, and so now in 2018 you're going to take the steps. So what happened? So first you, you caught the app taking all this data, let them do it, then The Guardian informs you in 2015, hey, you remember that? How, fi- can, how can it be The Guardian <laughs> that lets them know? Yeah, the Guardian, I mean, seriously. The Guardian says, hey, you know that 50 million, uh, the group of 50 million user data that you let uh, Cambridge take? With, with all of the analytics and everything that they have running there on the back end, are you really sh- – going to tell me that they didn't know yeah. that this happened <laughs> and that's, i mean give me a fucking break hey, remember that 50 the 50 million <laughs> users info that was uh, compromised through your system by cambridge uh, yeah uh, they've actually been uh sharing the information uh just letting you guys know that oh oh crap well we better have them certify they're going to delete it okay problem solved yeah. no, no point to make I, any change in, in my in my opinion this is when the Guardian talked to them about it is not when Facebook found out when this happened. It's when Facebook found out that the world was going to find out that this happened. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. <laughs> so, so then I like this ending here. I want to thank all of you who continue to believe in our mission. No, I, that your mission is the whole problem here. And, 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 our, and work to build this community together. What do you mean build this community? This is the biggest social media site in the world and has been for, for many years. What do you mean build the community? It's, it's, it's here, and because, it's so, because you've built it so big and, and, and uh, shown no responsibility for the information. You know this, the, the line from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility? This, that applies so much here, and they, they engage in, in just about no responsibility. So he writes, I know it takes longer to fix all these issues than we'd like, but I promise you we'll work through this and build a better service in the long term. <laughs> okay. It, it takes longer than we'd like. These apps came online 11 years ago. How long is it going to take? You, you became aware of a major, major abuse three years ago. You were aware of the apps just secretly taking people's data without them even knowing it in 2013, and yet still after the, or before 2013, whenever you made that first change, and then still you allowed them to grab their friends' data. So it's not as long as it's not taking longer than we'd like. It's that you've been resisting changing the situation for eleven years. That's what's been going on. So it, it, this is a, a ridiculous statement, and may, maybe a few idiots will buy it. But boy, if you go on the Facebook page where this was made, you can find this on Google pretty easily to find Zuckerberg's statement. It's actually a post on Facebook that's publicly accessible. Oh God! So. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, the the, the response. I, I bet he's happy he didn't add that dislike button that he was thinking about adding. <laughs> as you can imagine, the, the the comments there are just brutal. They're just he's getting torn apart on on his own on his own site. Uh, of course he is. I, 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 not, I mean, here, here, go ahead, Drew. I like this one. There's a guy named Max Burns who uh, oh, I'm forgetting who he is. He's not just like a nobody. He actually is. Uh, I think he's a chairman of like some. Robert Kennedy Foundation, something like that. He actually has one of those little blue check marks on there. So this is what Max Burns said back. 
just in response to the whole long statement. In other words, Facebook was always able to function with a tighter data policy. You chose to continue using a lax data policy until a bad event forced your hand. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what we talk about this with uh, criminals all the time. It's, you know, they, they don't regret what they did. They regret that they got caught. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's the same kind of thing, really. But, I mean, the, the one thing I want to stress here is that uh, Facebook is the one that is taking all the heat now. And and deservedly so. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. Um, but they are one of many companies that uh, have this kind of uh, uh, have this kind of data. I mean, Google is massive, um, and WeChat in China is even bigger than Google, like in terms of the number of people that use it. And Baidu is their search engine, and there there are some really huge companies that are wielding a tremendous amount of power. Um, and there's also a, a, a ton of underground hacking groups that are actively trying to uh, to steal your data and to do stuff with it. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I really do think that um, this is something that is going to have to be government regulated, just like they're trying to do in the EU with the GDPR. I, I, I don't know whether we actually have the will uh, to pass something like that, but I think we need to. Yeah. I agree. And in, and by the way, in case you think they really took some action in 2014-2015, in 2016, the Gu- the Guardian also uncovered that and this was when I say uncovered it was uncovered this was current at the time that Facebook actually made a change to make things less private to where uh they actually made it impossible to make your profile fully private there that mm-hmm. anyone could look at your profile and uh, provided you didn't sign up under fake info that anyone could look at your profile and, as I mentioned before, see whatever groups you're in and a number of other things that are impossible to hide. And that uh, a columnist at The Guardian wrote an article about this in 2016 complaining about it. They also had an article in The Guardian, which really seems to be watching Facebook closely. They also had an article around the same time that uh, Facebook was using location data. I'm not sure if it was just IPs or also what you provide yourself of where you claim you live to as part of its find friends algorithm, which was kind of unnerving <laughs> to people. So, so when the guardian brought this out first, Facebook denied it. Uh, then they admitted it. Then they claimed, well, yes, it was true, but we don't do it anymore. So they, they kept changing what they were even claiming they did or ever did or were still doing. It was the, the story was constantly changing. Now, I have a, a really disturbing story, which I guess has a small chance of being a coincidence, but listen to this one. This is a, a weird story. So this is a few years ago. I'm on Facebook, and it has this suggestion of friends on the right side. Well, I see a girl that I knew from back in the 90s that I... I didn't have she, I don't believe she even has a Facebook account. If she did, I didn't have her on Facebook. But um, I, you know, I had her email address. Yeah, every once in a while we would communicate, but I hadn't talked to her in years. But uh, I see her picture. Well, it looks very much like her picture under people you might know. You know, like friend suggestions. So I clicked through to the profile. He didn't add her, but I clicked through. I said, wow, she looks a lot like you know this girl that I remember, you know, that, that, that I know. So I clicked through, and sure enough, this it was her picture. It was uh, of her, and I couldn't believe what I found. This girl, who uh, last time she had talked to me, 
a few years prior had been bragging to me about uh, how she was a realtor now and how she's been making so much money and uh, she's doing better than ever before and her life was so good. Uh, that wasn't her real career. The I, I found that this was a fetish porn page. <laughs> so it was. Now she was not nude. She was not. Uh, what having, was the fetish? She was you having, tell it us. was a number of things, but uh, one of them was like a foot fetish. Another one was like some kind of like food f- crushing fetish. And so was, was David Williams in the photos? No, he wasn't. I was looking for him. I couldn't find him. But uh, but it was those type of. Uh, but it was like she was never nude in them and never having sex. But she was engaging it in in these fetishes in various ways in these videos. So and these were still shots. I, I actually was able to find some of these videos, but uh, they're also still shots. And I'm like, oh my god. I, <laughs> You spent a little bit of time looking at these, didn't you? Uh, so I felt so bad for her because I, from what I knew of her, I did not think that anyone in her real life knew about this. I thought I thought this was like a kind of a secret identity that probably no one who knew her in real life was aware of. Uh, but what was weird to me is that she didn't have me on Facebook. I tried to look at her on look for her on Facebook, couldn't find her. Something. How the hell does it know I know her? And I never uploaded my email list or anything like that. But I, I, th- I thought, okay, well, she must have made this Facebook account for her second life as a, uh, a fetish porn girl and stupidly searched me. And this is true, by the way. If people search you on Facebook, like you search for an old ex-girlfriend or something, it may suggest to her to add you as a friend. It won't say, hey, you know, this person searched you. But, but uh, often that will be part of the criteria it uses to – search you uh, to, to suggest friends is that the person looked you up so be careful who you look up you may want to create like a fake account on uh on the incognito mode on your browser which just, you're very familiar with doing <laughs> uh, otherwise uh it, it may actually suggest you as a friend to them and they may figure out why so uh so anyway i i figured i better tell her about this and, and, and warn her that she better delete this account because if, if, if it suggested her to me it probably to anyone else that she visited their profile and uh uh, it could be bad for her if this is a secret. So I, I sent her a message. I, I told her that uh, I think she better delete this account. And I, I try to say, look, I'm not judging you here. I just want to tell you that I think you should delete this because it, Facebook led me to this and it's probably going to lead other people in your life to this. Mm-hmm. So she told me she could not understand how this could have possibly happened because, <laughs> because, and I believe the story though, she says she didn't make this profile. She fully admitted that she did this, this fetish porn. She wasn't denying any of it. But she said, I didn't make that profile. I didn't know it even existed. She said, the porn label created this profile. They just right. they, they took my porn name. They made this, uh, you know, they made the profile in my porn name. They never told me. You know, I went and take a look at it now, but I never knew it existed. I never had the password, never even uh, had anything to do with it, never logged into it. So uh, how could they have possibly connected us, she asked. And I said, hmm, that's a good question. So the only thing I could come up with, aside from it being a pure coincidence, by the way, this wasn't like a major fetish porn site or something where it just, you know, it happened to do this by random and because it was so major, it happened to be someone I knew. You know, it wasn't like that. This was a, a very small label, very small operation. I even looked into the operation. It was a very small thing. So that, I it, bet you did. It's a very small chance that... <laughs> That it just happened to be suggesting this to me, and it, of all people, it happened to be someone I knew. But anyway, I, the only thing I could come up with, I said, did you mention knowing me to them at any point? Like, did maybe poker come up, and you said, oh, I know poker pro Todd would tell us. Is, is it po- possible you mentioned that, and then while they may have been on that account, 
uh, uploading pictures of you or whatever, they may have just searched Todd Wittellis to look at my profile and, and then it, it – like, is that possible? She says, no, I – I don't remember ever mentioning you to them. I didn't, you know, I didn't discuss my personal life with them. I can't imagine why I would have ever brought you up. The problem was it was a few years ago, so I can't remember every little thing I've said, but I, I, I'm just about sure I didn't ever mention you. So we never solved it. The, the only possible explanation, aside from being a sheer coincidence, would be that uh, she did mention me at some point and forgot it, maybe just quickly in passing, and then they looked me up on her, you know, while they were uploading pictures to her porn profile and and uh, and then this happened uh so i said well regardless you better delete this she says well no no i can't <laughs> yeah. uh, they control it i said well just call them and ask them she's no i can't do that i had to uh you know they 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 have the full rights to it i signed all that away and uh, uh furthermore i haven't worked for them in years so i don't even have a relationship with them anymore so if i ask hey can you delete this they'll probably tell me forget it I said, well, you should give it a shot. I see the problem here, but at least give it a shot and tell them that uh, someone from your real life found it. And since this is years old, can they delete it or, or at the very least delete it and make another one from a different computer? Anyway, I don't know if she did or not. I never followed up on yeah, her, it. Her aunt Nadine is probably going to find some funny, uh, that's what I was, funny on Facebook. That's what I was telling her. And she, and she, <laughs> she admitted to me that nobody from her real life knew about this. And uh, – uh, so I said, she says, you know, promise you don't tell anybody that we both know. So I said, no, no, I won't tell anyone. We, we've, I won't tell anyone. I, you know, in fact, I, I won't even tell anyone that you don't. Just know everyone listening to Poker Friday. No, but I know. I'm not, I'm not naming her. No one will have any way to find her. In fact, she's not even one of my Facebook friends. As I said, she's not on Facebook. But, but I, I said, I, I won't tell anyone about this. Don't worry. But uh, anyway, that's that's that was one of the creepiest ones. And but they really do save. Tons of information about who you look up, right. and uh, uh, then uh, Trader Ruski, you were saying that someone in like in your building who who, who had no association with you, they uh, they were able to find that you knew her. Yeah, that was LinkedIn though. Oh, LinkedIn. Okay, LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, so, and, and LinkedIn is yet another one. But I mean, what these uh, and what a lot of these services are doing is they they know what you do and like, as you were saying before, and then they can automate and find lookalike audiences of people that are very, very similar to you. And so that then they can look at the things that those people may have liked or bought, and then they're going to start promoting them to you, you know? Yeah. And, and also, yes, yeah, here, here's another way that you could be associated with this woman. Without real, like, like if you look something up that she looked up, that's the same because you both right. live in the same building or you look up a few businesses around the same area, or even just look up the landlord, whatever it is, and they yep. they see it, then that's how they link. There's so many things they save to try to link people together, and uh, so so this is uh, there really is so much out there that's being analyzed, and that they know about you and can know about you, and it's it's very disturbing. But Facebook, they they need to confront this head on. They need to. Instead of trying to – this is not going to go away. This is not like a, a quick scandal where they, 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 they put out some statement and people forget about it next week. This is something that is going to persist until people feel the problem has been solved. And every time people get on Facebook now, because this has become such a big story, it's going to be on their mind. So people need to feel comfortable sharing what they did before uh, without thinking that they're going to become the next target of, of – uh, of, of, data brokers or, or Russians or anything else that they fear. 
uh, that Facebook has allowed before. And so I think the only it's, it's never easy to respond to this because the more you admit to, not only are you open yourself up to liability, but what am I hearing in the background? Can you hear that? Yes. Can you hear that, Drew? Yes. yes. What is that? It's the song that you should have played on the intro. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. That's Facebook's fucking answer. Definitely true. <laughs> That's definitely true. I, I, I missed the totally up. missed that opportunity. Missed the opportunity. Every breath you take would have been the perfect song to play for the intro. Yeah. So they, they but they need a better balance. Instead of coming, they're still, they're still too, trying too hard to make it look like we did very little wrong. It's, it, blame this Cambridge Analytica. We did very little wrong, and we corrected it three years ago. Got a few small steps to take to, to make it perfect, but uh, aside from that, you've, you've been taken care of for a long time. Don't worry about it. Not our fault. And a few things that were our fault, uh, we took care of it. Don't worry. We're done. And, uh, and Trader Ruski, I just want to uh, talk to you for a second about what you mentioned earlier about playing the devil's ad- advocate and that you'd been using free software for a number of years and you, you traded your information for that, right? Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying the average user, they're getting all these free services. Right. And, and I just and, think and, that's the way they look at it. And, and I think you're right. But the, first of all, I think Ruff was correct that a lot of people don't really understand the depth of what they're agreeing to. Because no one reads the fucking EULAs, you know, the, the shit that you agree to um, by just clicking an I accept button. Nobody reads that shit. And very few people on Facebook are aware of the extent uh, to where where this data is being shared and their friends being exposed and all that shit. Um, but the other thing is that people are, are, you know, they'll say, well, I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to put, you know photos of my dogs up there you know if they facebook wants that go ahead do whatever you want but it's really hard for them to grasp or for anyone to grasp how all of this data aggregated together can do some of these amazingly sinister things that we've seen happen over the years whether it's you know elections or corruption or any number of other things um so it's one of those situations where, yeah, your average person may be like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's very reasonable that they wouldn't understand. And and in fairness, you know, even people in the industry back then didn't understand the depth and scope of what can be done once you have all of this information. I mean, it's it really no, is. No, 100%. Problem. And then, yeah. like, the standard users like, oh, well, I got a dog coupon for dog food for five bucks. This right. is great. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I'll, I'll tell you, I learned I learned this a long time ago. I learned that, and, and it was because of my exposure to the, exactly this type of thing, decades ago. That that first inf- one piece of information will then open the door to other pieces of information, which then opens the door to more information, and it it, it increases exponentially. Where sometimes all you need is a little starting point. And you can get a ton of information on someone. So can you imagine something like Facebook where they don't just have one starting point? There, there are so many different starting points to branch out from. And it just – a tremendous amount of information ends up getting harvested on you. And it's and, – and people don't understand that when they agree to it. It's, it's, it's Drew, very, that reminds me of – and you're, you're going to like this reference. I think you're going to know it. Do you remember there was in the 80s, there was a Fabergé organic shampoo commercial yeah. where they did this thing and they'll tell two friends and they'll tell two yes. friends and it just multiplied <laughs> out to where it just, that's exactly what's going on here. It's the fucking Fabergé organic shampoo, you know? Yeah, times 10. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey Druff, I, I do have to go back to sleep because I'm okay. still trying to get over being sick, but I'm glad I got on to interrupt you a couple of times. No, that's good. We're at the end of this topic, but you know, thank you for joining us here. I thought we weren't going to have you this week. And, uh, yeah. you, you, I'll well, give do, you it, do it earlier next week, man. You're killing me with this like midnight well, starting I, I, time. I, 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 have, I have good news for you. Next week, yeah. I, I will not be starting uh, after 11 o'clock p.m. Uh, the problem is I won't be starting at all. There will be no oh, show. No fuck. show at all, but there will be a show the following week. and. Uh, well, here, here's what I was going to suggest. I'm going to, uh, you know, go upstairs and pass out listening. But uh, do consider that, that that first video that I sent you, Yeah. Um, it's about 19 minutes long. If you decide that um, any of the topics, you know, aren't that interesting or you want to de- uh, dive deeper into it, play that video on the air and do the thing where you pause and comment on it because I, I think you will be – it's very relevant to what you're talking about. And I think you will have a lot to say. About yeah, well, the video. I'll tell you why I'm not going. That's a good suggestion. I won't do it this week because I, something I don't think you heard. We're we're actually I'm trying to note down the time we're starting each topic so I can put in the description how to jump to topics. And yeah. uh, this one's been going almost two hours, so I think we've done. I think so. Make a note. Make a much. note that at this time is when you start discussing that video. There well, you go. but I, 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 just, I just think that the people who listen all the way through, I don't want to overdo it with this topic. I think two hours is enough. But I, I think next week we'll probably talk about it again, and maybe we'll play that video next week. And uh, I'll definitely watch it, though. It sounds uh, something I definitely want to see. And if Cal, I'll give you credit here. You didn't sound tired at all. You sounded like you've been awake this whole time. And, uh, if <laughs> no, you, I'm if, tired. If you've been exhausted, you've, you've done a good job faking it. I don't know, man. I think people would be more interested in uh... – Hearing you commenting on that video then about Doug Polk posting a strange poll to his Twitter account, but you know, whatever. <laughs> All right, I'm All gonna right. Uh, good night, uh, Druff, and uh, good night, Trader Ruski. Okay, good night. Right, Thank Cal you. Cal Watt, you too. Later on, guys. So, a surprise visit by Cal Watt from woken up just just because of uh, having to urinate. We got him as part of the segment. I, I knew he'd be good in the segment. That's. Uh, so I think we'll cover this again next week, not to this extent, but I, I wanted to have a real discussion about this because this whole thing has bothered me for a long time. Uh, before I, I go on, I, I do want to tell people a little story. I think I may have told it before, so I won't go into too much detail, but over 20 years ago on a chat system, there was a guy who was pretending to be a woman who was uh, really, really defensive with being called out about that. And I was calling him out about it because I, was, I didn't have proof, but I was strongly suspecting it was a dude pretending to be a woman. And uh, he was very obnoxious, too. He pretended to be a lesbian who was uh, you know, a strong, independent lesbian who, who, who always put down men and all this crap. And I, I, I got so many indications that this was really a guy, which made it even more offensive. Like, if you're going to sit here putting down men from the point of view of if you're this strong, superior woman, then you really are sitting here with a, you know, sitting here with a penis in your pants. Uh, that's, that's stupid. You know, I'm going to call that out for sure. So, I was. And he was, he despised me. And then he managed to get my personal info for reasons I won't go into. And uh, he started putting it out there and he was harassing me at work and he was uh, even called up my boss and lied about me and tried to get me fired. I mean, the guy was really nasty and he was really, really proud of himself and bragging in the chat room how he's ruining my career, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think I got to find this guy. 
And not only that, not, not just for revenge, he was saying that he's going to just keep doing it, that that's what I get. So the only way to stop him was to find him. One problem, though. I, I knew this was a dude. I was just about sure. But uh, he wouldn't give anyone his info because his info was his info, not her info. So, you know, see, he wasn't a woman, so he couldn't uh, give anyone his phone number or you know, any identifying information because he was a fictitious person. And he was very, very careful. And a long time passed, and I just banged my head against the wall and said, I'm never going to solve this one. Never going to figure out who it is, and God knows how long this guy's going to harass me. And then he started a web page under the character he was doing of this lesbian. And um, he ran out of storage space because he didn't get very much on this. He, he, did, he, did, he had a web page through his internet provider, and he ran out of storage space, which back in those days, uh, it was hard to get storage space, and there was no GeoCities yet or anything like that. So um, he, uh, or if there was, maybe there was GeoCities, but he just wanted to run it on there. Whatever it was, he didn't have enough space. And he noticed that his stepfather, his elderly stepfather, had an account too. But his stepfather had no interest in making a web page or even knew how to do it. So there was all this extra space, all this extra storage space for pictures and music that could be used. And he figured, why pay the ISP two extra dollars a month for extra space when his father has, his stepfather has this extra space for, that he could borrow for free? So he asked his stepfather, hey, can I borrow the password to your account and just store things on there? And his stepdad said, sure, I don't use it anyway. So one day I viewed the source of the web page and I saw there was another account being used to store pictures that I'd never seen before. And I saw that the information on that account was public. There was a way to look it up, which I won't bother going into. And I got the person's name under that account. And from there, it all unraveled. And I got everything, everything you could ever imagine about this guy, I found out. I mean everything. Took some time, took some effort. But I got everything... And he stopped. (laughs) He was sorry what he had done. All because he wanted to save $2 a month on web storage space. That was the only mistake he made. And just because he he borrowed his stepfather's account to store some pictures and some music. And it's not like I knew it was his stepfather. I I started with that name and worked backward. And I got everything. So that shows you how just one little piece of information can be used to unravel so much about someone. And this was just me as as a kid in my early 20s. Me and my friend working together on this one. And we, we uncovered a bunch of stuff. Can you imagine what today's sophisticated analytics systems can do especially with a hell of a lot more starting information than what I just had right there crazy so I learned a long time ago and I I, I didn't learn it from back then I actually knew from back back as a teenager that all you need is a starting point and that's what I kept saying I kept saying to my friend and my girlfriend at the time, I kept saying to them, all we need on this guy is just one piece of information. He's going to screw up at some point. At one point, he's going to screw up and just let the slightest thing slip, and I can unravel the whole damn thing. 
they were kind of doubting me too. They didn't believe it. They said, uh, "Oh, he's not going to slip." I said, "No, someone someone who's that active, they're going to slip. At some point, they're going to make some small mistake that seems inconsequential, and you can just unravel the whole damn thing." So now, now don't get scared if you're on Poker Fraud Alert. I'm not doing this to the users of the site, even the ones I ban. Uh, this was someone who was just incredibly nasty and engaging in just a, a, a never-ending campaign of harassment in my real life and told me he's just never going to stop. So he's, he was so infuriated that I ruined his character. So that's just... Uh, I've had long respect for personal information. I've had long respect for you know, how you have to keep everything private or how you can't just put info back once it's out there. I've told so many stories about that on this on this show before. Just keep that in mind, and uh, never go for the convenient option. If it says log into your Facebook through, you know, log into this website through your Facebook, don't make a separate account. If it says this app needs this information to continue, don't continue. Just don't use the app. Anything that seems like it's going to be getting more information for you from you, any. Websites that link together where you should log in through one to get to the other, but you don't have to, don't do it. Only do it if you have to. And and if it's a site you really don't need to use, then don't even use the site at all. Like we were talking about World Series of Poker when the, for the updates that you had to sign in through a social media account. I said, okay, well, don't look at the updates then. It's, it's not worth doing. Okay, next topic. We spent two hours on that. Time to move on. I want to talk about uh, something completely different. Daniel Negreanu and Matt Savage and their little e-fight on Twitter. Negreanu gets in so many little tiffs these days on Twitter. I think part of this is because he has a hard time not responding when people troll him. It's also because he has very strong opinions about things and just feels like he always needs to back them up. And uh, there's a lot of reasons this happens, but it's been happening. And this ended up a discussion, actually, about the big blind anti situation, something I don't like. And. I talked about it, I think, on the last show or the show before that, but I want to talk about it again. And we'll ask Trader Ruski for his opinion on this. It's, it, this is a poker issue, by the way. This is not really uh, like a moral issue about anything. On March 18th, Matt Savage wrote an inflammatory tweet about... Daniel Negrani, which is surprising because those two were friends to my knowledge. Matt Savage wrote, wrote, the king of the, quote, dick moves at Real Kid Poker, meaning he's saying that Daniel Negrani was the king of the dick moves. Quote, more rake is better. Quote, don't eat meat. Quote, I actually know something about politics. Is calling me out for something so obscure it affects less than 1% of poker hands, but will benefit the game for everyone. Hashtag why? This is a pretty uh, inflammatory tweet. He's really bashing Negreanu here, saying that, uh, you know, making fun of him that the more rake is better, that Polk has been making fun of Negreanu for a long time, making fun of Negreanu's veganism and his 
uh, activism regarding that, making fun of his political posts by sarcastically saying, I actually know something about politics. And he's saying, the guy who does all that is calling me out for something so obscure it affects less than 1% of poker hands. Matt Savage is the tournament director for the few of you that don't know. So what has caused this riff, and what does he mean by the king of the dick moves? Well, Negreanu wrote to Matt Savage about how something was a dick move related to the whole big blind anti-situation. And Savage got kind of offended by this because it was he kind of felt like that Negreanu was calling him a dick or someone who engages in dick moves when they were having a debate about the big blind anti-format. Now, I'll agree that that was uh, the wrong thing for Negreanu to say, but I do agree with the point Negreanu was raising. So the big blind ante is something that's becoming all the rage in 2018 and perhaps 2019. And it's being done to speed up and simplify play at tournaments. Because anybody who's played a live poker tournament gets to the ante levels, and then collecting the antes becomes a big fiasco. People sometimes don't ante either on purpose or more often because they forget, and then they think they have. Then the dealer's collected eight of the nine antes and counts them up and says, well, wait a minute, we're missing an ante. Who forgot to ante? Of course, Usually no one takes credit, either because they want to get away with it or because they really think they did ante, and then everybody has to point out who they think didn't, and then there's arguments, and so this this slows down the game and creates tension at the table. Then there's also the anti-collectors at the table. This kind of annoys me, where someone at the table will start collecting antis for everybody who's around them, like for the him and like three or four others around him, and then put it all out together. But then sometimes that guy doesn't do it right, and, and there will be like – the guy will – it's like if the ante is 100, then the guy will have this 500 in front of him. And then the deal is like, okay, well, who's this for? Because these five people – like it, it, it gets even more confusing when the anti-collectors start to volunteer their services at the table. There's been many arguments, many slowdowns of the game, just some general stress from the anti-situation in live tournaments. I'll admit all that. It's a pain in the butt, and I don't like it. A trader risk, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and everybody who's played live tournaments knows what I'm talking about. So someone came up with the idea of what's known as a big blind ante. And the big blind ante is simply forcing the big blind to pay everybody's ante. And then the rest of the time, Everybody who's not on the big blind pays zero ante. So the same number of antes are put in, and the antes function is the exact same thing, meaning that they're dead money. They don't uh, apply to, uh, they're not considered a bet. They're just in the pot. The only difference between a big blind ante and the regular antes we're all used to is that the big blind play the big blind pays for all of them at once, and then doesn't pay the rest of the time. And of course, since the big blind moves every hand, each person gets their turn to do it. So what's bad about that? Hey, it sounds like something that would speed up the game, and uh, everybody ends up putting the, the same thing in, because it, instead of one ante each hand, it's uh, uh, all antes for everybody in the big blind, whoever has it. it. It seems like it's a good idea on the surface, but there are some problems. Problem number one. It's 
puts a lot more of a burden on the big blind if they're short stacked all at once. Now, yes, the cost per round is the same, but on this particular hand, it's a lot more. So this is a simple example I gave on Facebook when I was debating this. Let's say you're at the 400, 800 blind level and 100 ante, but uh, this is a big blind ante format. You're under the gun, meaning you don't have to put an ante down, and you open with pocket queens, and somebody in late position three bets you, and the two of you end up raising each other and getting it all in. You had 12k coming into the hand, the other guy had 9k, which is very reasonable. You have 12k versus 9k, uh, if both of you have premium hands, preflop, and... Uh, you know, the effective stacks are essentially, not, essentially 9K because he has 9K, you have 12, so you have him covered. It's very reasonable for you both to be all in preflop. And uh, so you turn over your queens, and then you frown when you see he turns over kings. And the board runs out, and you lose, as you expected. So now you're down to 3K. Okay. Next hand, you're the big blind. Since it's a big blind anti-format, you have to put out your 800-chip big blind. Plus, 900 chips and antes, because there's nine people at the table, including you. So how much do you have left? Just 1,300. So let's say somebody in early middle position raises some standard raise. They uh, make it uh, you know, 2,000. Full, 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 all the way back to you in your big blind. Unfortunately, you look down and you have seven deuce offsuit. Very worst possible hand. You have seven deuce offsuit. You've got only 1,300 left in your stack. And if you call, which would uh, put you all in, you'll be running out for your tournament life with 7-deuce offsuit, but you only have to put in 1,300 to win 6,400. Why? Well, to, or to get back 6,400. Why? Because uh, there's the 1,700 nanties, there's the 1,200 blinds, and then there's the additional 1300 that you have to put in the other guys put in. That's 6400 total. So 1300 to go up to 6400 because if you fold you're left with 1300 and you're right in the small blind uh, you'd have to do it. As much as you'd hate to you'd have to do it. Because you still have a chance with 7 deuce offsuit to win. You have enough of a chance to turn that 1300 to 6400 that it is correct to put it all in at that point. But let's pretend it's not a big blind ante. Let's just say it's a regular ante of 100. Well, here you have 2,100 behind. There you're probably folding the 70s offsuit. There you're probably not shoving in the 2,100, especially knowing now you've already paid the big blind and all you have to play is the small blind and ante each time uh, and you get eight more hands. So then you have a lot better of a chance to come up with something. You're not even pot committed next hand. You could you could even fold the small blind if it's terrible and then, and then wait uh, to see what you get on... Uh, the other hands where you're putting in 100 each time. So anybody who loses most of their chips shortly before the big blind, it doesn't have to be under the gun. It can be anywhere. Not like the button. The button is pretty much the same thing as if uh, for the big blind ante. The button, then you're getting the advantage of free hands the whole way. But if you lose a decent-sized hand, if you, if you get short-stacked for whatever reason, when you're fairly close to the big blind, now you're going to be auto all-in with any two cards, even the very worst hand possible that could be dealt to you. And that sucks. That's bad for the game. 
And not only is it bad for you as a short stack, but it, it changes things for those who, who strategically steal blinds. That was a, that's a big part of the game in No Limit Tournaments is strategically stealing blinds. And now if you know that a lot of people who are short stacks are auto-calling with any two because they have they basically have to the way the big blind ante is set up, then that takes away a lot because that's uh, now like the decisions are already made before the cards are already dealt. And that, that really takes away some of the skill from the game. Is this going to happen all the time? No. It's a specific set of circumstances, but it's not so unusual to where it's going to be a fluke to see. You're going to see this several times in the tournament. I mean, you meaning you're going to see others do it and perhaps yourself do it. It's going to come up at your table at least a few times if you last any decent amount of time in the tournament, where someone will call the big blind because of the big blind ante and this whole situation, where otherwise they would not have where they're basically pot-committed with any two cards because of the big blind ante. And I think that sucks. That's my first problem. My second problem, which Negreanu brought up, is, is, is a great point. He said that if there's two ways to do this big blind ante. Either the ante can come first, where you're supposed to ante first and then do the big blind, or blind first, where you put the blind in and then the ante. Why does this matter? Well, if someone doesn't have enough money for both, let's say you're down to... Uh, let's say in this 400, 800, 100 example, let's say you're down to... Uh, 1,200 in chips. Uh, or not 12. Let's say you're down to 800 in chips. Okay? And the big blind comes. If you're anteing first, then all of your chips go to the ante, because the ante is supposed to be 900 for nine people. You only have 800, so you're all in on the ante, meaning you cannot even post the blind. So the blind will not exist. There will be a, a zero blind for you. What does that mean? That means if you win the hand... All you win are the antis. And those are your antis. They were the money you put in the first place. So amazingly, if you are lucky enough, let, let's say you're in the big blind, you have 800 left, and you had to post it all as antis because the big blind antis here. And let's say an eight-way hand takes place, and you actually end up winning it. Well, normally you'd be receiving more than eight times your chips back. But no, here you're just going to get the same 800 you put in initially, and that's a travesty. Why? Because if it's only the antis you've, contrib- you've contributed and nobody else has contributed the antis, all you get back are your own antis because the rest of the money are all blinds and, and bets after the blinds. So can you imagine how a recreational player would feel if this happened? A recreational player is all in on the blind. A multi-way hand develops. They think they've multiplied their stack by several times. And then they're just giving back their original 800? Can you imagine how they would feel? How frustrating it would be? They think they got lucky? And then in reality, they've really won nothing? And they're back to where they started? That's horrible. And Negreanu pointed it out. This is going to piss people off. This is going to make recreational players say, what the hell is this? It'll be hard for them to understand. And it's just... Very annoying, even if you understand it and, and you're a pro, it's an annoying thing. There is some thrill to playing poker tournaments where you're, you're ground down to a tiny stack and you keep doubling, tripling, quadrupling up, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're back in business. Here you get one of those lucky spots and you just get your chips back. Crazy. So 
Negreanu was not so much bashing the big blind anti-format, he was saying this anti-first thing sucks, and what they actually should do is blinds first, and this way if you have blinds first and just don't put the anti if you can't afford it, is then you will double, triple, quadruple up as players will expect. And he cited all the reasons, and then Negreanu said it's a dick move to do otherwise. And that's when uh, Savage took offense and, and, and things got ugly. So I, I think Negreanu should not have used that language, but I fully agree with his point on this one. And I'm surprised that Savage and others actually agree it should be antis first. And they're, they're doing this from like a stickler for rules point of view. Like, well, you always anti first before blind, so why not here? Well, we just explained why. So, Trader Risky, what's your opinion on this whole thing? If you're still awake. If the, the T hasn't taken effect yet. I never know with him if he's really gone or just his mute is stuck. So it's, it's always suspense. I, I guess the big blind anti conversation could put anyone to sleep. Well, I, I'm going to assume we lost him. <laughs> I actually did want to hear what his opinion was. He plays tournaments too. But I hate it. I don't want to be blind anti, and if we do it, it better be blinds first, not antis first. So that, that's what that was all about. It seems, though, like my opinion is in the minority. It seems like everyone is just pro-big blind anti, thinking it'll speed up the game and simplify the game, and they think it should be antis first because, quote, that's the way it always is. So... Unfortunately, this is changing. Now, what is the solution? If, it, if it's not this, what's the solution? I say just raise the blinds a little bit. Just make the blinds slightly bigger. Remove all antis. Why don't we just say antis are a failure? Antis are a pain in the ass. Antis are more trouble than they're worth. Let's just make the blinds on each level that would normally be an anti-level a little bit higher. And we'll basically accomplish the same thing. It's a, it changes the game a little bit, but it's, it's basically accomplishing the same thing. So, yes, it's, it's not accomplishing preventing free hands. Antis are there to promote action, where everybody has to put money in, even if it's dead money, into the pot, and, and the pot looks bigger with all those chips in there, and it makes the pot bigger in the first place, but yet it doesn't force the blinds to be as big, so it keeps the... It gives you more play. It doesn't make the blinds artificially large. So I understand them, but if, if the conclusion is they're more trouble than they're worth in the current format, just increase the blind slightly, and you've mostly solved the problem. Okay, so we're going to move on here. I told you it won't take too long with it. It took 17 minutes on this. Stuff. See, I can see how long we take on topics now. That's what's good. I can actually monitor how long we're taking with these here. So, also on the topic of Negranu is about Doug Polk and his continued feud with Negranu, and he posted a weird poll that uh, I thought was inappropriate. And I, I sometimes wonder about some of the things that Doug Polk writes even though I agree with him usually. I sometimes think that he doesn't really think before he tweets some things. And this is one of those cases. So, Doug Polk, who 
ironically is currently listing himself as Nice Doug Polk. I think that's a play on the Nice Sean Deeb name, which was a play on the Mean Sean Deeb account. Doug Polk posted a poll which said, Having a debate with a few friends, who do you think is the worst high-stakes tournament player? And he listed three possible choices. Isaac Haxton, Daniel Negreanu, or Chris Hunnichen. Now that's a weird poll to put out there. Now obviously he hates Negreanu, so anything to try to make Negreanu look bad, he, he likes doing. So we know that. But I, I didn't know he had a problem with Ike Haxton or Chris Hunnichen. But I think putting something out there is very petty, especially it's not like, hey, who do you think the worst high-stakes tournament player is and just leave it open for people to answer, which I, I, I never like these sort of things. I never like the shaming other pros that they suck sort of discussions. Now, it's fair to discuss things like Gus Hansen losing untold millions of dollars in high-stakes games, especially because of his uh, notoriety, especially the last decade in the poker scene. But but just to try to single out pros and say, hey, you know, people think this guy's good, but he actually sucks. Let's talk about why. There really are a lot of people in poker who just select a few people that they think are great, and then they think everyone else is terrible. And that always annoyed me. If you were able to beat poker... Over a long period of time You're not terrible You're actually pretty good You may not be as good as some other players But you're actually pretty good And I've never liked the such and such is terrible narrative And it tends to come from a place of arrogance And it, it, it tends to be just Like It's done to Try to take away from others' accomplishments Usually to make your own accomplishments look better So if you can kind of frame the narrative of Oh yeah, me and such and such person we, We've both won a lot in poker But the difference is I'm good and they're terrible that, That's the whole point of this So I never liked The pick such and such Winning player Let's talk about how terrible they are I never liked that But I, I don't know why he posted this uh, In this poll Which got at the time that I have the screenshot of it 8,228 votes Daniel Negreanu was leading as the Worst high stakes tournament player at 44% Chris Hunnichen has uh, 38% And then Ike Haxton only 18% But why? And and Negreanu doesn't deserve that Whatever you wanted to criticize about Negreanu He's not a bad tournament player And I, I know Polk is saying the worst high stakes Tournament player So he, he's not saying like who's the worst tournament player ever Obviously he's none of these three guys But he's trying to say of the high stakes tournament players I think he means pros not just uh, businessmen Who like to enter these for fun Of those Name poker players that play High stakes tournaments Who's the worst of them so you could even argue, okay, they're still good players, but who's the worst one of the of the best ones? Like saying, who's the worst person on this NBA team? Who's the worst person on this Major League Baseball team? Uh, who's the worst chess master? But you know, you know the way he's framing this. Like it's it's pretty much saying, who's the poker player who kind of sucks but is is overrated and believed unjustifiably to be good? He didn't say that, but that's what he's implying. And Negreanu he put in there because he was hoping he'd be the winner and, and people would laugh. So I, I thought that was kind of petty and kind of a weird poll to take. 
And truthfully, even though Negreanu came out and admitted that he entered so many high-stakes tournaments that even though he had the appearance of a great World Series that he ended up losing uh, in the year of 2017, which he didn't have to disclose, by the way. That was at least something that was forthcoming of him. Most poker pros would never say that. Hey, I, I appeared to have a great year, but I actually lost. I mean, how many would say that? It's one thing to be known to have lost because you played a ton of big tournaments and barely cashed and everyone can see that, but it's another thing to have appeared to have a great year and actually have slightly lost, and that's what happened to Negreanu in 2017. But still, I mean, look, look at the results he put. Look at the World Series itself, how many deep caches he had, and look, I mean, he's not a bad tournament player by any means. I think he's one of the best ones, actually. If there's anywhere you can question Negreanu, it's his cash skills. That's been criticized at times. but uh, and, and I still think he's better at cash than they give him credit for, but even Negreanu admits he doesn't play cash on an elite level anymore, but in tournaments it really looks like he holds his own. So I, I don't understand the point of that poll. Moving along. See, once we got past the two-hour Facebook topic, we're actually going through them pretty fast. WSOP.com Nevada has decided that it's going to start charging money. I don't know when this decision came down, but I was just informed of it because it's going to apply to me, maybe. They're charging money for accounts that are dormant for more than a year. And you know how I feel about that. How do you think I feel about paying fees of any kind? Do you think I like fees? Do you think I even tolerate fees? There are a few people on this earth who hate fees more than I do. I know a lot of you hate fees, but I really, really, really hate fees. By fees, I mean like kind of like an unnecessary extra charge beyond what you'd be expecting to pay. So, I got an email from WSOP.com, an automated email, that was warning me. And I'll, I'll give them credit that they were warning me, because they could have just done it without warning me and probably gotten away with it. Hey, Todd, we are contacting you regarding your WSOP.com Nevada account. We, you have not logged into your account... For the past nine months. And why do you think that is? You, you think it's a fail site? You think you have a fail site if I haven't logged into my WSOP account in nine months when you guys have games that I would normally like to play? <laughs> you, you think the problem might be you and not me? You think when I'm an active poker player who would love to play on there? I mean, not in Nevada all the time, but I've been there enough to where I should have logged in once. Within nine months, I haven't logged in, apparently, since uh, June 15th. That was like the middle of the World Series. It's the last time I logged in. That shows you what a fail site you have. I, I gave up. The site was so terrible, I gave up. It goes on to write, the, uh, As a result, you are, we will begin to implement our dormant account procedure on June 14th, 2018. 
Until then, you are free to log into your account to prevent it from becoming dormant. The 12-month period triggering dormant status is calculated from the date you last logged into your WSOP.com account. Once your WSOP.com account enters the dormant account period, the account will be closed and will be charged a monthly administration fee of four ninety nine. The administration fee will be deducted from the dormant account balance once each month and will continue to be deducted until the balance of the account has dwindled down to 0.0. Todd, should you want to reactivate your WSOP.com account after it has entered the dormant account period, please contact our support department at blah, 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 and send an email to blah, 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 blah. Once your account has been reactivated, we will stop charging the administration fee, but will not be obligated to reimburse any past fees. What nice people. All right. So this is the first I've heard of this happening. I guess they've been doing it in New Jersey before. This is outrageous, and I'll tell you why. And I I can't believe the state allows this because the state has to approve these type of fees. The whole point of a dormant account fee is to force customers to pay for the cost of them maintaining the balance in your account. Because to maintain the balance of your account, of course, they have to hold the money somewhere. And they have to maintain the records. And they have to make the balance available for withdrawing. And they're claiming, especially because of having to really hold the money for you, That is not fair. Why should they have to hold your money forever if you're not claiming it? If you're not using their service and you're not claiming your money by withdrawing it, uh, why should they be required to manage it in perpetuity until you want to go claim it? I understand that argument, but in this day and age where everything is so automated, first of all, it costs them about nothing. But even if they want to make the argument that this isn't about cost so much, but about having to just hold your money for you when they really don't feel like doing so if you're not going to use their service anymore, they still should not be charging you an administration fee. This should be, If they want to do a dormant account situation, if at some point – a year is way too soon, and I'll explain why in a second. But if at some point they want to claim your account just dormant and you just haven't been using it or are unlikely to start using it again and they don't want to maintain you on their system anymore, they should do – what all other companies do when you're owed a balance, and that is turn it over to the government as unclaimed money. And at the very least, that's what should be done. This should not be a situation where they get to profit off of your account being dormant. So The big problem with a year dormancy and why this is such a stupid decision is the fact that people don't come to Vegas more than once a year in many cases. Think of the World Series of Poker player who may come out for an event. Let's just pick an event on June 30th. And they go on to WSOP.com and they play some and then they have a little bit of a balance at the end. Uh, Not a huge balance, but let's say they have $100 left in the account and they don't feel like withdrawing it. And they say, I'll just use it when I come back next to Vegas. Well, then they don't come back to Vegas. Maybe they're from across the country. They only come to Vegas of the World Series, if that. And uh, so they leave and they, yes, they can log in, but they really have no reason to log in because they can't play from 
back where they live. So the months pass and the World Series comes up again and they say, all right, this time I'm not going to play the uh, the event, the same event I played. I'm going to actually play it on, uh, I'm going to play the main event on July 3rd. Or let's even change it different. Let's, let's say instead of coming on June 30th, let's say they came on June 5th. But that same event has moved to June 30th. That's a better example. So they want to play that same event again, but the schedule moved it to June 30th. That type of thing happens all the time, where events jump around from year to year on the calendar. So the next time they'll be in Vegas to play the same exact event is more than a year when they were there previously. Well, they will come and find this $5 obnoxious administration charge. Now, is that the end of the world to be charged $5? No. But why should they do it? Why, why give you one year? Why give you one year especially when there's a time of year when people come from out of state to play poker as the World Series to where there easily can be more than a year in between. What, what if someone just doesn't come for the World Series one year and, and comes two years from then? You should be charging them $60 a year after the first year passes to maintain their account? It's a joke. All this is going to do is piss people off and people who otherwise would have played are going to be so mad about this fee they're going to be souring on WSOP.com and just withdraw the remainder and never come back. This is such a dumb decision. It's one of many dumb decisions they make there. This room is so incompetently run. I hate to say it, but it really is. I, I, I've i tried to give Bill Reaney a chance. I used to like his blog. I used to think this is a guy who gets it, who knows what's going on. Ever since, since he took over WSOP.com, I, I don't know what the guy is doing. I read a lot of tweets that he blocks people on Twitter that he they, they ask him some question very politely and he blocks them seriously that's a, uh, people are claiming this all over twitter so this is amazing that these type of things are happening that the director of the wsp.com nevada poker room is blocking people on twitter that they're charging these fees after a year uh here's another thing that uh got posted on Poker Fraud Alert. This is from Eric Ryland. That they could not, they did not match his status to Diamond. He earned Diamond. He said he lost $3,000 on WSOP.com just grinding and grinding and grinding and getting the Diamond status there, which is supposed to match to his Caesar status, to his total reward status. Well, they wouldn't do it. For whatever reason... They wouldn't do it because they don't know what he's talking about. They say they don't do it anymore. Now they don't do it anymore. They just don't do it. So everybody's treating him like he's crazy. He says, I get to the Rio and they have no idea what I'm talking about. After talking to various hosts, they don't know either. They're not honoring my diamond status in WSOP.com for real life diamond. Remember Mitch Garber? He writes, always in the past, he was great on Twitter, responding quickly to anything but I reached out about this. I got crickets. They are silently scamming. I don't think they're scamming. I think it's incompetence. So I actually tweeted this to WSOP.com and to WSOP that this is going on and to please contact Ryland, gave him a link to this, and I don't know if they ever did. This is just not a competently run room. It's got other problems. It's got market problems. The market's just not big enough in Nevada for online poker. So that's one issue of why it's kind of dead, but it's it's not run properly. There's been so many mistakes with it. There's so many things that could be corrected, and uh, 
Bill Reaney seems like the opposite of a hands-on or customer service oriented manager. It's unfortunate, but that's the truth. People wonder how he even still has his job. And I tried to give him a chance. I tried to say, you know, maybe it's just kind of growing pains. Maybe he just has to kind of learn how to do this. No. The, the manager should be very accessible. He should have a thick skin. He shouldn't block people on Twitter. He shouldn't make decisions like this about dormant charges after a year. He needs to think of the big picture. None of this is going on. I don't, I don't know what they're doing over there. And And it's funny because... With all the fail that occurs there, at least some of the people I talk about involved with WSOP, uh, not dot com, but with just the the main World Series, uh, at least they seem competent at their job for the most part. They make some boneheaded mistakes or some social media gaffes, but like Seth Polanski, for example, he's a he's a good communications director. He seems competent at that. So, like. You know, he's had some trouble controlling his temper sometimes on social media, but, you know, as far as the actual job he does, it seems like he's competent with that. But as far as WCP.com, it, it just, it's a, a never-ending string of fail, both in how it's performing and how it's managed. I don't know why someone doesn't look and say, hey, I maybe we hired the wrong person. I don't even know Bill Reaney personally. I only knew him from reading his blog. But when he was first given the job, I said, oh, that's a good hire. I read his blog. This is the type of person I think we should have managing it. Nope, it was like a different person, the way he managed the the site. But, like, why even do this at all? Truthfully, why do this at all? The site's struggling. How much are they going to make from this? Is this really an income stream for them? It's just going to get people angry. Like, use your brain. Stop trying to nickel and dime everybody on the site. Just It's a fail site. Do things to encourage people to like it, not to dislike it. Very stupid. Very, very stupid. Seriously, a $5 administration fee after a year? you got to be freaking kidding me. Yeah, I'm going to log in to prevent this. I think I can even log in from where I am, but, but boy, is this stupid. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text that number also. I am Greek in the chat saying, good thing I suffer from insomnia. (laughs) They should just do away with antis altogether. I agree. He says, does playing free money count as being active? Actually, yes. You just have to log in. That's why I think I can log in from here. I get a message when I log in from here saying, you're not in Nevada, you can't play, which is fine. But I, I think just logging in is enough. All righty, we're going to move on here. You know, um, before I move on to the next topic, I actually uh, I have to do a few things here. Uh, much like a hotel room, the, the studio for Poker Fraud Alert Radio, it's kind of hard to get the temperature right in the winter. If I turn the heat too high, then it blasts and I'm boiling. If I turn it too low, then it never kicks on and I'm freezing. Uh, In previous weeks of this show, it's been too hot in here. 
And it's kind of hard to tell by the number you're setting it because it just the room is different than other rooms. So uh, I tried to set it a little bit lower this week, just a tiny bit lower, and now I'm freezing. And I, I'm looking at the agenda, and there's still a lot of things to talk about, so I don't want to freeze anymore here. Furthermore, uh, I guess I've been drinking a lot of water tonight. There's only about two bottles, but I, I, I have to... Use the facilities once again. So, unfortunately, I don't have a co-host here to just uh, stall. So, I hate to tell you guys, but uh, I'm going to have to play the Eric Benzimokan ad again. So, this show is once again brought to you by attorney Eric Benzimokan. And I thank him for all the support that he's given to Poker Fraudulent Radio. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money, or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute, so you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. All righty. So that should be our last commercial break. A rare double commercial break on Poker Fraudulent Radio, though separated by a while. Well, some legal trouble for another supposed poker pro who turns out that they were just stealing in order to keep themselves in action, as is often the case with ones who try to put on the appearance that they are winning. This time, high-stakes pro Ali Fazeli 
is accused of wire fraud in what is being called a $6 million ticket reselling scheme. See, here's what happened. This is... uh, It just shows how poker players just (laughs) aren't very good at deciding what to invest in. Though I think some of these investments also came from non-poker players. So he's from Southern California, Orange County. His name is uh, Syed Reza Ali Vazeli. He's Persian. He is uh, 49 years old. And he has been entering a lot of high roller events. He does have $2.2 million approximately in tournament caches. But most of that comes from ARIA high roller events, which are usually 25K or more to buy in. So basically, not a big field. And if you get lucky and you cash there, you're going to cash pretty big. But it's also very, very easy to end up in the red, even though your tournament, quote, winnings appear to be high, in this case, $2.2 million. So it's, it's very likely he's a losing player. In tournaments alone, he probably lost in other things as well. But here's what happened. Uh, according to a release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California... He ripped off people of uh, $6.2 million because he got investors who were talked into putting money into a business to resell tickets. In reality, it turns out that he didn't really buy or sell the tickets that he claimed that uh, he was purchasing for resale. In reality, it appears he was using that money to fund his gambling habit. What a shock. This is the main portion of the statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Central District of California. The indictment alleges that Fazelli ran a Las Vegas-based ticket business called Summit Entertainment, which also operated under the name OnlineTickets.com and PacerTickets.com. OnlineTickets.com is a good domain. I wonder how to see. Well, he must have paid a lot for that one. From May 2016 through at least May 2017, Fazelli solicited investors in Orange County, Houston, and Las Vegas to send approximately $6.2 million to Summit to purchase tickets to the 2017 Super Bowl and 2018 World Cup. Fazelli allegedly told investors that Summit would resell the tickets at a substantial profit and share the proceeds with investors. Investors wired more than $6 million to Summit to purchase tickets for last year's Super Bowl, but after the event, Fazelli failed to provide any profit distribution to investors, according to the indictment. Fazelli allegedly falsely told victims that the ticket sales did not go well because the NFL prohibited their resale, and he was working on a settlement with the NFL. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a strange story. Uh, According to court documents, Fazelli never purchased large amounts of Super Bowl or World Cup tickets as promised. Instead, he used the money for gambling expenses at the Aria and Bellagio casinos in Las Vegas and for personal expenses. So, I don't know if he ever really intended to 
do this ticket sale or if the whole thing was a scam just to get money to gamble with and then if he won he would claim that he made money on the ticket sales and give the investors back some money. I don't know what the plan was. Maybe he did plan to do this and then ran himself into a whole gambling and dipped into it and then he lost all that and then he didn't have uh, any money to buy the tickets to the Super Bowl, the World Cup, whatever it was. They sent him over six million bucks to buy these tickets and resell them and uh, he apparently never bought any or if he bought any, it was very, very few. Now, in the Hendon Mob results... He has not cashed anything since December 2016. And they say that he was soliciting these investments between May 2016 and, quote, at least May 2017. So we're talking about another six months since his last cash of when this was all going on. So it's very possible that uh, he started to really go in a slump after December 2016, poker-wise, and just kept taking more and more from the investor money to fund his gambling habit, and just kept losing, 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 and pretty soon it was all gone. The Super Bowl 2017 took place at the very end of January, beginning of February, something like that. It's always around then. I forgot the exact date. So this would be probably about a month and a half or so after his last cash and keep in mind, of course, a cash could be I – mean, that's a cash doesn't mean the person's winning. It just means they've cashed. So it could be that he was on a big downswing even before his last cash. So it's possible that by the time he even got to the – anywhere near the Super Bowl that he was hemorrhaging money. And it's also possible that the whole point of this – investment scheme in the first place was just to get money to buy into poker. He never really even planned to do this ticket stuff. The last cash he had was actually the beginning of December 2016, December 4th, at the 25K Aria High Roller. He was second place for 247K. So it seems like he was doing well at the end of 2016. This was so strange. I mean, he, he must have had a problem with the pits because he he hit a Aria High Roller in uh, – uh, the month before, a few weeks before that, on November seventeenth, two thousand sixteen, he won it for four hundred three k, and then he got in second for two hundred forty seven k. Two weeks later, on December fourth, so that right there is six hundred fifty thousand dollars he won in a period of two weeks. So, I he must have been gambling in other things. It must not just have been these uh, high roller events. He must have just been gambling big everywhere. So maybe the 650k he won was a drop in the bucket. Maybe he chunked it off in the pits super fast afterwards. Whatever it was, in that time period between May and May, May of 16 and May of 17, he was just basically stealing all the money. The fact that he didn't have Super Bowl tickets yet and the event was only about two months after his last six-figure cash you you would think either he never intended to purchase the tickets or he was already way in the hole. Maybe he owed other money. Maybe the money he uh, he won in these events that he chunk off immediately. Whatever it is, it, it seemed like he never seemed to really have the money to buy tickets or ever intended to. I don't know if the NFL even really allows resale or doesn't allow resale. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've never looked into going to the Super Bowl. I'm trying to Google that, in fact. 
can you resell Super Bowl tickets? Let's see what it says. I know in California, you are allowed to scalp tickets. It's legal. But individual events can prohibit it. They can say that if they see it was transferred, that you have to give it up. Um, no, it looks like you can. Like there's an article in Atlantic that uh, it doesn't say you can't. It's talking about the it's kind of risky to do because uh, it's hard to tell what the ticket price is going to end up as far as what the public's willing to pay. But it doesn't say you can't do it. Like StubHub wouldn't allow it if it was illegal. So I, he was just outright lying. It appears. <laughs> Looks like you really are able to just resell Super Bowl tickets and let me see here. Oh, mate, no, you know what? It looks like they're actually, you know what? I think uh, a newer article from 2018 on USA Today says that NFL rules state that these tickets cannot be sold for a profit on the secondary market. Okay, well, that still doesn't make any sense because he, um, even if the NFL contacted him and said, hey, you can't sell these for a profit, which they didn't, but even if they had, he could have sold them for face value. They weren't prohibiting that. They were just prohibiting selling them at a profit. So this is actually how other companies sometimes work. Like uh, Coachella, the Coachella concert, uh, technically, they don't want those scalped, but they don't really put much effort into stopping it. But if you use their forum to ask for anything above face value, they will ban you. And they try to limit the number of ticket sales, like two per credit card per week. You know, they have two weeks of Coachella. You can buy two each week, which is kind of a pain in the ass if you have like a family of four you want to take. But... On the other hand, they you know like StubHub has them up there, and it's not illegal to sell them. It's just they they say you're not supposed to, and they also say they won't give you any support if something goes wrong. So they encourage you not to. That's kind of what the NFL looks like they're doing. But of course, this is all a lie. He, it says here in the statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office that he never bought these tickets in the first place. I can tell you, it's tough. To resell tickets And there's actually a listener to this show I know who's in that business At least one uh, I met him at the World Series Fairly recently And it, it's a tough business The ticket reselling business In fact, if you want to read A blog I wrote about the ticket reselling business You can find it If you go to ToddWittellis.com Right on the front page ToddWittellis.com you'll see a blog called The Old Baseball Season Ticket Model is Dead. At least that'll be the front page blog until I write another blog. This I wrote on October 23, 2017 about World Series tickets, which interested me because the Dodgers made the World Series. I'm a big Dodgers fan. So I wrote about the whole situation with StubHub and why World Series prices were so high and how the whole process of buying tickets is so different than it used to be before StubHub came around. 
So uh, I actually was contacted by the listener to this show who is in the ticket industry, and he said he was very surprised that I knew as much as I did about the ticket industry since I'm not in it. He, he asked me if I was actually in the industry ever because uh, it seemed like I knew so much. So I was never in the ticket reselling industry, but I did engage in some ticket scalping. Not of baseball, well, a little bit of baseball tickets, but not much. Uh, mainly, it had to do with certain concerts, and I determined when it was done, even though I made a small profit, that it was not worth the trouble. The problem that I came to was that the only easy place to sell tickets is StubHub, and that StubHub takes such obnoxious fees, especially for just a regular individual like me. They have lower fees if you're a big broker, but I'm clearly not. That it's basically 23% you're losing on fees. And even though I was able to sell these tickets for these concerts at a, a decent markup, uh, by the time you take the 23% fee off, I have I really end up making very little money. And I have the hassle of doing it and sending the tickets and in case something goes wrong. And I got, you know, I also got screwed because, uh, in one case, because the tickets I sold were bad and, and it was it was difficult to get the refund back from the original company I bought it because I no longer had it in my possession. I won't go into the whole story. But yes, when the whole thing was over and I, I decided to quit doing it, I, I did make some money. But was it a lot of money? No. Was it worth the trouble? No. I decided the whole thing was like a lot of work for little profit and I'd stop doing it. So it's tough. It, it's, a, it's a tough business and an amateur who just says, hey, we'll just buy a bunch of Super Bowl tickets and sell them at, a, at a, a profit. It's not that easy. The buyers are very paranoid, and rightfully so, about counterfeit tickets. So when you have an expensive event like the Super Bowl, it's hard to find people willing to meet you and just give you cash. It's very hard to find that because they're very leery. They're very concerned that you're going to give them a fake. And this happens. There, there are fake tickets sold all the time. So people think, okay, we're going to go with large outfits which guarantee the tickets, like StubHub. So StubHub, they will guarantee the tickets, but you're also, and then people will find you on StubHub, but you're also paying those outrageous fees. So this was a dumb idea. If this guy approached me with the idea, oh, I'm going to have a ticket resale business. We're going to buy a bunch of Super Bowl tickets and sell them at a profit. Yeah, it's not that simple. If it was that simple to just buy up a bunch of Super Bowl tickets and you pretty much have a, almost a guaranteed profit, uh, uh, I would have done that a long time ago. But it's not that easy. Furthermore, um, there obviously wasn't any oversight on this guy and they just sent him money to buy tickets. What a bad idea. Hey, just give me money and I'll buy tickets to the Super Bowl and resell them. Just just trust me. I'm going to do it and not make off of the money. I'm not going to steal it. I'm not going to gamble it away. Just trust me. I'll buy the tickets and I'll resell them and make money while I'll be rich. Like, Who would invest in that? What credentials did this guy have to be doing this? If I were to ever invest in such an operation, I would invest in someone who is already ingrained in the industry, who has the experience, who has models to show Oh, what the prices are likely to be you know, this year versus last year versus the previous year and when the right time of, of year to sell. Like you got I, – I at least did that. I at least – where I would sell, I, I would actually be watching historically when the exact right time to sell was. 
that's where a lot of people make mistakes, by the way, in selling. The, even if they're not doing it professionally, they're doing it uh, because they have tickets they need to get rid of. People don't understand when the right time is to sell tickets, and it's, it, it depends on the event. It depends on the demand. It depends on a number of factors, and you have to look at historical data if, if it exists. There's a lot more to it than just going on StubHub and slapping up a price you think it's worth. And if you don't do it right, you're, you're going to get either just be left with useless tickets or you're going to get really, really screwed and you're, you're going to end up selling them for a bargain, which is going to make someone's day, but it's going to make you lose money. It's the old saying, for every dream that's shattered, another one comes true. So I know, I think of that whenever I get cheap tickets to a Dodgers game that I know I'm paying below face value, especially for a high-profile event like a playoff game or the World Series, and I'm paying below face or way below what market was at most of the time, I think, okay, this is great for me, but the, the guy who's selling it's probably very frustrated. He's probably pissed off that I'm getting the ticket for this price. He probably had dreams of getting three times, four times, five times this amount. Uh, I remember I, I went to a, a Dodgers playoff game in 2016, sat in the field level on the first base side in a, in one of the, not the front row, but one of the front rows. A great view of the game, great seats. Not the best seats I've ever had, but, you know, in that neighborhood. Very, very good seats for $109 each. $109 for a playoff game in some of the best seats of the park. Believe me, the guy that sold that ticket to me, it's actually two tickets, me and the person I went with, uh, the person who sold those two tickets, they never thought that 109 would be the price they'd get. They probably envisioned getting 700 bucks a ticket, and they got 109 I probably got the best deal in the entire park, aside from those who got the tickets given to them for free. But still, often the ticket-selling reality and the ticket-selling fantasy are very different for amateurs. I have a feeling this Ali guy just pitched it to people he met in poker and people he met around Houston and wherever else he met them and made it sound like a can't-miss proposition and the dummies believed him. People, It's amazing how many stupid things people will invest in and how, how they will throw money at something without doing their due diligence and even checking that the plan is something that sounds viable. It's amazing. I can tell you from all my time observing scams in poker and associated with poker, even without using my good reputation for never ripping people off, even without that, even if I was just kind of... uh, a total unknown in poker. I could come up with so many ways to rip people off and get away with it. I really could. <laughs> There's so many ways you can do it in poker. It's very sad. And I think it's because poker players are in the game in the first place because they want easy money. If it's working out, it is easy money. You just sit and play a game you enjoy and you win. That's, that's great, isn't it? So sometimes, especially if you're successful at doing that, you can think, okay, well, let's try some other easy money. Let's let's invest in a ticket brokering business. That'll be kind of fun, too. And I'll just sit 
and this other guy will do all the work, and I'll make lots of money. What a deal. Okay. Moving along. Station casinos. There's another little chapter to their bad beat jackpot situation. This disgusting thing they tried to pull on the players in their poker rooms. Which I still don't totally understand. I understand what was happening. I don't understand the why of it. I don't know why they did this. I still can't even figure it out. Even with stupid things that are done, I can usually figure out the why of it. Even if it's a stupid reason. Even if it's something I don't agree with or I think is unethical. I can at least get in the person's head and think, okay, this is at least what they were thinking. I don't know what Stations Casinos was thinking with this whole thing they did. With the Bad Beat Jackpot. Now, we've talked about it many times in this show. I'm not going to do a long recap here. But basically what happened was that a bad beat jackpot hit at one of the station casinos poker rooms. They had a promotion where any poker room that was running at the station casinos in Vegas that had bad beat jackpot tables, that they were all kind of networked. So everybody would get a piece of any jackpot that was hit. Not a huge piece, but everybody would get a piece even if they were not even in the same casino, provided that they were dealt in to a hand that was running at the same time when the jackpot hit. So they had that promotion going. And then in October, a bad beat jackpot hit. And when the betting was all done, the either before the betting was done or it was after the river was dealt. So it it couldn't have affected the cards. Both of them had a monster hand. I think it was before the river was dealt, but they hadn't finished their betting yet. Uh, One of the players was so excited that he thought that they were going to win a jackpot. As soon as the river was dealt, the guy showed his hand out of turn. And that is considered a violation of the house rules. This is at Santa Fe Station. So what happened was uh, the loser of the hand or the winner of the hand, sorry. The one who's going to be getting the most money from the bad beat jackpot, Leonard Schreeder. Uh, after the river had been dealt, uh, showed what his hands were. He, he turned he turned over the cards to see that his hand was you know, going to be a bad beat jackpot if it was going to lose, or sorry, if it was going to win. And indeed, that's what happened. So uh, another player at the table, Avi Shamir, who's 83 years old, it turned out. I just found that out. He was going to be the one getting the most money because he... Uh, He was the one who lost the hand. The reason they have this rule that you can't communicate that there might be a jackpot hand coming is because it would influence the play. 
So, for example, if uh, let, let's say you've got seven eight suited, and the board is uh, six of diamonds, seven of spades, seven of clubs, and you've got eight nine diamonds. Okay, so you've got kind of a a backdoor straight flush draw. But that's still not very much to go on here. I mean, you, you got a backdoor straight flush draw. Let's take the sevens out. I don't want to make it look like a straight. It's a make it like a six of diamonds, jack of clubs, jack of spades. That's a better example. And you've got eight nine of diamonds. Okay, so you've still got the backdoor straight flush draw. But other than that, you've, you've got nothing. So noticing that if the two perfect cards fall to give you a straight flush would be a bad beat jackpot if the guy has pocket jacks. If you start to get the feeling that maybe he's got pocket jacks, you could warn him. You could go, hey, 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 hold on. Don't bet. Because if you've got quads, I can't call you if you make a big bet here. But why don't we just check it down? The, the bad beat jackpot's so big. What if you just let me stay in the hand and let me get to the river? Because if you bet, I'm going to fold. But if we just check it down, then we can all get a bad beat jackpot. That would be bad beat jackpot collusion. And that would be against the rules, and they can actually deny you the bad beat jackpot if you collude to win it by revealing the contents of your hand. However, if you're at the river and one guy has quads, one has a straight flush, nobody's folding there, especially knowing that if that is the case, that everybody wins the bad beat jackpot. So at that point, it's already done. The the outcome of the hand is not going to change. No one's going to fold. So it doesn't matter if someone excitedly shows that they have a hand that will be a bad beat jackpot hand if uh, if the other guy hasn't beat. It doesn't change anything at that point. So Stations tried to hide behind that rule to say that uh, because Schrader showed his hand before the betting was complete on the river, that in- invalidates the whole jackpot. And this affected 80 people because of the ones that they had to pay at the other stations that had beat jackpot had the bad beat jackpot tables that were on the same network. We've talked about this before. And eventually, after a number of hearings, the Nevada Gaming Commission ruled in favor of the players and they all had to be paid. What's so weird about this is that this was a matter of $120,000 total and it was not coming out of the station casino coffers. This was player money. By Nevada law, any jackpot collected has to be returned to the players. So if the station's casino wants to close the poker room or go out of business or whatever, they are required to distribute that money. They cannot keep it. They cannot spend it. It is not their money. State law dictates that this is player money that has to go back to players. doesn't matter which players, but it has to go back to players in a fair and equitable manner in some way. It doesn't have to be a bad beat contest. They they can run any kind of promotion to give it back to the players to where everybody has a chance to compete for it, but it has to be given back to the players. So why was Station being such a stickler for rules, and even when there was very bad publicity about this, and there's news article after news article, and everyone's getting pissed off, and Stations are supposed to be a locals-friendly casino. That's what their market is. They're trying to get locals down there. This is not aimed at tourists. So the, the locals who they're trying to court are reading about this every day in the news in Las Vegas. Station casinos are looking like assholes. And what are they gaining from this? In the best case scenario, they're protecting money that isn't even theirs. And protecting is the wrong word. I should say they're wrongfully keeping money that isn't theirs. So even if they somehow got lucky and won the case with the Nevada Gaming Commission, 
they wouldn't make money from it. The money would still have to be returned to the players, just not these players. So why did they care? The only possible explanation is that it just became a battle of egos. They get a small benefit out of keeping a larger Bad Beat jackpot to encourage people to come down there. Uh, but the truth is the Bad Beat jackpot gets that large because people are playing to build it in the first place. And whatever small gain they got or would have gotten from people coming down because the jackpot was still 120000 would have been very much negated by the horrible publicity they got from this, where people are not going to want to come down believing that station is going to find a way to worm out of it and steal it from them. So they pushed this as far as they could, stations. They, they, they didn't just back down when the gaming commission came down and said, hey, yeah, we side with the players. They took it all the way to hearings, and this took many months to resolve, and it ended up in the news over and over, and they still dug their heels in and fought and fought and fought. It had to be a battle of egos. There's no other explanation. Now, this is a story we've covered a number of times since this all broke a few months ago. So... Why am I talking about it now? Well, Stations has decided that they're going to punish the players. They, they, they're they going to use their one little remaining bit of power to get back at the players for doing this to them, you know, for collecting the money they were rightfully owed. They decided that they're going to end the promotion that the casinos are all networked. And from now on, that's not going to happen anymore. From now on, you're only going to win any bad beat jackpot that is won at each individual casino. Oh, no. I mean, why? So, this, uh, so they, they've, they've ended it. And now it's going to just be each individual property is going to be distributing its own bad beat jackpot, and they're no longer going to have these shares for the networked properties, which was actually a kind of a good idea that they had going. So they're just shooting themselves in the foot. They're ending a promotion, pretty much to shoot themselves in the foot, a well-liked promotion because they're mad they lost this. What a joke. So, it's like they felt they had to do something. It's one of these things where someone feels they have to do something. So they tried to challenge it. They lost. They tried to re-challenge it. They lost again. They had to pay the money. They're like, what can I do? What can we do? What can we do? We lost. We lost. We have to give it back. We have to give the money to the, these players. We didn't want to do it. We're forced to. No, we're forced to, and we got the bad publicity. What can we do? What can we do? Oh, I know. I know. We're going to cancel the promotion for the future. That'll show them. <laughs> Come on. Uh, talk about a bunch of babies over there. Whoever made that decision has no clue about marketing or customer loyalty. This is a locals casino. They can't even use the excuse that the average tourist is not going to know about this and that they don't have to care about repeat visits. These are locals casinos. They've got to have repeat customers over and over again. And they... The customers are pissed off now. You, you, this is about the worst publicity you can have. The players win a jackpot and the casino is, is refusing to pay them using very, very flimsy and illegal pretenses. Awful. What morons. What unethical morons. Well, speaking of unethical... 
Another crypto poker site is in the news, and not for good reasons, called Coin Poker, and unfortunately it has a bit of a connection to Poker News, who I mostly like, but looks like Poker News kind of uh, blew this one. I have a good relationship with Poker News these days. Uh, Poker News will cover me as a poker player, probably... uh, more than my name in poker justifies these days, because I don't play that much tournament poker, but they you know, they do a fairly good job of finding and covering me. Depends who's reporting, but uh, they also will cover topics that are brought out on po- Poker Fraud Alert and give full credit. So we've probably gotten some new traffic from new users that uh, are viewing the site that came through Poker News. They, they very much acknowledge Poker Fraud Alert as a real news source. And whenever we do investigations about things in the scam, scandals, and shadiness forum, they tend to believe our conclusions and publish them. Now, this is not... They're not doing favors for me here. They're doing it because they like the story and they feel I've already done the research for them, but the fact that they're respecting the site enough to be an authority on the subject is, is nice to see. And in general, I, I have a good relationship with the reporters over there and even with some of the managers over there. We're not close friends, but we have a good relationship. But I'm not going to let that get in the way of me reporting what appears to be the truth. Now, most of this story doesn't have to do with poker news. So most of what I'm going to tell you here is not poker news fault, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to the poker news thing at the end. This, this all comes from an article I found on FlushDraw.net written by Haley Hintz, who I've mentioned many times before, is a very, very good poker journalist. And I actually met her in person for the first time over the summer of 2017. Very intelligent woman. She, she's older. She's older than me. Probably, uh, I don't know her age, but definitely older than I am. But uh, I've always liked her work, and I always visit Flesh Draw, which I don't believe she owns. I think she's just a writer on the site. They, they really appear to have only two writers on Flesh Draw, either Haley Hintz or, and Dan, Kat, Dan Katz is the other one. I don't really know Dan Katz, but they have kind of a different writing style. Haley Hintz is more of a investigative news style, and Dan Katz has kind of a more of a conversational writing style. But they both post interesting articles. Haley's tend to be more detailed. But Haley wrote about another piece that was written by Alex Weldon, who I know I've interacted with before. I don't really know him personally, but I've I've interacted with him before on social media. And I guess he's the managing editor of Game Intel, which I haven't really heard of before. But Alex Weldon looked into the activity at the tables at Coin Poker. Now, what is Coin Poker? Coin Poker is a cryptocurrency based poker site. The two best known cryptocurrency based poker sites were Bitcoin and Seals with Clubs. Now, we know about the Bitcoin fiascos, and we also know about some of the. Uh, 
seals with clubs follies. But I had not heard of coin poker before. I heard of breakout poker, which attempted to create their own little alternative cryptocurrency and then had a disastrous initial coin offering. And that whole site's been a fail site. And they're, they're still trying to get it going, but it's it's been a fail. Coin poker is very similar. I had not heard of it before. But they have a unique promotion going on where 5 million coins of their custom cryptocurrency, CHP, will be going to the winners of this promotion. So this isn't just like an initial coin offering where you buy new crypto coin and hope they go up in value, hope basically you find the new Bitcoin or new Ethereum and uh, make a lot of money. There's thousands of these altcoins out there. That's what they're called, these alternative cryptocurrencies. So this is similar to Breakout Coin, where the, it's a not only a cryptocurrency site, not only not only a cryptocurrency poker site, but they they also have their own coin. But this is unusual in that they're giving a lot of their coin away, and they called it the five million CHP leaderboard race. Now this is a very recent thing; it just started on March twelfth, which is only ten days ago now, and. What you have to do is play on their cash game tables. Now, cash, of course, is not actual real cash. It's with uh, presumably Bitcoin. I haven't looked at the tables running, but it's uh, you have to buy in with something of real value. You can't buy in with, with those coin right now, to my knowledge. So this was supposed to take place for four weeks and during these four weeks they would be awarding those 5 million CHP coin based on the number of hand you've played the more hand you play the more CHP coin you will get for free interesting promotion huh Furthermore, they were uh, offering rake-free play. So this was really all to get people over to that site and get used to playing there. So you could play rake-free, and while you're playing rake-free, you could earn the CHP coin. Isn't that a sweet deal? So instead of paying rake to play, you're paying no rake and getting coin for playing. Wow, that is a good deal. So even if you break even, you've won because you're paying no rake and you're getting these CHP coin, which even if they don't blow up, if you get a lot of them, they got to be worth something, right? Well, could this possibly be exploited in any way if there's no rake and... If you're getting coin based upon how many hands you're playing, could there be any way to exploit this? Maybe play a whole lot of hands with just about zero risk. How do you do that? Well, 
what if you have a lot of bots and you unleash them on the site and the bots pretty much cram up every table they can playing against each other? Why? Because they're all playing with the same bankroll. It doesn't matter if they win or lose against each other. So the bots just pretty much check down every hand. Speed things along, just check, 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 check down. Nobody pays any rake. Not much money goes back and forth, so you don't have to worry about funding the bots. You know, if, if one runs better than the other, you just pretty much check everything down, and you accumulate a whole lot of hands under your belt for all these different bots. They're not risking any money because they're mainly playing each other, soft playing each other, getting in a ton of hands, never have to take a break because they're bots, and tons of coin will go to them. So if this coin ever does become worth anything, you own it through your bots. Hmm. So Alex Weldon was observing the games, and I note he noticed that there were some absurd play patterns. For example, a player whose first name was whose name was first one st was actually found by Weldon to be playing at 42 tables at once. (laughs) I mean, you've probably heard of four tabling, five tabling, maybe eight or 16 tabling if you're really, really good at it. Have you ever heard of 42 tabling? This guy first, somehow for eight hours straight, taking no breaks, played 42 tables at once. How many tables were running on the site total? 47. (laughs) So 47 tables running, and this guy first, or shall I say this bot first, is playing on 42 of them. And this is what Weldon wrote. I opened 16 of those tables at random, the most that could fit conveniently on my screen. So he noticed that 42 tables, he couldn't even understand how this guy can get them all on the screen at the same time. He ran out of room. And watched for about half an hour. The pre-flop play was tight, but not unreasonable. Post-flop, however, around every single pot was either checked down or won by a single bet. The two exceptions I saw were one hand involving a player who definitely wasn't part of the group, and one where a king high flush lost to an all-in ace high flush on an unpaired board. That latter case may have simply been a token effort to not be completely obvious. So he's saying here that <laughs> the only two hands he actually saw played out, not just to the river, but like played with any kind of action, were uh, one which involved just a, some hapless chump who was there who wasn't one of the bots, and, and the other one was uh, a king high versus ace high flush between the two bots where the, the, uh, I guess the bots, they programmed them to actually go all in there because it wouldn't have made sense at all for them to have uh, checked that one down. He wrote, furthermore, all of the players bought in for 40 blinds whenever necessary, and never none ever got much above 200, despite playing 27 tables for hours and hours and hours. In other words, the players were clearly soft playing each other, just swapping chips around in order to satisfy the promotions, uh, 10% voluntarily put in pot requirement, which is known as VPIP, uh, while racking up an insane number of hands. So I forgot to mention the, the 10% thing. The promotion had a requirement 
so people don't just keep folding every single hand because they they were at least smart enough on on coin poker to realize that you know what if you just have someone knowing that there's no rake just fold everything fold 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 aces you know just fold everything since there's no rake um i mean you you you'd pay the blinds but uh they fold so you wouldn't fold aces but just folding everything except super premium hands knowing there's no rake and that the few times you don't fold you're playing premium hands you'll probably win some of those so you'll uh There'll be very little action, very little risk, and you'll, you'll accumulate these coins. So they put a requirement in order to get the coin, you have to play a minimum of 10% of hands where you're voluntarily entering them, which is known as a voluntarily put in pot, VPIP, which is a, a stat used by Poker Tracker and others to show how loose or tight someone is. So. Uh, for example, if you're on the big blind and, and someone just calls and it checks around to you, then that that doesn't add to your VPIP because you you aren't voluntarily putting in money for the blinds. You you have to. So, volunt- VPIP means that uh, you have to voluntarily put money into the pot. So, ten percent is pretty damn low. So basically, they they would enter preflop at kind of a, a minimum requirement to satisfy the ten percent, and then just check it down and fold. Check it down or make a single bet and fold between the bots. Weldon did say that uh, he found a table where one non-bot was present, but. Uh, since everything was so super tight, it, it, it didn't really matter. Especially with all the tables running at the same time, so that guy wasn't going to get very much. So, given that there was no rake, this was an easy thing to set up. And uh, Alex Weldon figured out that it, it's just bots that are accumulating all this. Now, there's been some theories of what's going on there. Is it possible that coin poker set up their own bots to accumulate their own coin and make it look like they're giving it away? Well, yes, that's possible. But from the hours of play that were being observed on coin poker, Alex Weldon came to the conclusion that he thought this was coming out of Asia especially because bots have been common on places like PokerStars from Asia, China specifically. So he doesn't think this is being done by CoinPoker itself, but he thinks that CoinPoker doesn't care and has not made any attempt to stop this. He's attempted to contact Coin Poker, but they will not answer. Furthermore, Weldon believes that it's very possible that Coin Poker was developed by a third-party company that has basically left the building, so that those running Coin Poker at the moment are very clueless and don't even understand how to do this, and there's no security there at all. They claim they're going to roll out something called Fair Play, which 
is supposed to be a new security protocol, but that's not coming till October. And there's some suspicion that until fair play rolls out, there's going to be no security there at all. So where's the poker news connection? This is kind of interesting in itself that they have this 5 million free cryptocurrency coin for this new coin they're issuing that you get it for free just by playing their rake-free cash games, but now it just seems to be all bots. But even worse here, Poker News at some point must have had some deal with them because Poker News did one of those advertorials uh, promoting the this particular promotion on Coin Poker. It's one of these stories that isn't really a story. And this was something that uh, was on several sites, so it wasn't just written by, by Poker News. So Haley Hintz found a copy of it on Medium.com. And it says, mark the date. March 12th is when awesome things will begin at Coin Poker. If you want to win some cryptocurrency, you're in luck. We're, we're launching a massive promotion for our most popular format, the cash games. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? So this ran on Poker News. And... What happened is, if you try to find this, uh, if you try to find this article on Poker News now, it's gone. And in fact, if you go find it on Google Cache, where it still exists, uh, if you try to go to that same URL, it now redirects to a promotion for 888 Poker from last July, of all things. So they just, they just. They didn't make the page unavailable. They just changed it to an old promotion for 888 Poker as if this never existed. So this is very strange that Poker News would have scrubbed this from their site. So either they're aware that things are going on that shouldn't be now at Coin Poker and are embarrassed to have ever run this advertorial, or maybe Coin Poker didn't pay them, or something that made them change this. But uh, Haley hints who does have an axe to grind with Poker News. She doesn't like them, but she points out that the, the ethical thing for Poker News to have done if they allowed Coinba- Coin Poker to do this advertorial and then it turned out that uh, bots are infesting the site and they no longer feel good about it, that they should be honest with their readers and say, hey, we ran this before, but we're seeing evidence there's bots there and we no longer encourage you to play. Instead, they, they're just redirecting what was once the promotion the promotional article there to something completely unrelated as if it was never there. Like they want to cover up that they ever had anything to do with it. So pretty bad on both counts. I'd stay away from coin poker. You probably didn't know about it, but stay away anyway. See, see, I forgot to know coin poker. This is why this is such a pain in the ass. Like I, I, I'm not used to doing this. I forgot to know. I'll have to go find it. I'll have to go through the archives and find it. What a pain in the butt. Okay. Well, I will note this one. About some trouble in the White House. An assistant of Donald Trump was fired for online gambling? Yeah. Online gambling. Here's what occurred. 
A young assistant named John McEntee, not John McAfee, not John McEnroe, but this is kind of the, if they had a love child, this is John McEntee. M-C-E-N-T-E-E. He's 27 years old. He was an assistant to Donald Trump. He's been working with Trump for three years. But uh, he was fired, according to the Washington Post. And apparently this occurred because of uh, online gambling issues. And it's not clear whether the gambling he made, he was doing online was legal or illegal, but given that he probably wasn't spending much time in New Jersey, Delaware, or Nevada, it was probably illegal. It's probably on uh, sites like Bovada or whatever. It doesn't say which sites, but that's, uh, but he was fired there. And when he joined the White House, he was the president's special assistant and personal aide. He had to give a personal financial disclosure. And the reason they have to do this is because they, they, they don't want people working for the White House who could be bribed easily, who have money problems. So if, if it looks like your, your personal finances are a disaster, they won't hire you. They even sometimes will do this for just general security clearances, like for a defense contractor. If, if your personal finances are a mess, they often won't give you a security clearance thinking that you're vulnerable if you need money really badly. And then someone's willing to bribe you to do something you shouldn't. The, the person who's rich already is much less likely to be susceptible to a bribe. So he reported that he had a bank account containing 100000 to 250000 which is kind of weird. Why not just like the exact amount? And he had another containing from 15000 to 50000 So apparently they were afraid that his online gambling habit posed a security risk. Because what if he chunked off all his money and needed to get replacement money, basically? What if someone came to him and said, hey, all that money you lost gambling? How would you like to have it all back and more if you just do such and such for us? So uh, the White House, it wasn't Trump personally who looked into this. And uh, I'm not sure if Trump specifically decided to fire him, but uh, he was fired. Reportedly, John McEntee was very upset to learn he was being fired. And he actually complained he had done nothing improper. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about this departure, and she said, we don't comment on personnel issues. Apparently, he got his job in the first place after repeatedly writing to the Trump campaign in the summer of 2015, this is before it really got all you know, going that much, that he was uh, repeatedly writing to them, asking for a job. I, I guess by the summer of 2015, he was already kind of in swing. 
because the primary is coming up that uh, fall or that spring. But um, they didn't give him a job at first, and he then wrote another email. I guess they just ignored him. He was writing these. He kept writing emails to the campaign office, and they were just ignoring it. So he wrote one more email saying, hey, um, I noticed you guys aren't responding to my emails, so I, I think you guys are probably overwhelmed. You, you don't have someone to respond to these, all these emails you get. How about you give me a job responding to emails like mine? And that actually kind of got their attention. So they didn't hire him for that, but they thought that was kind of a creative thing he sent to them. Like, hey, you didn't answer my email. How would you like to hire me to answer email? That they ended, they ended up hiring him as a trip director. And he would oversee preparations for campaign events. The reason he wanted to work for Trump so badly, he said, is because he was sick of career politicians. So after Trump won, he was rewarded with this post of the special assistant and personal aide to Trump. This is often what happens for volunteers of campaigns is that they dividends pay later when they are given positions with the politician once they've been elected. The worst thing that can happen is you volunteer all your time for a candidate and then they lose. Or I guess alternatively they win and don't give you a position with them. So he's gone. Just because they're afraid of the gambling. And I understand that. This isn't outrageous. This isn't something to criticize Trump for. And truthfully, I think any president would have fired him. This is not just a Trump thing. The Wall Street Journal actually first reported that uh, they were concerned about his gambling. And apparently the, the reason this happened was that he was denied a security clearance. That's how they found out about it. They, they hadn't actually gotten a security clearance for him yet. And then they, he was denied the clearance because of the problems in his background. So they said that he couldn't gain the clearance for the role. All right. Moving on to our last topic. West Virginia may have actually legalized sports betting. But unfortunately for the West Virginia residents or visitors listening to this show... You will not be able to gamble on sports legally there at this time. Because there's one more hurdle that has to be cleared. So you guys probably know, if you've listened to other episodes of this show, about the attempt to change the federal law against sports betting. Sports betting has a very odd and unusual legal situation in the United States. It's the only type I know of where federally 
the law applies differently to different states. So full sports betting is allowed in one state, and that's Nevada. Montana, Oregon, and Delaware can have a very, very limited form of sports betting, but you can't even make just like straight bets. You can't just say, hey, I want to bet on this team to win uh, you know, with, with three points today. You can't do that in these other states. So for, for all practical purposes, the only real sports betting is in Nevada. So you can't do it in Atlantic City. You can't do it at these Indian casinos around the country. It's really only Nevada and then those, the very limited sports betting in those other three states, Montana, Oregon, and Delaware. And, and nowhere else is it allowed, and this is due to the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act of 1992, also known as PASPA. I cannot think of a single law in the books other than this about anything, not just gambling, where different states are treated differently by the federal government. Now, there's variations in state law where one state may have a different law than another about a matter that the federal government also gets involved. But this is actually the federal government saying to the other 46 states, you may not have any kind of online gambling, or not for not only, you may not have any kind of sports betting here at all. No sports betting for you. California, no sports betting for you. Uh, Washington, no sports betting for you. New Jersey, no sports betting for you. Florida, no sports betting for you. Every state except Nevada, Montana, Oregon, and Delaware, no sports betting for you. And the three of you who are not Nevada, you get crap sports betting no one's going to want to do anyway. So it's Nevada and pretty much nobody else. We're proclaiming this from a federal level. Nevada gets the edge here. The rest of you can go suck a big dong. That's basically what PASPA says. Very, very unusual. Federal law always applies to all 50 states and D.C. State law, that applies to each state. That's that's set at each state level. And each state sets their own laws as long as these laws do not interfere with federal law. And then there's local law beyond that. And, you know, that's, that's how laws are set in the United States. So it's just so strange that there's a law in the books like this that says only Nevada can have this. Well, there's been a lot of attempts to change that recently. A lot of attempts to defeat PASPA. New Jersey's been pushing for it very strongly because Atlantic City's been struggling. They, they think this may be a way into some profitability, maybe an additional income stream. And recently, while the professional sports leagues have been very against sports betting in other states or an expansion of it, uh, they've started to change their minds. Like uh, the NBA and Major League Baseball have actually come out for sports betting, but as covered on a previous show, they were demanding 1% gross on every bet placed for what they call an integrity fee. (laughs) That may not sound like a lot, but uh, that would really, really, really eat into sportsbook profits to where they probably have to make the odds worse for the players in order to cover the loss of profits that they would have. Uh, Industry studies say this would eat away about 25% of profits made on sports bets, and this doesn't even include overhead expenses for processing them. I'm just talking about wins versus losses. 
that 20 to 25 percent would go away and, and go right to the sports league. That's, a, that's what a one percent change would do. The reason for that is that most sports bets pretty much fall one way or the other. And you know, there's a lot of, of, of sports bets that are placed. Most of the money gets returned to the players, not not the same players, but there's a bet on one side, there's a bet on the other side, and everybody who bet on the side that wins gets it, and everybody who bet on the side that loses, it doesn't get it. And the only money the casino makes is on the juice charged. So when you charge 1% of each bet that goes to the sports leagues, that comes from every single bet placed. So the winnings, the winning bets and the losing bets are canceling each other out, and the casinos are only making money on the, the commission they're charging, basically, and, and, and on the juice they're charging. So this 1% becomes a lot more than 1%. It, it, it becomes a very healthy percent of the juice. That's the problem. So this was seen as unrealistic, and the casinos all balked at this and said, you've got to be kidding. We're not paying 1%. But still, the professional sports leagues are now at least supporting sports betting. Even if their terms kind of suck, and it seems like at least it's moving sort of in the right direction. Whereas before, they were just very, very against it. The reason they're changing their minds on this is it's a few reasons. Number one, they realize that people sports bet anyway online, and that it's getting easier and easier to do. So they're going to do it somewhere. Why not have it in the U.S.? And this increases viewer interest in individual games and in the league itself. So they get a bigger audience this way if people have money riding on the game. And also, it's a lot harder to bribe players now to throw games because the players make so much money that it's a lot harder to bribe them. It's just not worth the risk anymore with how much money the players are making to be taking bribes to throw games. So with all the attempts to overturn PASPA and leave it up to the states... it's starting to look more and more likely that sports betting will come to other states. West Virginia has gotten ahead of the process, and they have actually passed a bill, which was called Senate Bill 451, which makes it legal to bet on sports in the state of West Virginia. Venues that want to provide sports betting will have to cough up $100,000 for a license and of course be approved. West Virginia Governor Jim Justice actually admitted that this was kind of meaningless unless pass was overturned. He said, Hold on, guys. I know we all agreed on this, but maybe we were all a bit too early. And that's because without PASPA, this is against federal law, and state law can never trump federal law. So they have to wait for PASPA to be overturned, but this way, the day PASPA is overturned, they have it in place to where they can offer sports betting. Maybe not the day after, because they have to do the licensing and all that, but they don't have to pass any laws anymore. It's already legal in the state once it becomes federally legal. West Virginia is actually a conservative state. More conservative than Virginia, which is right next door to them. So, it's interesting that they were interested in sports betting. 
Though honestly, as I've said many times, the gambling issue is not all that partisan. There's a little more support for gambling, both online and brick and mortar, from the Democrats versus the Republicans, but not by a whole lot. There are those on both sides of the aisle that support and who oppose the expansion of gambling and online gambling. Do not vote for a particular party because you believe they're more online gambling friendly or just gambling friendly. You may find yourself disappointed. I would love it if sports betting became legal in the U.S., especially if you could do it online. And I didn't have to deal with these shady sports books. It would be so much nicer to just be able to use a trustworthy sports book in the U.S. That's where the money's guaranteed. And there's real regulations governing it. However, it is possible that they, if there is some sort of too much fees involved in getting this done, that they, they won't be able to offer competitive juice. So if I'm having to pay 15% juice on a game where I can get it at 10% or 5% or 7% juice on these online sites, yeah, I'm going to go for the online sites that are illegal as long as it's a well-paying site rather than this. So, that's all we got. That's all we got. It's not going to be a show next week. We're going to have to make do with this one. Still was more than six hours here. So you've got a healthy show here. Thank you to Calwatt and Trader Ruski for being part of the show tonight. Especially Calwatt who came on here uh, after he peed. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin, for the generous money you paid to sponsor the show tonight and also for the free roll. I know... F and Donkey won the bounty on Trader Ruski. I don't know who won the free roll just yet, but it is over. And the show is about to be over. To be honest, I'm kind of tired right now. I didn't get that much sleep last night, and I was unable to really nap much during the day. So, I will kind of miss this feels funny on those weeks where I don't get to do the radio. I think about it when we get to Wednesday and I'm not doing the show and I know the next day I'm not doing the show and I think of the people who kind of count on this show to get them through the work day or their long poker grind or their exercising or their hiking or their sleeping, unfortunately. And I think I cannot provide them a new show this week and they're going to be disappointed. But I'll be back, you know, I'll be here on April 4th. And you know what, on April 4th, it's just going to be about a little bit less than two months before the World Series starts. 
I still haven't come up with a final World Series schedule. I still have not come up with whether or not I'm going to sell pieces. So stay tuned regarding that. I've just got some decisions to make about a lot of things. There's pros and cons to selling pieces. And you guys remember last year when there were some issues, like when I accidentally showed up an hour late to... uh, Was it an hour late? No, no, it was 25 minutes late. Whatever it was, to a day two because of an emergency. And, uh, you know, I refunded the entire buy-in to everybody, so it became a free roll for them. Because if I had cashed, of course, I would have paid the cash. But, you know, I I felt so bad about that. And what I felt most bad about was uh, how it affected the investors. And, you know, every time I built up a stack and lost it and didn't cash, I felt bad for the investors. There's just something about feeling you succeed and fail completely on your own dime. And that your failure is always your own. So, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll let you guys know. See you in two weeks on April 4th. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Always appreciate it. Text me if you like. Good night and shalom.